Lecture 36, The Wilderness to Spotsylvania. In our last two lectures, we reviewed Ulysses S. Grant's plans for the Union strategic offensive in the spring of 1864 and have looked at four of the five principal components of what Grant envisioned as a five-pronged offensive. Uh, we discussed the failures of the secondary efforts under Siegel and Butler in Virginia. Uh, we discussed Banks' failure to get his campaign going against Mobile. And when we left William Tecumseh Sherman in Georgia, he had maneuvered Joseph E. Johnston from the area just south of Chattanooga down into the defenses of Atlanta, and John Bell Hood had been selected to replace Johnston. The fifth component of Grant's plan, of course, was the one that would involve Grant himself most actively, the one that would be played out uh, over the old battlegrounds in central Virginia. This would be the showpiece confrontation of the spring of 1864, and in many ways the showpiece confrontation of the war, because it brought together the two greatest soldiers developed during the war in Grant and Lee. It's the best general on each side, leading the most famous army on each side, in the area perceived to be most critical by citizens on each side, had all the elements of high drama and potentially enormous consequences. Both sides looked, both civilian sectors looked toward this campaign with a good deal of optimism, which of course raised the stakes even higher because it meant that psychologically a tremendous amount was going to be riding on both sides Uh, on the outcome of this campaign between Grant and Lee. Someone was going to be in for an enormous disappointment if their army did not do well. The North, for its part, had had two years of frustration with Lee in the Virginia theater. Two years without having uh, what seemed to be a knockout blow delivered against Lee. First, Lee had won his victories from the Seven Days and Second Manassas Uh, on through Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. Uh, then he invaded the north. Uh, he'd been turned back at Gettysburg, but many in the north knew uh, that Lee's army hadn't been as badly uh, hurt there as many of them hoped it would be. He'd gotten away. He'd pulled himself and his army together, and he was still uh, a great presence. He was seen uh, by most northerners as, as formidable, uh, formidable a foe as he'd ever been, and there was this great hunger in the north for some kind of unequivocal success against Lee in Virginia. Grant seemed to be the solution for the North's failures in, in uh, Virginia. Here's a man who's never lost in the West, most people in the North believe. Grant had had some rocky moments out West, had actually lost probably the Battle of Belmont, but for the most part he had crafted a record of one success after another, and people in the North believed at last we have someone, finally we've found someone who's going to be able to take Lee's measure. Public opinion expecting a very great deal uh, from Grant. The northern newspapers expressing great confidence as the time for the campaign to begin drew nearer and nearer. Wildly optimistic projections about what Grant might accomplish uh, came out in the newspapers, which again upped the ante because the people reading those newspaper accounts came to have their own ex expectations raised to a higher and higher level. Now, on the Confederate side, Lee remained the most important national symbol in the Confederacy. His fellow citizens expected him to win success. 
Uh, they had seen him uh, time and time again on the battlefield, if not come out uh, cl- uh, clearly victorious, at least come out with his army intact and with his army remaining a major threat to the United States and the major bulwark of the Confederate effort to win independence. Very high expectations in the Confederacy for Lee. So with these expectations in place on both sides, this campaign would unfold as one of uh, the premier military operations of the Civil War and one of the premier military operations in United States history. We've seen what Grant's three goals in Virginia were. Tie Lee down. So Lee is is hemmed in, in effect, restricted to a fairly small area of maneuver in Virginia, restricted in a way that would not permit him to detach troops to help Joseph Johnston uh, fight William Tecumseh Sherman. While you're restricting Lee, when you come to grips with him, bleed his army as much as possible. The more that Lee's army hemorrhaged, the better for the North. This would also achieve a goal that Lincoln had urged for more than two years. Each of his successive commanders, with Hooker and with Burnside and with George Gordon Meade, never mind with McClellan early on, Lincoln had urged them and urged them to please use all of your men to inflict the greatest damage possible on Lee and his army. Grant would do that as well. And finally, if all else went well, went according to form, he almost certainly would capture Richmond, the most famous, the most important city in the Confederacy. Now, he didn't want to get to Richmond without fighting. There's a great contrast between Grant and McClellan here, and you often read critiques of Grant uh, that look at all the casualties he was going to suffer in May and early June 1864 and say, look at this, Grant piled up these huge mounds of bodies to get to a point where George B. McClellan got back in 1862 with virtually no bloodshed. Well, Grant doesn't want to replicate what McClellan did. He wants to hurt Lee as he gets closer to Richmond, not to get to Richmond with as few casualties as possible. He wants to hurt Lee's army because he believed, uh, in one sense, that if he didn't fight Lee in significant battles on the way to Richmond, Lee's army would be big enough so that Lee could defend the city of Richmond uh, with only part of it and detach strength to go west. Grant expected that decisive action might take place on Sherman's front. Lincoln and Halleck joined him in that Sherman, might be able to accomplish wonderful things uh, out in the West. They all hoped that he would. But Grant also knew, as the passage in his memoirs that I quoted from uh, in an earlier lecture demonstrates, Grant knew that the Virginia front would be the most important for most people in the North, as well as for most observers watching this action from elsewhere. Well, what could Lee do here? He could do no more, really, than try to parry Grant's thrust and hold off the Federals long enough to exhaust the Northern will to continue a struggle that was becoming increasingly expensive in terms of blood and treasure. Now, Lee would always be looking for openings, for counterstrokes. That is the nature of his leadership, always hoping to be able to seize the tactical advantage or perhaps even the strategic advantage on occasion. But realistically... He was facing an army so much larger than his that those uh, options were going to be uh, very rigorously restricted. Uh, He was coming off an extremely hard winter, Lee was. As in the winter of 1862-63, he had had to disperse much of his army so that the men and animals would have adequate food and fodder. The Confederate soldiers in Lee's army had been on a ration in the winter of 1864 and on into the spring of 1864, 
that amounted to four ounces of meat a day. That's one Big Mac patty, and that's the pre-cooked weight. And a pint of cornmeal. That is just barely enough food uh, to keep someone's body together. Uh, it was a very hard winter for the Confederacy, and one uh, in which Lee was forced to write to the War Department and to President Davis saying that if this situation doesn't improve, I'm not sure I can keep my army together. So it's not an army of Northern Virginia that's been well-fed. It's an army that does, however, remain very confident in Lee's leadership. The armies were arrayed opposite each other in the same section of Virginia they had come to know so well over the preceding two years along the Rapidan-Rappahannock River line. That's the frontier between these two big armies in Virginia. Lee had not only to protect that frontier, but also to keep one eye on his supply routes to the fertile Shenandoah Valley, the Virginia Central Railroad, uh, making its way out of eastern Virginia over towards Stanton and other points to the west. Meade's Army of the Potomac, again, technically under Meade's command, it's Meade's Army to the end of the war, but considered grants by most people. Meade's Army was broken into three pieces. There had been seven corps in the Army of the Potomac at Gettysburg, but it had been reorganized. Now there are just three. Uh, Winfield Scott Hancock commanded the second corps. Governor Kemble Warren commanded the fifth corps, and John Sedgwick commanded the sixth corps. Now, also attached to the Army of the Potomac was Ambrose E. Burnside's Ninth Corps. Here comes Burnside into the picture in the east again. We last saw him in Knoxville. Well, his Ninth Corps, a very large corps, joins the army to reinforce it, but he can't take orders from Meade because he outranks Meade. He was a major general before Meade was a major general. So you have this odd command relationship on the northern side. Grant, the general-in-chief, traveling with the army, giving orders to George Gordon Meade, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, but also giving orders to Ambrose Burnside, who is sort of floating off to the side as commander of the Ninth Corps, uh, not the neatest chain of command uh, on the Union side during the Overland Campaign, what would be called the Overland Campaign. Grant's army, just about 120,000 men at the outset of the campaign. Lee, 64,000 plus or minus a few, uh, divided uh, in the same manner it had been during the Gettysburg Campaign. Three Corps, James Longstreet, his senior subordinate, his most trusted subordinate, commanded the First Corps. Uh, Richard Stoddart Ewell commanded the Second Corps, most of Jackson's old command. And Ambrose Powell Hill, A.P. Hill, commanded the Third Corps. Jeb Stewart commanded the Confederate Cavalry. Uh, Philip Sheridan would be his opposite number. Sheridan had gone east with Grant. He was put in command of all the cavalry in the Army of the Potomac. He'd never really commanded cavalry before, but that is what he's doing now. The odds against the Confederates are thus about two to one, just about two to one. And Grant and Meade were optimistic. They believed that if they did a competent job, Lee would not be able to fend off their blows in the upcoming campaign. They believed they had enough men and enough material and enough competence among their officers and resolution among their men to defeat the rebels. They expected that they would drive Lee into the fortifications of Richmond, bleed him along the way, and then they believed that a siege likely would end in Union victory. And that is what Lee feared most of all, a siege. He knew 
that if he were pushed into the defenses at Richmond, if his army were forced to hunker down behind the very strong fortifications at Richmond, all advantages would pass to the Federals, and that siege would end as almost every other siege during the Civil War ended. That is with a United States victory. All right, those are the forces as we're moving in to the first stage of the Overland Campaign. Let's now look at the first big battle of this confrontation between Grant and Lee. That is the Battle of the Wilderness, fought on May 5 and 6, 1864. The armies would be maneuvering in the beginning of the campaign over the same ground uh, they had contested during the Chancellorsville campaign, almost precisely one year before. It's that several uh, dozen square miles of scrub, second and third growth area, known as the Wilderness of Spotsylvania. Again, very few roads go through the area. Very few farmsteads break uh, the clutches of that uh, tangled landscape. Lee, if he could catch Grant at a disadvantage in this area, would be able to offset to a degree uh, the Union advantages in artillery and in numbers. For his part, Grant was willing to fight Lee anywhere. He would fight him in the wilderness. He'd march beyond the wilderness, maneuver, and fight him again. Uh, his main goal is to come to grips with the rebels, although probably he thought it would be better to have a little room for maneuver uh, rather than to fight in the depths of the wilderness. But mainly what Grant wants to do is get across the Rappahannock and Rapidan Rivers, start to slip around Lee's right flank, and then see what would develop on the way to Richmond. The Union Army crossed the Rapidan River fords, Ely's Ford and Germana Ford, on May the 4th. He began right on time, did Grant. That's one of his traits as a soldier. He sets a date or a time to do something. He generally met that timetable. The next day, on May 5th, Lee's army, two-thirds of it, advanced along two roads to come to grips with the Federals. Richard Ewell was the northern uh, part of Lee's army, the northernmost part of it, advancing eastward along the Orange Turnpike. A.P. Hill's Third Corps was south of Ewell, advancing eastward along the Orange Plank Road. Uh, these are two roads that extend from Fredericksburg, Virginia, to Orange Courthouse. Both of them travel through the wilderness of Spotsylvania. Ewell made contact first, and soon a fight grew between Ewell's Confederates and Federals of Governor Warren's Fifth Corps, the Union Army. The wilderness was so thick in this area that control of troops was very difficult. Soon fighting also flared to the south when elements of A.P. Hill's Third Corps uh, became engaged uh, with elements of Winfield Scott Hancock's Second Corps, fighting uh, grew there, too. More and more men fed into these two corridors, these road corridors through the wilderness. Uh, a great gap between them. This isn't a continuous battle line north to south. There's a battle in the north along the turnpike. There's a battle in the south along the plank road. And there's an interval, a significant interval, in between them. Uh, fighting complicated by blinding smoke that built up in the foliage. Uh, just an enormously confusing, uh, disorienting, type of fighting as it had been at Chancellorsville the year before. Each side made some progress. Uh, each side lost some ground on both fronts. Nightfall brought a momentary peace, and the armies uh, each tried to disentangle the lines as they had become confused during the fighting. Confederates were in by far uh, the weaker position, however, because James Longstreet's First Corps wasn't on the field yet. It had been deployed far from the battlefield during the winter. It was still en route 
uh, to the wilderness fighting sector. And so you had Ewell and Hill and their troops bedding down that night without a continuous line and no certainty about what would happen in the morning. That gap between the two pieces of the Confederate Army was potentially disastrous for Lee. Grant was aware of it. And what Grant hoped to do on May 6th was renew the fighting along the Turnpike and the Orange Plank Road and have Ambrose Burnside with his big Ninth Corps try to punch through this gap in the middle of the Confederate line or in between the two pieces of the Confederate line, I should say. The battle resumed a little past dawn on May 6th. Winfield Scott Hancock, the best of the Union Corps commanders, a very aggressive officer who'd done well at uh, Gettysburg and really was the stalwart element of the uh, corps-level high command in the Army of the Potomac during this stage of the Overland Campaign. Hancock got his men going early and shattered A.P. Hill's two divisions that were defending Uh, the Orange Plank Road part of the battlefield. Uh, The Confederates were literally sprinting away from the field. Lee rode into the midst of this. Lee couldn't believe what was happening to these veteran troops. And in actions that anticipated a pattern that would be uh, in place for much of the rest of the Overland campaign, Lee began to operate not only as the Army commander, but in effect as his own corps commander as well. Hill's job should have been to rally his corps, Uh, But Lee clearly did not think that Hill would accomplish it by himself. Lee rode into the midst of these fugitives. There was one line of Confederate artillery pieces, basically all that stood between uh, these advancing Federals of Hancock's Corps and utter collapse for the Confederate Army. Uh, Lee urged the gunners to do their work. And just at the moment when disaster seemed surely about to engulf the Confederates, the head of James Longstreet's advancing troops came into sight. It just so happened that the best uh, brigade in the entire Army of Northern Virginia uh, was near the front of the line. Uh, The Texas Brigade that had been commanded by John Bell Hood, uh, Longstreet and Lee spoke briefly. Lee rode out among the Texans as they came onto the field, uh, seemingly uh, willing to lead them in the attack. A number of them crowded around his horse, Traveler. This is the first of the famous Lee to the rear episodes. Uh, they said they wouldn't attack unless Lee went back. They grabbed Traveler's bridle. They turned the horse around. Uh, some of them said later they'd put Lee under arrest uh, before they marched into action. When Lee finally went to the rear, uh, the Texas Brigade and another Confederate brigade on their right assaulted into the teeth of Hancock's approach, approaching Federals and achieved uh, a stable line on that part of the field. It had been a very, very close call, very close call for Lee's army, Uh, but finally the line was established along the plank road. Longstreet, uh, who in his own gruff way he had told Lee to get to the rear, he told Lee that he'd be happy, Longstreet would be happy to get to the rear in safety if Lee wanted to do Longstreet's uh, job for him, Uh, but if Lee wanted Longstreet to do it, uh, Lee should go to the rear. He finally did. Longstreet put together a flanking attack later on May 6th uh, that achieved great results against Hancock, drove much of Hancock's corps back uh, well to the eastward, and over at the opposite end of the Confederate line, another flank attack managed to get on Grant's right flank. Uh, Grant had the really dubious distinction of having both his right and left flanks turned on May the 6th in the wilderness. I don't think there's another example of that happening to an army on either side during the war. Now, neither Confederate attack proved to be decisive, uh, but it showed, I think, a certain sloppiness or overconfidence on Grant's part that he allowed this to happen. 
Second day ended in a bloody standoff. Uh, the scene that night was horrible. The woods had caught fire in several places. Uh, the pitiful cries of the wounded soldiers uh, made their way toward both lines. These men would try to crawl away from the encroaching flames. The wounded men would. Uh, many of them couldn't make it. And many soldiers on both sides commented about how uh, tortured they were sitting in their lines listening to comrades being burned up by fires uh, that simply engulfed them. The same thing had, done, uh, had happened to a lesser extent during the Battle of Chancellorsville uh, the year before. Losses had been heavy on both sides, very heavy. 17,500 for Grant, probably 12,000 for Lee. Uh, casualties almost exactly the same uh, size on both, uh, in both instances as during the Battle of Chancellorsville the year before. Most seriously, on the Confederate side, James Longstreet was severely wounded, shot in the throat uh, as he tried to get his lines untangled uh, following the flank attack, it, it was circumstances very much reminiscent of the way in which Stonewall Jackson had been shot. Uh, Longstreet was saw, shot by his own troops, some Virginians, just as Jackson had been shot by some of his own troops. Longstreet was shot while he was trying to maintain the momentum of a flank attack as Jackson had been shot the year before. The difference was that Jackson died shortly thereafter. Uh, Longstreet did not. But Longstreet's wounding was a great blow to Lee and the Army in Northern Virginia. I haven't talked much about Longstreet in this course, but it's probably worth a, a minute or two right now. Uh, he was always Lee's senior subordinate. He always ranked Stonewall Jackson. He always commanded at least half of the infantry in the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, he'd been a West Pointer, had done well in Mexico, had been in the old Army uh, throughout the 1850s, and then literally had served from Manassas to Appomattox during the conflict. He did extremely well during the seven days, uh, during 2nd Manassas at Antietam. At Antietam, Lee worried that Longstreet hadn't been safe. At the end of the day, when Longstreet uh, came into Lee's sight, Lee walked over to him and in a very rare display of emotion for Lee, uh, reached out toward him and said, here is Longstreet, here is my old war horse uh, from the field he has done so much to save. Uh, that was very uncharacteristic of Lee to show that kind of... Uh, emotion toward a subordinate. Uh, Longstreet's one of only two officers uh, that Lee gave affectionate nicknames to during the war, uh, the other being Jubal Early. At Gettysburg, Longstreet hadn't done well. Uh, in East Tennessee, he'd done even less well in independent command, but he and his troops had come back to the Army in Northern Virginia in April of 1864, where they had had a memorable reunion with Lee. The, the troops drawn up in long lines to be reviewed. Uh, Lee rode out saw Longstreet. The two uh, had a very, again, emotional meeting there. Uh, the troops broke out into an incredible, spontaneous demonstration of how deeply they cared for Lee. Uh, Longstreet took his hat off and acknowledged the cheers. Lee touched the brim of his hat, and one of the artillerists there uh, likened this exchange between Lee and his men to a military sacrament. Uh, where the soldiers under Longstreet pledged anew, as this man said, their faith to Lee. The point is that Lee was delighted to have Longstreet back. He was his strongest uh, lieutenant. Uh, Lee leaned on him very much, and now he's gone on May the 6th. Longstreet would be gone from the Army for months. So it's a terrible blow to, use Longstreet, to lose Longstreet. The tactical advantage probably went by a small margin to Lee, but... The key thing here is that Grant refused to see this as a defeat at the wilderness or even a major setback. 
Hooker had retreated after Chancellorsville. Grant figured that he had pinned Lee down, had inflicted many casualties on him, and now I'll move forward. Uh, remember, that's still up in the air whether Benjamin Butler's going to capture Richmond from the south at this point. It's only May the 6th, and Butler is still a possibility as far as Grant is concerned. Grant decided to slide around Lee's right flank again and march south towards Spotsylvania Courthouse, the next obvious place on the map. And let's move now to the Battle of Spotsylvania. Lee figured out what Grant was doing, and both armies marched towards Spotsylvania beginning on May 7th. Grant had the more direct route. There's a great moment in the history of the Army of the Potomac when the soldiers reached a crossroads, literally reached a crossroads. If they'd gone one direction, they knew they would be retreating back to the Rappahannock. If they went the other way, they knew that Grant meant to continue the campaign. When they turned to the right, they cheered Grant, who was at that crossroads watching them. They wanted the chance to defeat Lee, and this was one of their great uh, defining moments. They would move ahead and engage Lee again. Now, the two armies moved towards Spotsylvania in what was often called a race later on, but it wasn't really a race. No one at the time considered it a race. But the Confederates got there just ahead of the Federals, literally five minutes ahead of them. Uh, Sheridan and the Union Cavalry did not operate very well on this movement to Spotsylvania. Uh, the Confederate Cavalry, in contrast, did well. Uh, they got to the crossroads a little before the enemy. They set up some uh, light breastworks. They fought, dismounted, the Confederate cavalry did. Uh, they helped hold on until the 1st Confederate infantry arrived. Clashes on May 8th proved inconclusive, and then the armies poured into this position and lengthened their lines and began to dig in. On the 9th, both sides continued to entrench. The biggest uh, piece of news that day was the loss of John Sedgwick, the Corps commander of the Union Sixth Corps, uh, waving off some officers who seemed to be worried about fire coming from their right front. Uh, Sedgwick said something like they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance, and within a beat or two of saying that, a uh, Confederate miniball hit him in the forehead and killed him. Uh, that was the end of John Sedgwick. Lee's line had a weakness. In the middle, there was a big salient that bulged out toward the Federals. The Confederates thought, however, that it could be defended if there were enough artillery placed in it. Uh, on the 10th, the Federals punched a quick hole in the western face of that salient, which Lee's troops sealed. A young officer named Emory Upton conceived and led that assault for the Federals. Grant decided that if 3,000 men could punch through on the 10th, he'd try it with far more men. On the 11th, troops moved into position, and on the morning of May 12th, it been raining the day before, drizzling through the night, Winfield Scott Hancock sent the better part of 20,000 Federals against the northern, the northwestern portion, really, of this mule-shoe salient that the Confederates occupied. They overran the Confederates. Uh, Confederate artillery had been ordered out and then belatedly ordered back into the mule-shoe. It wasn't there to participate in the uh, attempt to drive back Hancock's troops. Much of the Confederate powder got damp that night, so there wasn't a solid volley to greet the Federals as they came. The upshot was they overran the nose of the mule shoe. It took an enormous effort on the part of the Confederates to seal the break. Lee again rode into the midst of the fighting. Another lead of the rear incident. And only by the most uh, tenacious fighting did the Confederates manage to stabilize this line along the northwestern face of the mule shoe 
and then for the better part of 20 hours, uh, the most fearsome close combat of the entire war took place along this little piece of works at Spotsylvania Courthouse on May 12, 1864. Uh, men stabbed each other across log ent- entrenchments. They clubbed one another with muskets. Many of them talked about how a numbness set in. They'd fire and fire. Then they'd just wander off to the rear. Some of them said sitting on comrades' dead bodies, get a little bit of a rest and go back and resume the fighting. Uh, began to rain again. Uh, Layers of men were pushed down into the muck uh, behind the breastworks after the battle uh, when the people came to bury bodies. They found in some places four or even five layers of dead men pushed into this mire uh, behind the works. The volume of fire was so great that a grove of trees was literally shot to pieces behind this uh, little arc of the Confederate works. A 22-inch oak tree was uh, felled completely by musketry. You can see the stump of it at the Smithsonian uh, even today. In the end, Lee was able to hang on long enough to construct a new line of works south of the mule shoe, and his uh, hollow-eyed veterans stumbled back to that line uh, long after midnight on May 12th. All told, the fighting would continue at Spotsylvania uh, for several more days. There would be more Union assaults on the 18th, a Confederate counterattack on the 19th, and then the armies would finally march away. Another 18,000 casualties for Grant, another 12,000 for Lee. Staggering losses, two huge battles, one right after the other, uh, with enormous losses both in officers and men. Uh, The manpower-starved Confederates certainly could not continue uh, to incur these kinds of casualties. And the bad news wasn't just what happened in terms of casualties at Spotsylvania, because on May 12th, while that vicious fighting at the mule shoe and bloody angle uh, was taking place, Jeb Stuart was killed in a cavalry battle at Yellow Tavern outside Richmond. Uh, Philip Sheridan had mounted a raid against Richmond. Stuart had gotten in front of the Federals in the Confederate capital. He was mortally wounded in fighting outside Richmond. So more bad news for the Confederate high command. On May 20th, Grant issued orders to continue his movement southward. He's still not going to be put off by the second of these massive battles. Continue the pressure, continue the movement southward, he said. And on the 20th and 21st, the armies marched away from the hideous battlefields at Spotsylvania. So it was a new kind of war. Continuous action, continuous fighting, not a big battle, then a period of refitting and remaneuvering, and then another battle, but a battle, a very brief period of maneuvering, and then another battle. A greatly changed officer corps on each side, many casualties, Uh, As Grant moved south now, he knew that Butler and Siegel had failed. He knew the burden was more on him than ever. And next time we will follow the next chapter in the saga of his confrontation with Lee during the Overland Campaign. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by The Teaching Company. These lectures are titled, The American Civil War, Part 4. Lecture 37, Cold Harbor to Petersburg. In our last lecture, we left the Army in Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac 
uh, in the aftermath of their contest at Spotsylvania. Now we'll pick up the Overland campaign uh, as Ulysses S. Grant continued to press southward toward Richmond. We'll examine the maneuvering and action along the North Anna River in late May 1864, North Anna, just south of Spotsylvania. We'll then discuss the Battle of Cold Harbor. We'll analyze Grant's decision to disengage from the Confederates at Cold Harbor, cross the James River, and come up against Petersburg, south of Richmond. And finally, we'll assess the reasons for the Union failure to uh, to capture Petersburg in mid-July 1864, one of the great opportunities of the war, uh, which the Army of the Potomac fumbled. We'll start with a movement to the North Anna Line. Uh, Before uh, following the Army southward from Spotsylvania to the North Anna, I want to spend just a little bit of time on the condition of the respective forces uh, that will set the stage for what we do later. By late May 1864, the soldiers in both of the armies, the vast majority of them, were exhausted. They'd been marching, skirmishing, and engaging in heavy fighting almost continuously since May the 4th when the Army of the Potomac crossed the Rapidan River and headed into the wilderness of Spotsylvania. This was very unusual in terms of Civil War campaigning because the pattern typically had been for the armies to prepare through the winter for a spring campaign, to begin their campaigning in the spring, a campaign that would result in a battle, often a big battle, but after that battle the armies usually withdrew uh, to refit, uh, to gather themselves, uh, to give their officers a chance to plan their next strategic moves. Then the armies would begin to move again and there'd be another battle, perhaps in the summer or even in the fall. But here, with Grant and Lee in the Overland campaign, once the armies became engaged on May 5th, on the first day of the Battle of the Wilderness, they were engaged pretty much continuously from then until here late in the month as they head toward the North Anna. The losses had been appalling. 36,000 Union casualties to this stage of the campaign. 36,000. 24,000 Confederate casualties to this stage in the campaign. Now, both armies were getting replacements, but these replacements in no way uh, met the same standard for proficiency of the veterans who had been knocked out of the ranks at the Wilderness and at Spotsylvania. So the overall quality of the armies is diminishing as we move into May. Not only are we losing the number of men, but also the ranks of the leaders are being decimated on both sides, including uh, the top echelon uh, of the subordinates in each army. The corps commanders on the Confederate side, we saw in the wilderness that James Longstreet was wounded grievously in the throat. He was out for the indefinite future. Jeb Stewart killed or mortally wounded at the Battle of Yellow Tavern. Two of of Lee's key subordinates thus gone. But it was worse than that because Richard Ewell, the commander of the Second Corps, had failed in Lee's estimation and Lee would ease him out of the army before the end of May. Uh, That left only A.P. Hill and A.P. Hill also had not been uh, putting in the kind of work that Lee expected from a Corps commander. Hill often was ill at, at crucial moments and Lee didn't feel that he could really rely on him. So really the whole Corps level echelon of subordinates in the Army of Northern Virginia was dead, wounded, or not performing up to Lee's standard. Uh, Richard H. Anderson would replace James Longstreet in command of the First Corps. Uh, Jubal Early would take command of the Second Corps. Neither of them had proved himself as a Corps commander. On the Union side, there were also grievous losses among division commanders, brigade commanders, and at the Corps level, uh, John Sedgwick had been killed on May 9th, as we saw. Beyond that, Governor Warren had 
proved to be a bitter disappointment to both Meade and Grant, especially in the Battle of Spotsylvania. So he is, is not a great uh, uh, strength for them to rely on. Winfield Scott Hancock had done well. He's the strongest of the Union Corps commanders. Philip Sheridan had not done well uh, as commander of the cavalry in the early stages of the campaign. In fact, he and Meade had had what amounted to a shouting match uh, with each other. Uh, Grant had intervened on the side of his friend Sheridan, but there's bad blood between Meade and Sheridan, and Sheridan had not demonstrated great skill as the commander of the cavalry corps in the Army of the Potomac. Uh, Horatio Wright had been moved up to head the 6th Corps after Sedgwick had been killed, uh, he's a good soldier, but he's not a spectacularly good soldier. So there are tremendous problems of command in both armies uh, that go along uh, with the tremendous attrition in the ranks. While at Spotsylvania, Grant learned that Benjamin Butler had failed in his effort to come against Richmond from the south. He'd learned that Siegel had failed as well in the Shenandoah Valley. What Grant determined to do then was to try to place his army between Lee and Richmond, he would replicate yet again the move he had first used after the wilderness, that is trying to get around Lee's right flank. Uh, that's his intention, to get beyond Lee and perhaps get the closer track toward Richmond. But Lee once again anticipated what Grant was going to do and took up a position behind the North Anna River, uh, not many miles south of the Spotsylvania battlefield. He secured by taking up that position the crucial rail junction uh, at Hanover, Hanover Junction, where the Virginia Central Railroad came in uh, near Richmond, just north of Richmond. This was a vital link uh, that Lee's army had used uh, for logistical support for much of the war. One of the most important spots in Virginia, in fact, for much of the war is Hanover Junction. The Confederate line was in the form of a big inverted V with the apex resting nearly on the North Anna River, and then the flanks falling back to the southeast and the southwest. Confederates erected very strong entrenchments there. Grant moved up opposite Lee, and over the period between May 23rd and May 25th, managed to place the Army of the Potomac in a very awkward position. Uh, he had different parts of the Army of the Potomac south of the river, and north of the river. In fact, he had a situation where his right flank, troops from his right flank, in order to reinforce his left, for example, would have to cross the North Anna River, march behind the center of Grant's army, and cross the North Anna River again to support Union troops uh, on Grant's left. That's a terrible position, and one that made both ends of Grant's line vulnerable. A not very good generalship on Grant's part, but the Confederates did not prove able to take advantage of it, because for the one time in the war, Robert E. Lee was incapacitated by illness. You often read uh, that he was ill at Gettysburg, heart problems at Gettysburg that, that might have affected his generalship. Uh, there's only one time in the war when we can be certain that, we're, that Lee's health played a major role on a battlefield, and that is at the North Anna in late May 1864. Lee knew that Grant was vulnerable, but he was literally confined to his cot uh, for key periods, could not get up and command the army, and the fact that his subordinates were not trustworthy in his view, Hill and Ewell, or were unknown quantities, Anderson, meant that Lee was not willing to entrust a major tactical offensive to any of them. If Jackson had been there, 
He would have given it to Jackson if Longstreet had been there. He would have allowed Longstreet to do it. But the fact was, he didn't have anyone on whom he could rely. And this great potential opportunity for the Army in Northern Virginia passed uh, in late May. Uh, Grant eventually disengaged uh, and moved on southward once again. By the end of May, the two armies found themselves opposite each other uh, on the old Seven Days Battlefield or very near the old Seven Days Battlefield of Gaines's Mill. They were literally occupying part of the same ground uh, that they had occupied uh, just about exactly two years before. They're just a few miles outside Richmond, in other words. There was a brief moment of opportunity for Grant at the very end of May as the armies uh, moved into position near Cold Harbor, but uh, nothing really came of it, and pretty soon both armies began to dig in, as they always did at this stage of the war. They were digging in in Georgia. They're digging in in Virginia uh, whenever they stop. Confederate line ended up being just about six miles long. One flank anchored on the Chickahominy River, and the other flank anchored on Totopotomoy Creek, a very strong position. Water on each side, strong entrenchments in between, uh, ample artillery supporting the Confederate infantry. Grant examined his tactical options here, and he took into account a number of factors away from this immediate battlefield, and he reached the conclusion that he should launch major frontal assaults against the Army of Northern Virginia at Cold Harbor. Now, the question is, why should he do this? It's been a question that many people have asked because, as we'll see in a minute, the assaults were a disaster. Costly, and they accomplished nothing. So the question, always with the, the wonderful uh, uh, view of hindsight, has been why would Grant do something so stupid uh, as to assault these Confederates in a strong position? Well, I think several factors helped persuade him that this was the course to take. Uh, first of all, after Siegel had failed in the Shenandoah Valley, Franz Siegel, after Newmarket, Grant had ordered a new general, David Hunter, to take four divisions, move into the valley, and apply the strategy of exhaustion to the valley. Uh, gut the valley, in other words. Take it off the Confederate logistical board uh, to the greatest degree possible. And also, while he was there, uh, said Grant, Hunter should try to disrupt the rail connections between the valley and the eastern parts of Virginia. Meanwhile, Philip Sheridan would take the Cavalry Corps of the Army of the Potomac, and try to tear up railroads between Richmond and the Valley and between Richmond and Lynchburg. Uh, Grant is trying to seal Lee off, in a, in a sense, by cutting his rail connections uh, to other parts of Virginia and to point south. Now, Grant wanted Hunter and Sheridan to be able to operate without worrying about troops dispatched from Lee's army to deal with what they were doing. So Grant hoped that a major effort at Cold Harbor would keep Lee's attention focused on him and prevent the deployment of troops from the Army of Northern Virginia elsewhere. So that's one factor. Another factor, I think, is that Grant was experiencing frustration. I think that he and Meade as well had expected to do better against Lee than they had done, expected to find an opening uh, really to smash Lee. They had not been able to do that. Lee had anticipated again and again what Grant was going to do, and I think here Grant decided that he would apply brute strength and try to overcome uh, the Army in Northern Virginia. Lee was in much that same frame of mind, if you'll recall, uh, at the Battle of Malvern Hill. 
back in July of 1862. I think some of that was at work with Lee at Gettysburg. And it's much like Sherman's attitude, I think, before Kennesaw Mountain. He was frustrated with Joseph Johnston, and so he tried a head-on approach. I think Grant also believed, however, that his troops could break through at Cold Harbor. He'd seen Union soldiers do it at Chattanooga. He had seen Union soldiers do it on May 12th in the Battle of Spotsylvania when they smashed through uh, the northern arc of the Mule Shoe Salient. Uh, Grant wrote to Halleck just before Cold Harbor, uh, and I'll quote him. He said, Lee's army is really whipped. The prisoners we now take show it, and the action of his army shows it unmistakably. Our men attack with confidence. I think that Grant thought the army in northern Virginia was so weakened by the hammering of the previous month uh, that it was vulnerable. And I think a final factor was that Grant, who was well attuned uh, to the civilian front, well attuned to civilian expectations in this kind of war, knew that the northern people were becoming more and more anxious about the absence of clear news of a of an absolutely unequivocal victory uh, from the front. Uh, the northern people really wanted that kind of news, so politics enters into this as well, I think, and questions of national morale. Anyway, Grant decides he'll make these assaults, and the word goes out to the Army of the Potomac. Uh, when the men heard about this, many of them believed that they would not have a very good chance to survive. Whatever Grant thought about their willingness to attack entrenched Confederates, they had had their belly full of that, at the wilderness in Spotsylvania, many of them. They knew how difficult that was to carry entrenched positions. One of Grant's staff officers rode among the soldiers uh, at Cold Harbor, and he said he found them calmly writing their names and addresses on pieces of paper and pinning those pieces of paper to the backs of their blouses. Uh, there, there were no dog tags during the Civil War, uh, so you couldn't use that method to identify uh, bodies. The men were hoping that if they were killed, these little pieces of paper would allow someone to identify their bodies. Many men, of course, were never identified during the Civil War. Untold thousands uh, lie in graves marked unknown in national cemeteries. Well, that grisly exercise of putting their names on their backs was not in vain. Heavy skirmishing took place on June 1st and 2nd along the lines at Cold Harbor. The big assaults came on June 3rd. June 3rd, 1864, when Grant hurled about 50,000 Union soldiers against three miles of breastworks held by about 30,000 Confederate defenders. Two years earlier, Lee had hurled 50,000 Confederates against Fitzjohn Porter's defending Union forces on almost exactly this same ground. In fact, part of the Union assaults at Cold Harbor on June 3rd covered precisely the ground uh, that some of the Confederates attack, uh, had attacked across in 1862. It was a very hot day. On June 3rd, the soldiers talked about how as they moved into position, uh, the dust, they kicked up an enormous amount of dust, and they were moving through dust, uh, choking on the dust as they went into position. The attacks uh, went nowhere. The attackers were decimated in most sectors of the battlefield before they got anywhere near the Confederate line. A few Federals got to the Confederate line. Most did not. The Confederates were well dug in. As I said, they had ample artillery. The Federals never even really saw their enemies in many instances. All they could see was an enormous amount of smoke ahead of them, and out of that smoke coming uh, the flashes of musketry and cannon fire. One Union officer remembered the musketry fire as one continual crash of thunder, as he called it, 
and a federal soldier recalled later that as he ran forward, every member of his unit dropped to the ground. He said he looked around, he thought that he hadn't heard a command uh, to hit the ground, uh, but then he looked a little more closely and he saw that all of the others had been hit uh, by a single Confederate volley. He was the only one in his immediate vicinity who'd not been killed or wounded. A Confederate soldier later told uh, a federal, uh, a federal who was working with a burial party, that, quote, it seemed almost like murder for us to fire upon you. But, of course, fire upon the Federals, the Confederates did. Most of the attacks lasted fewer than 30 minutes, and in the space of a relatively brief time, 7,500 Federals were shot down. Added to 5,000 casualties Grant had suffered the preceding two days on June 1st and 2nd, this is another 12,500 casualties at Cold Harbor. Confederate losses probably about 1,500. Once again, the futility of attacking breastworks was shown very clearly. Grant later admitted in his usual forthright way uh, that the thing he most regretted of the entire war was the final set of attacks at Cold Harbor. The northern public was becoming quite disenchanted with Grant. It's interesting, there's no equivalent disenchantment with Lee on the part of the Confederate public. It really is an interesting phenomenon because Lee's army was uh, losing proportionately just as many men as Grant's. But in the North, many people were beginning to question Grant. All they saw in Virginia was this series of very bloody encounters, none of which seemed to really have a clear winner or loser. The huge battle in the wilderness, well, who really won? It's hard to tell. Huge battle at Spotsylvania, who won? Hard to tell. Now at Cold Harbor, another big battle, and here you could tell who won, and it wasn't Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, Many of the newspapers uh, began to question this persistent attacking strategy of Grant's, especially the Democratic newspapers in the North. Here's the genesis of the Grant the Butcher image that is so prevalent in so much of the literature, Uh, the image of Grant that overlooks uh, the brilliant maneuver and relatively light casualties of the Vicksburg campaign, for example, and focuses instead on these heavy blows that he's delivering, very costly blows against the Army of Northern Virginia in 1864. The fact that Lee was pinned down and that the Army of Northern Virginia was also suffering horrible losses did not really make an impression on many people in the North. All they could see was no real victory, and they could read about these losses, these escalating losses beyond anything they'd been prepared for, even by the big battles earlier in the war. Uh, Lee seemed to be doing quite well. He was proving himself as adept at defensive uh, maneuvering and fighting as he had long since proved to be at offensive maneuvering and fighting. But Lee knew that Grant was slowly accomplishing what the Federals needed to accomplish, that is, pushing Lee back toward Richmond, circumscribing uh, the area in which Lee could maneuver. At the time of Cold Harbor, Lee had a talk with Jubal Early and said that if Grant managed to push the Army of Northern Virginia across the James River, that would result in a siege, and a siege would result in the loss of the Army. Lee is not confused about what's going on, and he, as we'll see in later lectures, desperately looks for a way uh, to try to reorient the strategic situation uh, in Virginia. After Cold Harbor, Grant explained his planning in this way. This is how Grant described what he was doing. He said, my idea from the start has been to beat Lee's army, if possible, north of Richmond. Then, after destroying his lines of communication north of the James River, 
to transfer the army to the south side of the James and besiege Lee in Richmond or follow him south if he should retreat. Well, he hadn't beaten Lee decisively in the field. We've seen that. And we've also seen that Butler failed, moving against Richmond from the south. He's still stuck down in between the Appomattox and James River. Butler has just been sitting there uh, at Bermuda 100, as that little piece of ground is called, uh, not being much use to anybody. Grant decided that in light of his failure north of the river and in light of Butler's failure, that it was time to cross the James River, get the bulk of the Army of the Potomac to the south side of the James River and approach Richmond from the south. That is via Petersburg, which is the key city immediately south of Richmond, 25 miles below the Confederate capital. It's a rail junction and a water key to the Confederate capital. Both waterborne and railborne supplies headed for Richmond go through Petersburg. In order to do this, Grant would execute another one of his turning movements around Lee's flank, this time a very long one that would bring him in uh, well behind Lee's right flank. This isn't one uh, similar to what he's been doing down from the wilderness to Cold Harbor. He's going to disengage completely from the Army of Northern Virginia here and try to get away from him entirely and come in from the other direction. On June 12, 1864, Grant began what turned out to be a brilliantly successful move around the Confederate right flank. It's one of the great uh, movements of the war. He fooled Lee completely, left a few troops behind to hold Lee's attention, and then shifted his immense army southward. The Union engineers uh, constructed uh, one of the most impressive pontoon uh, bridges of the entire war across the James River, a feat of engineering that left uh, officers on both sides in awe, really. They did it quickly. It was just a spectacular movement on the part of the Army of the Potomac. And on June 15th, a large federal corps was just outside Petersburg with another one not far behind. This is the 18th Corps and the 2nd Corps, Winfield Scott Hancock's 2nd Corps. These two Union Corps approaching Petersburg. Lee thought Grant was making another small turning movement, such as he had executed after the wilderness in Spotsylvania and on the road to Cold Harbor, and he kept his entire army north of the James. Gustav Tutom Beauregard was down at Petersburg, meanwhile, with just a few thousand Confederate defenders in the works. And he began to send messages to Lee. There are a lot of Federals in my front. Uh, there are a huge number of Federals in my front. Please send reinforcements. We're having a crisis here. Please reinforce me. Uh, this traffic is going, these messages north to Lee from Beauregard. Lee thought Beauregard uh, was confused. Uh, he wasn't, of course. But the federal commanders on the scene couldn't seem to orchestrate an effective set of assaults to carry these lightly manned works at Petersburg. Both the commanders were veterans, William F. Smith, Baldy Smith uh, on the one hand, and Winfield Scott Hancock on the other. As a rule, they were quite capable officers, and Hancock better than just capable. He had moments of, of, of great success during the war. But these two men, who had about a nine-to-one advantage over Beauregard, in the early stage of the action at Petersburg, failed to push into the city. They mounted ineffective assaults on June 15th through the 18th. Lee finally realized what was going on and rushed troops from the Army of Northern Virginia southward to Petersburg. By the end of the day on the 18th, the opportunity for a major federal victory had passed. Uh, the Federals had lost another 11,000 men. Confederates about half as many, and each side was now busy constructing what would become uh, the most intricate 
and impressive set of trenches uh, put together during the war, a system that anticipated what would be done on the Western Front in Europe during World War I on a much, uh, much uh, vaster scale uh, in World War I. Well, why had these assaults failed, these federal assaults? I think several factors. First, poor communication and coordination on the Union side. More important than that was a reluctance on the part of federal soldiers to attack well-entrenched Confederate defenders. Many of their officers were reluctant as well. Cold Harbor was still fresh in their memory. Whatever Grant had thought about the willingness of his men to make these kinds of attacks uh, when he wrote to Halleck just before Cold Harbor, by this stage of the war, Union veterans had had enough of these kinds of attacks. Uh, There was one point on June 18 when a veteran unit refused to make an attack and yelled out to a Green Regiment that was forming to make an assault. The Green Regiment is getting ready to go in. The veterans hollered out, lie down, you damn fools. You can't take them works. Uh, Don't do this. The big regiment went in. It was a huge regiment, one of a number of of regiments that had been heavy artillery units uh, manning the fortifications around Washington. As Grant needed troops during the Overland Campaign, these heavy artillery units were converted into infantry units and sent to the Army. One after another of these big green units was chewed up in the Overland Campaign. This one that made the attack on the 18th lost 632 men out of 850 who made the assault. The truth was, the Army of the Potomac had been bled almost to death since May 5th. Lee and Grant had opposed each other for just about a month now, and Grant's casualties were averaging more than 2,000 a day. Lee averaging 1,000 a day. Put another way, the armies were averaging a battle of First Manassas every day for 30 days. That's the degree to which the war has changed since July of 1861. The Battle of Manassas was a huge event uh, when it occurred in July of 61. These armies are averaging one battle like that every day. It was a terrible butcher's bill for both sides and absolutely unprecedented in the war, even in a war with Shiloh and Chickamauga. In the seven days, there was nothing to prepare either side for this. A General Warren, commander of the Union Fifth Corps, wrote bitterly, For 30 days, it has been one funeral procession past me, and it has been too much. As I said before, there's no respite of the kind that you used to have in between battles. None of those periods for maneuver or refitting. Uh, The campaign of 1864 was sustained fighting on a grand scale, and it had taken an enormous toll. Grant's Corps of veteran troops had been expended in the hard fighting, and the replacements simply weren't up to the original standard. There had been more than 64,000 northern casualties. That's about how many men Lee started the campaign with. But beyond that, another 18,000 Union troops left the Army because their three-year enlistments ran out right at this time. They'd enlisted for three years back in the early days of the war, and now they got out of the Army. This left Grant and Meade with a largely untested Army of the Potomac. Uh, Not only the raw number of men gone, but the loss of veteran officers was crucial as well. That component of leadership, all the way from the company level to the corps level, uh, had taken a great toll. Now, Lee had suffered 30,000 casualties, every bit as onerous as the federal casualties because he was working with such a smaller uh, pool of manpower. It was a little bit less of a problem for Lee because, for the most part, he was on the defensive and was behind works. But nonetheless, horrible attrition in his 
army as well, among officers and among men. Neither one of the armies. You often read that Grant's army wasn't the same uh, after this Overland campaign, but neither was the army in Northern Virginia. The Overland campaign, to a significant extent, destroyed the old army of Northern Virginia and the old army of the Potomac. Grant's strategy of attacking Lee and trying to defeat him in the field had been in part dictated, as we saw earlier, by northern desires for real victories. They thought, finally, our man Grant is going to go down there and he's going to whip Lee. Finally, we have a man who will do that. But the result of this campaign had, in fact, been a lowering of northern morale. It's the endless bad news made its way north from Virginia. Grant hadn't done what the people expected, and because expectations had been so high, the northern people had been in for a tremendous letdown. And when you add to that letdown in Virginia, the fact that Sherman had not captured Atlanta yet, when you add to that the fiasco of the Red River campaign, of Butler's ridiculous position uh, between the James and Appomattox rivers, uh, Siegel's defeat in the valley, when you add all of those things together, you had a potent mixture that sent northern civilian morale plummeting to its lowest point of the entire war in July and into August 1864. A siege at Petersburg would necessarily be long, even if it was almost certain to succeed, and Atlanta might hold out for a long time as well. Never before in the war had things looked so dark for the Union, uh, in the, from the point of view of many people behind the lines in the North, not even during the depressing winter of 1862-63. Many people in the North, including many who fervently wanted to fight through to victory, many of those people even believed that it might not be possible to suppress the rebellion. Perhaps the rebels are going to win, many people in the North thought. Well, we'll leave the military arena now with Grant and Lee digging in at Petersburg and with Sherman and John Bell Hood doing the same in Atlanta. Our attention now will shift to the home fronts and we'll begin with an evaluation of what was going on behind the lines in the Confederacy. Lecture 38, The Confederate Home Front, Part 1. We spent a good deal of time looking at military operations in the eastern and western theaters uh, in the spring and early summer of 1864. With this lecture, we're going to shift to the Confederate home front. And our first series of topics on the scene behind the lines in the Confederacy will be Confederate politics, Jefferson Davis and his policies, and the troubled performance of the Confederate economy. The war brought a great deal of change to both northern and southern society. That goes without saying, and we've talked about many of the changes that it brought, and we'll talk more uh, in future lectures. But it's important to remember that it brought more change to society in the Confederacy because that is where the war was taking place. The changes were more dramatic. They were more unsettling in the Confederacy than they typically were in the North. As the Confederate people struggled to keep their armies in the field, uh, they struggled with their economic and, and political structures, which began to crack and threaten to come apart 
as the war went on. Efforts to provide food and clothing and other necessities of life and to keep their homes safe uh, proved very difficult and in many cases impossible for Confederates. Thousands of Southern families became refugees as federal military forces occupied increasingly large stretches of the Confederacy's territory. And we'll get to all of those aspects of life behind the lines in this lecture and our next uh, lecture, but we'll start <clears throat> with Confederate politics. And we'll start by looking at how Confederates tried to set up a republic that didn't have what we would think of as a traditional party system. Many Confederates went into their new nation hoping to avoid partisan party politics. They believed that parties had been an unfortunate departure uh, from the intention of the selfless generation of founders in this nation. They thought the founders had hoped that, that people would take a public-spirited view of how to move the republic forward and not get involved in selfish, self-interested matters of party. Uh, that had been the path that the United States uh, began down, uh, thought these founders of the Confederacy, but we had gone astray. As in many other respects, the Confederates saw themselves as the true inheritors of the revolution in their belief that parties, on balance, were an evil, an evil that undermined uh, the republic rather than enhanced it. As the war progressed, there would be debates about how powerful the central government should be, whether it should have these powers or the state should have these powers. Tremendous debates uh, over that kind of question. But there never was a serious effort in the Confederacy to set up a party system. Uh, so we will be looking at the interesting phenomenon of this democratic society operating without uh, one of the key trappings of the larger uh, democratic society in the United States. In the early days of the war, there was an appearance of near unanimity among Southern politicians. Although there had been a great deal of debate over secession in most of the states, as we've seen, once Sumter had been fired upon, there was a rallying to the Confederate cause. And this gave the appearance of almost total agreement on goals and policy. It was an appearance only, however, and it masked the fact that there were significant differences among different politicians in the Confederacy, and that all of the southern states had strong histories of partisan political debate. Uh, almost all of them had had a quite vigorous Whig party, or at least a Whig party that was able to mount some kind of an opposition to the Democratic Party in the late antebellum years. And even further back, uh, a number of the southern states had had vigorous Federalist parties uh, that opposed the Jeffersonian Republicans of the early years of the Republic. Furthermore, several parts of the South remained overwhelmingly unimous, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, unionist in sentiment during the secession crisis. We've talked about that too. Eastern Tennessee, uh, Central Texas, Western Virginia, uh, many of the mountainous upcountry regions harbored a lot of unionist sentiment. Uh, in the first flush of war, those unionists sort of went underground or at least held their tongues. They didn't uh, obviously make known their opposition to what the Confederacy was doing, but as the war unfolded, many of these unionists became more outspoken critics of what was going on in the Confederacy. They especially became critical when the war started to go badly uh, for the central government and the Confederacy. Political leaders of real vision and strength did not ever come forward in large numbers in the Confederacy. They didn't come forward and deal effectively with many of the huge problems facing an undermanned uh, confederacy with far fewer resources 
than their opponent. This absence of top quality political leadership was striking to many people at the time, and it has been striking to historians since, especially when you contrast it with the amount of really brilliant political leadership that you can find in the late 18th century and early 19th century in the South, uh, with Jefferson and Madison and Washington and Monroe and John C. Calhoun and Henry Clay and Andrew Jackson. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of very prominent Southern politicians in our history leading down to the Civil War. You don't have a great outpouring of political talent during the Confederacy. Let's look at how the war began to expose strains in the Confederate political system now. Part of the problem was that the Confederate Congress was a mediocre body by any standard. Uh, Many Congresses in U.S. history have been mediocre as well, but the Confederate Congress was very mediocre, was reluctant to make hard decisions. Again, many Congresses are reluctant to make hard decisions. It often responded uh, to, to very large problems with measures that came too late and only went part way toward solving the problem. They were very reluctant to pass significant tax legislation, for example. The Congress spent tremendous amounts of time on procedural questions, listened to orations of interminable length and minimal substance, and witnessed an enormous amount of internal bickering on the floor of the houses. Both houses met in secret in the Confederacy, and neither of them published a record of deliberations. Uh, That led to public rumors and cynicism about just what the Congress was doing. What's going on behind those closed doors Uh, was a question frequently raised. There was very serious absenteeism in the Confederate Congress. Representatives from occupied areas often had a hard time making it to Richmond. Uh, So you would find yourself with uh, many empty seats in the Confederate Congress, even during important debates. The touchy sense of Southern honor and the tradition of Southern violence seemed to have full reign in the Confederate Congress. Debates often degenerated into meaningless quarreling, and fights were common. Uh, For example, in 1863, Senator Benjamin H. Hill of Georgia uh, used an inkwell to smash the face of William L. Lancey and cut him badly. William L. Yancey of Alabama, whom we've seen as a fire eater uh, earlier in the course. Congressman Henry Foote of Tennessee employed a variety of weapons in the House chamber. Uh, He was seen armed with a bowie knife, a revolver. He even used an umbrella once to attack a fellow member uh, of that august body. In September 1863, the journal clerk of the House murdered the chief clerk of the House uh, in Capitol Square. And aggravating this tawdry image was widespread public drunkenness on the part of members of Congress. Uh, Senator Louis T. Wigfall of Texas was among the worst offenders in this regard. He was often seen inebriated around Richmond. Uh, Pardon me, one South Carolinian wrote to Senator R.M.T. Hunter of Virginia, is the majority always drunk? The people are beginning to think so. So we don't have a really effective body to look at in the Confederate Congress. They admittedly faced tremendous obstacles to running this war, but they didn't do as well as they might have been expected to do. I think several factors contributed to their being ineffective. One is the tradition of obstructionism that had grown in the late antebellum years. Representatives and senators from the South were used to trying to prevent the North from doing something to them, to block legislation supported by the majority in the North. They'd been conditioned to think in those terms, those negative terms rather than positive terms. How can we stop the North rather than how can we advance 
our own agenda. And I think that uh, tendency carried over into the Confederacy. A number of able politicians also went into the army. A pair of Georgians uh, are prominent in this regard, Howell Cobb and Robert Toombs. Now, they were terrible soldiers, both of them, especially Howell Cobb. Uh, They would have done much better had they turned all of their talents uh, to the political end of things, I think, rather than the military end. Overall, only about a third of the members of the Confederate Congress had served in the U.S. Congress, were veterans in that sense. In comparison, more than half of the members of the United States Congress during the war had pre-war experience at that level. And finally, I think Congress uh, on the Confederate side was less effective than it might have been because in a war, power naturally gravitates toward the executive, and that certainly was the case here. Jefferson Davis had an enormous amount of power during the war, and a fairly weak Confederate Congress simply didn't play as vital a role in determining Confederate policy as it might have in other than wartime conditions. What about Jefferson Davis himself? He and his policies became the focus of intense and often vitriolic political debate in the Confederacy. He became a lightning rod for much of the animosity directed toward national policies, toward failures on the battlefield. The doubts and complaints and worries were often focused in Jefferson Davis's direction, as is natural with any chief executive. Davis was born in 1808 in Kentucky into a middle-class family. He was 52 years old at the time of secession. Moved to Mississippi as a boy. He attended Transylvania University in Kentucky and then went on to West Point. As we've seen before, he graduated from West Point. He was a fun-loving extrovert at the academy. He drank, uh, he caroused. After one particularly merry evening of drink and female companionship, he fell off uh, some of the little cliffs along the Hudson, uh, was very badly injured, ended up in the hospital, and was sentenced to dismissal from the academy uh, for drinking on one occasion, but his sentence was remitted. He resigned from the army in the 1830s, married the daughter of Zachary Taylor, but malaria almost immediately struck the new couple, and she died after less than three months of marriage. He suffered lingering effects uh, from this for the rest of his life, including near blindness in one eye. Davis grieved and immersed himself in agricultural pursuits. By 1840, he was a planter. He owned about 40 slaves. He would own more than that uh, as he went on through life. He raised a regiment during the Mexican War, led it with distinction, and then entered politics. He won election to the U.S. Senate from Mississippi, and he served as a senator during most of the late antebellum period, uh, with one four-year period off to be Secretary of War under President Franklin Pierce in the early 1850s. He was a good Secretary of War, quite innovative. Uh, He had a hand in, in the experiment with using camels in the American Southwest, which might have worked had the war not come. And he also changed the curriculum at West Point from a four-year to a five-year uh, curriculum. Very unpopular with the cadets, but he thought it would give a better education to these young men who were going to be prominent engineers and officers. He was without question, I think, uh, the most prominent slaveholding politician on the eve of the Civil War. And as we've said earlier, he was a natural choice to be president of this new republic. He had strengths and weaknesses. On the positive side, he was a meticulous thinker. He was intelligent, industrious, had a good grasp of military problems and options. 
We've talked about his strategic thinking before. At first, he favored what we might call a cordon defense, where you try to defend every square mile and keep all your constituents happy. But he later adopted what is called either the offensive-defensive or defensive-offensive strategy, where you stand broadly on the defensive but try to find places where a strategic uh, counterpunch would be successful. And I think that was the best strategy for the Confederacy to follow. Uh, Some modern writers, post-Vietnam writers, I should say, have argued that the Confederacy should have adopted a wide-scale guerrilla resistance from the beginning. I think that is a complete misreading of what was possible uh, at the time of the Civil War. A slave-holding society concerned about maintaining control over three and a half million slaves is not going to adopt a guerrilla strategy that invites your enemy's armies uh, into your heartland and risks chaos in the countryside. I think that Davis's strategy made as much sense as any. He was beyond question an honest man. Uh, he possessed ample personal courage, and he was clearly devoted to the Southern cause, to the Confederate cause, and worked extremely hard for it. But he also had a number of weaknesses. He was intensely loyal to friends, stuck with them in some cases far too long, and I think Braxton Bragg is a perfect example of that. Bragg was loyal to Davis, Davis was loyal to Bragg, even beyond the point when most of Bragg's subordinates and many other people believe Bragg should no longer be commander of the Army of Tennessee. We've, we've talked about that episode. Although Davis had great administrative experience as Secretary of War, he was not a good administrator. He immersed himself too much in the minutiae of administration. He didn't seem to be able to reconcile himself to the fact that some paper could be taken care of without his looking at it. He didn't have to touch every piece of paper, uh, but he often did. He was not able to delegate to let his uh, cabinet uh, have a free reign, or at least a freer reign. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was very good at that. Davis was not. He also tried, I think, too much to combine civilian and military leadership. I think a part of Davis would have much preferred to be a general, to be in the field leading troops, not behind a desk in Richmond, uh, putting up with all the headaches that a chief executive does. And because a part of him, I think, wanted to be a general, he never was willing to let go of part of that authority. He was never willing to Think of having a Ulysses S. Grant, for example, as general-in-chief with very wide latitude. He never was willing to give Lee that kind of wide latitude until very late in the war. The Confederate Congress and Confederate people, in effect, forced Davis to accept Lee as general-in-chief. But in a practical sense, Davis never did become reconciled to that. Uh, He tried to hold too much, I think, of both the civilian and the military power in his hands should have concentrated on the civilian side, and kept his interest, of course, in the military side, uh, but not quite the control that he wanted. His secretaries of war and generals simply didn't have the latitude that Lincoln gave to the men he trusted, to Secretary of War Stanton, to Ulysses S. Grant, and even to others before Grant. Davis was also very rigid. He was unbending, certain of his own opinions and policies, and quite insensitive to public opinion. Very different from Lincoln there. He could be humorous and warm in private, but appeared cold and aloof in public. He never was able, really, to speak to the Confederate people in a way that would rally them uh, the way that Lincoln could rally the Northern people. Now, Davis enjoyed a brief period of general support early in the war, when most Southerners thought it their patriotic duty to support the government. 
Organized political parties in the South had disappeared during the secession crisis, as I said earlier, and political figures agreed not to revive the Whig and Democratic Party organizations, and they never did during the war. It was evidence of this desire to to present a common front to the Yankees. But a problem with this was, historians argue about whether this was a problem or not, I believe it was, it denied opponents of Jefferson Davis an institutional form through which they could express their displeasure with Davis. The Democratic Party could fulminate against Lincoln. Democrats are the opposition party. That made sense. They had a role. There is no equivalent in the Confederacy, and Confederate politics became much more personal. Especially after military reverses in the West in early 1862, and after the central government showed evidence of becoming more and more powerful as the war went on. That alienated many people in the Confederacy. Conscription in 1862, the taxes that Congress finally did pass, impressment of supplies, uh, Davis's suspension of the writ of habeas corpus on more than one occasion, all of these things helped fuel what became an anti-administration faction. And that faction grew rapidly and became very bitter. Among its most vocal members was Vice President Alexander H. Stevens. He and Davis became totally estranged during the war. Stevens eventually left Richmond, just went home to Georgia, uh, and fulminated against Davis from there. Stevens wrote at one time that Davis is a weak and vacillating, timid, petulant, peevish, and obstinate man. A Mississippi politician said Davis was, quote, a miserable, stupid, one-eyed, dyspeptic, arrogant tyrant. And a prominent Georgian had his own list of adjectives for Davis. He said the president is a little, conceited, hypocritical, sniveling, canting, malicious, ambitious, dogged, knave, and fool. And I could go on pretty much endlessly with quotations like this from the people who did not like Davis. The crux of much of their opposition was that Davis and his administration were trampling on personal rights and state rights in the Confederacy. The the very things the South had gone to war to protect. The central government appeared to these people to be too powerful, even all-powerful, taxing the people, forcing them into the armies, denying them habeas corpus. Lincoln did more of that than Davis did. Impressing food and other needed supplies, in a broad sense, running roughshod on the Confederate people's rights and liberties. Opposition to Davis was strong in key states such as Georgia, where Governor Joseph E. Brown, Alexander Stevens, and Robert Toombs were among the leaders of the anti-Davis faction. There was also significant opposition in North Carolina, another key state uh, where Governor Zebulon Vance at times was a problem for Davis, although not as big a problem as many authors would have it. Brown and Vance are the two examples that uh, historians frequently have used to show that key Southern governors were against the Confederate administration and actually hurt the Confederate war effort. But I think that Georgia and North Carolina did an enormous amount to support the war. Uh, Sometimes Zeb Vance and Joe Brown were against Davis and could be a tremendous thorn in his side, but I think it's easy to overstate the degree to which that took place. Jefferson Davis, like Robert E. Lee, I think was a realist. They knew that if the Confederacy were going to win independence, the Confederate people would have to give up some of what they considered 
basic liberties. They would have to agree to be drafted. They would have to share their products with the Confederacy. They would have to give money until it hurt. They would have to, in other words, be willing to countenance as close to a complete mobilization of Confederate resources as was possible if they were going to beat the United States, hold off the United States in this war. Many people in the South were not willing to do that. And they went after Jefferson Davis and his administration. They were not willing to abandon state rights. Uh, They were not willing to give up what they considered their southern principles, uh, even in the name of winning the war and establishing their slaveholding republic. The result was increasing political dissension at a time when the Confederate armies in the field needed all the support that the population could muster. Much of the problems behind the line were economic, and let's take a look at what the Confederate economy looked like. We've talked already about some of the economic failures, the eventual reliance on paper money, uh, the loss of productive areas to invading armies, uh, the tightening of the blockade and how that brought scarcity of goods, the disintegration of the southern transportation system as northern armies moved about the Confederate landscape, all of these things coming together to fuel a really terrible rate of inflation uh, that sent prices spiraling up as the war went on. Every class in the Confederacy, except debtors and speculators, uh, suffered quite cruelly from this inflation. Uh, Creditors literally ran away from debtors on occasion to avoid uh, receiving payment uh, in what was essentially worthless Confederate paper money. As early as July 1862, a single cabbage cost a dollar and a quarter in Richmond, and that was the only vegetable available. In October 1863, a government clerk wrote in his diary that his income of $6,000 a year, half of it from government pay, together with what he called a good deal of help from his father-in-law, enabled his family to eat two meals a day. They couldn't eat three. And he said that many in Richmond were eating only once a day. In May 1864, a pair of pants cost $100 in Richmond. Bacon was $9 a pound. Beans, $4 a quart. Chickens, $15 each. By the end of the war, in different parts of the Confederacy, there were reports of barrels of flour costing $1,000. Women were especially disillusioned with the cost of food. And as we've seen, uh, they rioted in different parts of the South in 1863, the most famous occurrence taking place in Richmond in April when Jefferson Davis eventually threatened to have military forces fire on the women if they would not disperse. As prices soared, real wages for laborers declined to about one-third their pre-war level. One group of workers wrote to Secretary of the Treasury Memminger in this way, Wages are totally inadequate to afford us the merest necessities of life, plain food, shelter, fuel, and clothing. We are literally reduced to destitution, these workers said. Soldiers' families were especially hard hit. A Confederate soldier earned $11 a month for much of the war. Congress very reluctantly increased that in June 1864 to $18 a month. Now think of some of the prices I've already given you for goods. One chicken would eat up more than a soldier's monthly pay as you get toward the middle of the war. The men fought, in effect, for free. And as we've seen before, they also fight indefinitely. They're in the war for the duration, and they're making wages that really are beside the point. And their families suffered tremendously 
in their absence. Wives and children did their best to keep small farms operating, but thousands of pathetic letters from wives begging their absent husbands to return home to look after the farm or business still exist in archives across the United States. One wife wrote in December 1864, We haven't got nothing in our house to eat but a little bit of meal. Try to get off and come home and fix us all up some, and then you can go back. If you put off a coming, there won't be no use, for we'll all be out there in the garden in the graveyard with your ma and mine. Now, these kinds of letters were a powerful stimulus for desertion as the war went on. This kind of letter confronted a soldier with the awful dilemma of choosing the Confederacy, his country, his patriotic duty over the needs of his family. Uh, the, the dire needs of his family. One Alabama soldier wrote to his wife in October 1863 that he would try to get a furlough to come home and help with their children. Failing in that, he said in this letter, he would desert. I can't stand to hear, he wrote simply, that you and the children are suffering for bread. As inflation climbed, the Confederate economy became more and more based on barter. People simply did without many things. They did without coffee for the most part and tried all kinds of really awful-sounding substitutes for coffee. They would grind up things, parch things, boil them. Uh, none of them tasted good, but they tried them. They did without high-grade cloth for the most part. They did without paper. If you read soldiers' letters, Confederate soldiers' letters, it, you'll see that they're often on captured paper from Union soldiers. You'll have a Confederate soldier writing home on a piece of paper with a patriotic northern letterhead. Uh, Confederate soldiers would, would try to make use of every bit of the paper. They'd write one way, and then they'd turn their page and write the other way, and sometimes turn it a third and write diagonally. So you'd have three sets of writing going across one page. They're very difficult to read. But people did without these kinds of things and without innumerable other things as well. Congress mandated, Confederate Congress, in the spring of 1863, what was called a tax in kind. 10% of all corn, wheat, rice, potatoes, peas, beans, and many other products must go to the Confederate government, said this legislation. It was not too hard on planters, but on the thousands of marginal farmers who lived almost hand-to-mouth, this was devastating. It was, way, it was a way to collect something that was actually usable rather than worthless paper money. Confederacy could get some goods this way that they could use. The Impressment Act of 1863 added even more to this burden. This allowed the government to come in and take whatever it needed in return for government paper money. could take horses, could take mules, could take crops uh, if the government needed them and give people a receipt that was good uh, for paper money that would do them virtually no good. This alienated, this kind of legislation alienated untold Confederates who became very unhappy with their government. Many of them said that it seemed to them that the Yankees couldn't do them any more harm than their own government was doing. The government tax collectors and impressment agents became very unpopular figures uh, in the Confederacy. But that didn't mean, I hasten to add, that these people who were unhappy with impressment and who were unhappy with the tax in kind wanted the Confederacy to fail. I think a lot of historians mistakenly have gone from the one to that conclusion. They're unhappy with the tax in kind. They're unhappy with impressment. They must not care whether the Confederacy achieves independence or not. I don't think that's right. I think they were unhappy with many of these things, 
but they were willing to put up with them to a significant degree, degree, perhaps evade them if they could in some ways, while still hoping that the Confederacy would achieve its independence. Well, as this brief survey has suggested, I hope, in both its politics and its economy, the Confederacy struggled with serious problems that made it more difficult to maintain a strong war effort. Uh, Next time, uh, we'll continue our look at the Confederate home front. Uh, We'll examine the problem of white refugees and also uh, the growing civilian disaffection behind the lines as the war went on. Lecture 39, The Confederate Home Front, Part 2. We'll continue with our look at the Confederate Home Front in this lecture, taking up three topics. We'll look at white refugees in the South. We'll look at disaffection with the war among the Confederate citizenry. And we'll finish by considering the degree to which that disaffection can help explain the failure of the Confederacy in the end. It's a hotly debated topic among scholars, and it's one uh, that I will try to lay out the arguments on each side for and then give you my own take on it. As we've discussed in previous lectures, the White South experienced things during the Civil War that were largely unknown, not only uh, to white Northerners during the conflict, but also largely unknown to any other segment of white American society in our history, in our history as the United States. Uh, Many colonials during the American Revolution experienced a lot of these things, but since we have been the United States, most white Americans have not experienced wholesale destruction of private property in the course of a war. They have not experienced a military occupation. They haven't experienced utter defeat on a grand scale, true defeat on a grand scale, not a sort of far-off failure uh, such as Vietnam, but an immediate defeat where your way of life is turned upside down and you have to cope with that absolute failure. And they haven't had to deal with the displacement of thousands of citizens from their homes. In other words, the creation of a large population of refugees within the United States. These are all Confederate experiences uh, that are not typical white American experiences. And what we'll look at first here is one of those experiences, and that is refugee life in the Confederacy. Two types of refugees in the Confederacy. There are black refugees and white refugees. We've already spent time on black refugees, those many thousands of black people who took it upon themselves to run away from their masters toward the Union military in the hope that they would either gain freedom or at least better their situation. Estimates run, as we've said, to about a half a million slaves who took that option, about one in seven, a large movement of black refugees from their homes toward the Union lines during the war. Great uncertainty at the end of that journey for most of these black refugees, but a pretty strong feeling that whatever they found would be better in many ways than what they were leaving. It's a different experience with the white refugees. Uh, These are people who were displaced from lives that were often quite comfortable uh, or at least 
uh, reassuring in that you knew what your life was like each day, they would often be going from that situation to really an unknown situation uh, in their new destination. Among the very first of the white southern refugees was Mrs. Robert E. Lee, who had to abandon her ancestral home at Arlington, overlooking Washington above the Potomac River, in the spring of 1861. Uh, Arlington was situated in such a way that the Union military, of course, was all around it immediately. All they had to do was cross the river uh, to be at Arlington. Uh, There was no way that Mrs. Lee could remain there, and so she left. And for the rest of the war, she moved around. She moved from place to place in the Confederacy, ending up in Richmond for a good bit of the time, but going from one place to another with relatives and other people who would take her in. She never did uh, return to Arlington, uh, which is now, of course, in the middle of Arlington National Cemetery, and which very early in the war was made a burying ground for Union soldiers killed during the war. That wasn't just an accident. Uh, They specifically selected Arlington, this place associated with a major rebel leader, and decided to bury Union dead there. Uh, There was litigation after the war about Arlington, had it been seized legally or illegally uh, from the Lees, and there was a settlement that went to Custis Lee. Now, Mary Lee and Robert E. Lee's oldest son after the war, a caste settlement. Arlington, of course, couldn't go back to the family. It was a cemetery then, uh, or in the midst of a cemetery, but a caste settlement did. Well, well before the end of the war, thousands of other white Southerners were also displaced, as was Mary Lee, by northern armies. There's no hard count of how many people were affected this way. Uh, We have, I think, a fairly good estimate on black refugees. The half a million figure is at least reasonable. There's no comparable estimate for how many Confederates, white people in the South, became refugees during the war. All we know is that there were many thousands of them. The choice was a very difficult one. It was stark. Live under Yankee rule and possible depredations from Yankees on the one hand or gather up what we can of our possessions and leave. Those are the choices that uh, many of these people had before them. They saw it in that uh, stark a term. We do this or we do that. Slaveholders especially feared that the presence of a Union army would hurt them. Their slaves would run away. Uh, The army might decide to be harsher on a slaveholding rebel than on a yeoman farmer who happened to live in one of the Confederate states. Many Confederate slaveholders thought that they especially were at risk. Uh, Jefferson Davis's older brother, uh, Joseph Davis, believed that. Uh, he became a refugee during the war, lost virtually everything, as did Jefferson Davis in terms of their Mississippi holdings. In the course of the war, it became clear that farms and plantations pillaged to the greatest degree were those abandoned by their owners. So in retrospect, most of the people who became refugees probably wouldn't have done it because they would have been able to step back and see, oh, if we had stayed, we might have been able to hang on to some things. But, of course, that wasn't apparent in the heat of the moment. They didn't know that those who stayed would do better on balance than those who became refugees. And so many decided to leave. They left in Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas, Louisiana, initially, and later they left in Georgia and the Carolinas and Alabama and Mississippi. And as I'm sure is apparent, as you would expect, the phenomenon was tied almost directly to patterns of military movement on the part of the United States forces. Those parts of the Confederacy where the United States forces appeared earliest, 
That is, uh, in the upper stretches of the Confederacy, Tennessee and Virginia, and along the coastlines, parts of the Carolinas, New Orleans, parts of Louisiana, those are the areas that first experienced large numbers of refugees. Later in the war, when Union military forces penetrated more deeply into the Confederacy, then parts of Alabama and the interior of Mississippi and the interior of Georgia and so forth also experienced considerable numbers of refugees. Now, refugees typically tried to stay as close to home as possible. In other words, they'd make an initial move, hoping that would be enough. Federal armies would move. Then they'd move again. There were awful, often multiple movements on the part of refugees, moving again and again to try to stay ahead of the federal soldiers. Many congregated in cities, cities such as Richmond and Atlanta, and Charleston, obvious cities, cities that they believed the Confederacy would defend uh, to the greatest degree possible, cities that seemed to offer refuge uh, from northern incursions. Richmond early on became the principal refugee center. I think I've mentioned before that Richmond had just under 40,000 people uh, as its population on the eve of the war. Uh, that ballooned to more than 100,000 in the course of the war, and a significant percentage of that increase came in the form of refugees. Some refugees had ample time to plan their departures. They, they very carefully would pack things and try to acquire wagons and so forth so they could move as much as possible, take as much of their household uh, apparatus with them as possible and, and farm implements and so forth. But others had very little time uh, to get ready to go. An example of the latter category is the Bishop General Leonidas Polk's wife, who had about an hour's notice that she would have to abandon their home in Nashville, Tennessee in February 1862, uh, right in the wake of the fall of Fort Donelson. She was told she had to go, and off she went. Uh, the scene of refugees en route to wherever they were going was often quite memorable. You'd see lines of people streaming along bumpy roads, crammed onto trains, uh, refugees presenting really a quite pitiful sight. One young woman fleeing from Baton Rouge remembered what she described as, quote, a heart-rending scene. Women searching for their babies along the road where they had been lost. Others sitting in the dust and crying and wringing their hands. All the talk was of burning homes, of houses knocked to pieces by balls, of famine, murder, and desolation. Now, I think that this woman accurately captured the kind of rumors that would spread. I don't think that actual situation happened in many instances where the Union Army came in and just started to shoot at houses with pieces of artillery and so forth. That would have been highly unusual. The rumors of Yankee depredations were often greatly exaggerated, but the point is that many people believed them, and that's what prompted them to decide to go. Uh, in many cases, they heard these rumors. It seemed so terrible that they had better leave. Uh, in other instances, they knew neighbors who'd actually suffered greatly at the hands of Union armies, which had essentially stripped them of their possessions. That would be enough to persuade them to leave. Trains were often absolutely packed as northern armies came closer to areas that had train service. Uh, cars would have people jammed inside them. There would be people on top of the cars, uh, literally clinging to the outside of the cars as as much of the population as possible tried to use this means to get away from the Union Army to get to safety. One reporter described a train passing through East Tennessee this way. He wrote, seats, 
aisles, platforms, baggage cars, and tops of cars were covered with passengers, and thousands more had been left at the depot begging to come. I think that the one of the best scenes in the movie Gone with the Wind shows uh, the panic in Atlanta as the Union Army comes close, a, really a stampede of people in all kinds of conveyances trying to get out of the city as, you, as Confederate soldiers march through the streets. Uh, they rush to the, stra- the train station, the civilians do. They have their wagons crowded with things. They're trying to get away from what they think is a real threat. The refugee experience was often harrowing. And the initial decision, traumatic as it was, the decision to leave, really was not nearly as bad as what came later in many instances. Along the road, the refugees were subject to attacks by federal troops or by Confederate deserters and bushwhackers. The Confederate deserters uh, who roamed many of the back areas of the Confederacy often preyed on Uh, People who were obviously leaving their homes with all their belongings piled conveniently in wagons and so forth. It was a very easy and tempting target for guerrillas or for irregular cavalry from the Confederacy, as well as a tempting target uh, for northern forces that might catch these people, these very vulnerable people on the road. Once you reached a safe area, if you were a refugee, especially early in the war, the pattern was that you'd be welcomed. They would do their best for you. The people who lived in the area to which you'd moved uh, try to help you out with what goods you needed. But as the war went on, and as the number of uh, refugees increased, and as scarcities of goods became more serious, the likelihood was much higher that you wouldn't be welcomed in the area to which you moved, that the people there would be struggling enough trying to get by, trying to make ends meet, that they really didn't need an influx of people who didn't have any way to support themselves and who might be short of critical goods, goods of all kinds. It would be seen as just one more burden of the war. My God, we're already putting up with all of this, people in an area might say, and now here come all of these refugees. What are we supposed to do with them? The government isn't going to pay for them. There's no Bureau of Refugees in the Confederacy uh, to pass uh, national money out to support these people. It's a problem in the locality, and it's one that often uh, produced a good deal of bitterness on the people who had to take in refugees. Unless a refugee happened to be wealthy, subsistence farming on rented land or poor-paying jobs were all that rural areas tended to offer. Now, in cities... Uh, there were probably more jobs available if you went to Richmond or some such place. But many of the refugees tended to be inexperienced at the kinds of jobs that would be available. Upper middle class or even wealthy refugees weren't used to doing the kind of manual labor that often would be available in these areas. So you would have a poor uh, fit between uh, refugees and their skills and the kinds of jobs that were available. Texas, which was far from the theaters of fighting and of little interest to the Federals for much of the war, became a major center for refugee life. Many people from Louisiana went into Texas. Uh, They would shift their base from uh, areas along the rivers in Louisiana, where they were vulnerable to the Union Army, to points in East Texas and elsewhere in Texas where they would be safer. There's a wonderful account by a woman named Kate Stone, who kept a diary or journal during the war. It's been published as a book called Broken Burn, but Kate Stone details in wonderful fashion the experience of a wealthy planter family uh, in Louisiana that decides it must become refugees in order to escape 
uh, the Federal Army. Kate Stone and her family, she's in her early 20s when she was keeping this diary, uh, end up in Texas. And she has wonderful descriptions uh, of life in Texas, as well as wonderful descriptions of what the situation was like in Louisiana. Louisiana was one of those areas uh, that over a protracted period uh, was subject to Union incursions. And let me read from a witness describing part of Louisiana in 1864 in an account that highlights the degree to which people had abandoned their farms and plantations to become refugees. This man wrote this way, said, From Mansfield to the Mississippi River, the track of the spoiler was one scene of desolation. The fine estates on the Cane and Red Rivers were all devastated. Houses, gins, mills, barns, and fences were burned. Negroes all carried off. Horses, cattle, hogs, every living thing driven away or killed. You can travel for miles in many portions of Louisiana through a once thickly settled country and not see a man, nor a woman, nor a child, nor a four-footed beast. The farmhouses have been burned, the plantations deserted. A painful melancholy, a death-like silence broods over the land, and desolation reigns supreme. Well, even accounting for a bit of hyperbole here, I think, or factoring in the possibility of a bit of hyperbole there, I think it's clear uh, that a good part of that section of Louisiana uh, had been inhabited by people who believed that becoming refugees was probably the way to go. A number of them undoubtedly ended up in Texas. Uh, many of the refugees found Texas to be quite a shock uh, when they first got there. It was seen as crude and barren and out of the way. Uh, but by the end of the war, large numbers of people from Louisiana and Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, uh, Missouri, and even a few from as far away as Virginia had relocated in Texas. Houston was the major focus of this resettlement. San Antonio, uh, Marshall, Tyler, Waco, these were other towns uh, that accepted refugees in large numbers. A number of those places doubled in size during the war, even tripled in some cases because of the influx of refugees. Most of the planters and, fa and small farmers who emigrated to Texas rented land and farmed. They accepted the conditions with fairly good spirits, but others did not especially wealthier people, uh, sometimes had a hard time adjusting to Texas. One Louisianan complained that Texas, quote, has no society above the grade of Comanches and no school worth sending children to. And one Eastern girl wrote with disgust that Texas ladies smoke cigars, they chew tobacco, they take snuff, and they tilt back on two legs of their chairs. The last one's really, that's too horrible to contemplate, uh, tilting on two legs of your chair, but these kinds of accounts, I think, point up a very interesting uh, way to get at differences of class and differences of region in the Confederacy. People coming in from other places react to Texas, and you can tell that there is not one type of person uh, in the Confederacy. There are all different kinds, and these differences come out uh, in the refugee experience. As I said earlier, there's no precise count of how many refugees there were in the Confederacy, but there were many thousands who lost untold millions of dollars in wealth when they moved. Most of them never regained most of what they lost, and they were some of the biggest losers of the war. Uh, they were also among those who held the most bitter memories about the war and nursed grievances against Northerners and the North uh, the longest after the war. All right, let's look at some of the ways 
in which activities behind the lines in the Confederacy undermined the war effort. Let's begin with opposition to conscription. As the war dragged on through 1863 and into 1864 and onward, many men refused to serve when conscripted in the Confederacy. Most of the patriotic men had gone into the army early in the war. We've talked about this, that huge rush of volunteering in 61 and into early 62 in both the North and the South put into the armies most of those really fervent patriots on both sides. The men who went, to the, went into the army later were often far less willing to go. Now, they might have had a variety of, of reasons. They might have been supporting families who really needed them. Or they may have had doubts about the Confederacy. Or there may have been staunch Unionists who really never had any allegiance to the Confederacy whatsoever. Or they may just have been afraid of military service. There could have been all kinds of reasons why they didn't go in. But the point is, they were far less uh, willing to go than most of the men who had gone early in the war. And it's very important to keep that distinction in mind between the 61-62 wave of men who went into the armies and those who went in later. Now, most resistance to the Confederate draft was passive. It wasn't really active. The men simply didn't report when called into service. In East Tennessee, for example, 25,000 men were conscripted, but only 6,000 reported. Now, that's an area of, of especially high Unionist sentiment. Local support for the draft evaders often prevented Confederate government from forcing them into the army if these men came from an area of high Unionist sentiment, such as East Tennessee. Georgia and Alabama had especially poor records of compliance with the Conscription Act. And in all, probably just over 50% of the men conscripted by the Confederate government failed to appear, failed to serve. But we have to remember, to put that in perspective, that relatively few men were directly conscripted into the Confederate Army. The draft laws in both the North and South, remember, had been designed to encourage volunteering, not designed literally to draft men into the Army. So a, a quite small percentage of the Confederate Army was actually conscripted. Uh, so the estimate of about half of the conscripted men avoiding service doesn't res uh, represent a really large number. All right, opposition to the draft is one evidence of uh, unhappiness uh, behind the lines in the Confederacy. Desertion was also sometimes an indicator of lack of support for the war. We have to be careful here, too, however, because there were different kinds of desertion in the Confederacy. There were men who would classify as true deserters. They left the army with no intention of going back and didn't go back. Those are deserters. But there were also many men who, in response to pathetic letters from home or just an urge to visit home or the need to get home and put in a crop, would leave the army, go home, and then return to the army and fight sometimes for many more months or even years. Now, how do you treat those men? You can't treat those two categories in the same way. One is clearly a deserter for the entire war. The other obviously still has some allegiance to the Confederacy. However we count deserters, we do know when most desertions came. The first wave came in the spring of 1862 and early summer after the Confederate Congress changed the rules about how long the men would have to stay in the army with the first conscription act. There's another spike after Gettysburg and Vicksburg. Many of those men, however, returned to the armies. 
And then beginning in late 1864, Confederate armies suffered from serious losses uh, via desertion, and that trend continued on down into the spring of 1865. Many deserters tended to congregate in backwoods regions where they would be safe, western North Carolina, parts of Arkansas, uh, northwestern Georgia, parts of Tennessee, southwest Virginia. These areas tended to harbor a good number of deserters, and those deserters were able to move around uh, with impunity, really. Some formed guerrilla bands that terrorized the countryside, but mostly they simply lived and worked with no intention of fighting again. At least 105,000 Confederates deserted. That's about 13% of all who served. Remember, that 105,000 includes both the men who left and came back and the men who left and stayed gone from the army. One deserter just couldn't resist writing Jefferson Davis to tell him exactly why he was happy to become a deserter. And so he wrote in this graphic language, and I'll quote him, Our holy flag... He says, I intend to abandon, quote, our holy flag, the symbol of an adored trinity, cotton, Negroes, and chivalry, and now bastard president of a political abortion, farewell. Oh, this is one man's way of saying, I'm not going to fight for you anymore. So desertion is something else we could look at. Other Confederates hid goods from impressment agents, tried to shield the things they produced from the Confederate government. Uh, this reached fairly serious proportions and cost the men and animals at the front dearly in lost rations and forage. Nearly all southern governors at some point opposed impressment and in some ways thwarted the national government's effort to collect uh, some of the things they were trying to collect. There was also hoarding and profiteering in the Confederacy as there is in every society in every war. Wars present opportunities to make money, and there's always someone who wants to take advantage of that opportunity. Many white Southerners blamed Jewish merchants for most of the hoarding, uh, but Jews, of course, were only a convenient target. Most of the people hoarding were not Jewish, but that was a convenient scapegoat for much of the white South. Blockade runners helped profiteers by bringing in luxury items rather than war materials, especially early in the war. Uh, the Rhett Butler character in Gone with the Wind is a perfect example. He grows wealthy during the war. As a blockade runner, he grows wealthy by bringing in consumer goods, not by bringing in muskets and powder and lead and other things that the Confederate Army needs. One planter in Mississippi spent the entire war hiding and selling his cotton to either North or South, whoever would pay more. When his wife on one occasion asked him to stop trading with the North, he very honestly said, I wish to fill my pockets. I can in five years make a larger fortune than ever. Well, these activities further demoralized the general populace, of course, who argued that they didn't want to support a war that seemed to be benefiting speculators more than anyone else. All of these things going on behind the lines in the Confederacy have led some historians to the conclusion that this is why the Confederacy failed. It was unraveling from within a long before the end of the war. This was the real problem with the Confederacy. It wasn't so much that the United States Army was defeating the Confederate armies in the field. It was that internal causes were undoing the Confederate effort. Things, weaknesses within Confederate society, not the power of Northern arms. Uh, this argument uh, has been put forward in one form or another for many decades. Uh, an important part of it started in the 1920s with a historian named Frank Owsley, wrote a book called State Rights in the Confederacy, 
where he argued that selfish state governors, selfish people devoted to state rights, refused to do the things necessary to win Confederate independence, wouldn't support the national effort, took a very local, a very state approach. And in the 70 years since Owsley's book came out, many other scholars have added uh, to this picture of a Confederacy simply coming apart from internal tensions. You can sum up most of these arguments uh, something along these lines. Long before the major Confederate armies laid down their arms in April and May 1865, the Confederacy had begun to unravel. Its political system was ineffective. Its economy in a shambles. Its population demoralized and divided against itself along lines of class and other fissures. The United South fighting to the last ounce of strength and in a united fashion uh, glorified by the myth of the lost cause simply had no basis in fact, argued the historians who looked to internal causes. The harsh reality of the war years, historians have said, weakened and finally broke the will of the southern people to fight on in the name of Confederate independence and brought the end of the war despite the fact that there were still scores of thousands of Confederate soldiers under arms. Well, I certainly agree that many tensions behind the lines did weaken the Confederacy, class tensions, uh, some doubts about slavery and whether it was good or bad on balance uh, for Confederate prospects for victory, and other internal factors certainly were present. Every uh, society has class tensions. The North had them. They showed up in many ways in the North. The Confederacy certainly did. There are weaknesses internally. No question about it. But I believe that the record shows that most white Southerners remained quite loyal to the Confederacy. They might oppose some of the government policies, as we talked about uh, earlier, but that didn't mean that they wanted the Confederacy to fail. didn't mean they didn't care about whether the North triumphed in this war or not. It's very possible to be unhappy with your government about something, this policy or that policy, but still be supportive of your nation and still wanting uh, your nation to succeed. People tended to focus their anger on the government, on Jefferson Davis, on the Confederate Congress, talked about how awful a job they were doing in many ways. I think if you want to understand what the real sentiment of the Confederate people was toward their cause, don't see what they're writing about Jefferson Davis. See what they're writing about Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. That's the real national rallying point uh, for most of the war. And I think Letters that talk about Lee and his army and prospects for victory and hopes for victory make it pretty clear that most Confederates clung to hopes for success uh, deep into the war, even past the fall of 1864. I think the fact that the White South incurred such enormous human and physical losses but still persisted also suggests that they were quite dedicated to the Confederacy. Uh, if we had lost as many men in World War II, for example, dead, Proportionately, as the Confederacy lost, the United States would have had more than 6.5 million dead, not the 400,000 that we did have. 6.5 million. I think a society that sacrifices that much has a fair amount of cohesion. I think the white South, on balance, fought longer and harder for Confederate independence than any other white people in United States history have struggled and sacrificed uh, for anything else. So I think it's important to balance these things to recognize there are tremendous tensions behind the lines in the Confederacy, but tremendous tenacity as well. Well, we'll leave the Confederate home front on that note, and next time we'll, be, uh, we'll begin our look at the northern home front.
Lecture 40, The Northern Home Front, Part 1. This lecture begins our two-part look at northern life behind the lines. What's going on in the north while those United States armies are campaigning across the Confederacy? We're going to focus on northern politics in this lecture. The war's realignment of national parties, the divisions within the Democratic Party, the varying fortunes of the Republican Party, and we'll close by looking at the crucial presidential election of 1864, the most important presidential election, I think, in United States history. Let's start by looking at politics and realignment. Before the Civil War, only Democratic presidents had ever been elected to a second term. No Federalist had been elected to a second term except George Washington, and he doesn't really count because he would have said he was above party. Only Democrats re-elected. Democrats controlled the United States Congress most of the time before the war. And by Democrats, I mean Jeffersonian Republicans and their Democratic successors. That is one party, really. So before the war, it's a Democratic landscape politically. In the seven decades after 1860, only two Democrats would enter the White House. Grover Cleveland, for his two terms that were not back-to-back, of course, and Woodrow Wilson. And Wilson's election uh, was a fluke. He never would have been sent to the White House if the Republican Party had not been divided, had Theodore Roosevelt not decided uh, to run on his Bull Moose Party ticket. So the Republican Party, born in 1856 and a minority winner, winner in 1860, solidified its position in the North during the war and laid the groundwork for long-term success in national politics. The Republicans were not unified. We've discussed that before. They were really split into three broad factions, or at least three that are useful for our purposes, the conservatives and the moderates and the radicals, with the radical wing of the party gradually gaining a stronger hand as the war went on. But what about the Democrats? Let's look at what the minority party in the North uh, during the war experienced. This former ruling party, if you like, split into two main factions during the Civil War. The first we can call the War Democrats. These are Democrats who joined with the Republicans to support the war effort, to support a vigorous prosecution of the war. Some of the War Democrats even became Republicans. And a few, such as Benjamin Butler and Secretary of War Stanton, even became radical Republicans in their political odysseys. Together, the War Democrats and the Republicans often called themselves the Union Party to give a bipartisan cast to their activities. The goal of the Union Party was the speedy suppression of the rebellion and reuniting of the country. Now, the regular Democrats or peace Democrats, as they were often called, were opponents of the administration. They preferred to keep their own political organization intact and to take control away from the Republicans. Initially, they supported the government of the United States against the Confederacy, but still sought to overthrow the ruling Republican Party. And they argued that the war would never be won following Republican policies. They were especially against emancipation argued that that was a mistake, that that would erode support for the war 
in the North. This is a bad policy, they said. You're trying to make this war into something that it shouldn't be. It should be a war for union, not a war for union and emancipation. As the war went on and the radical Republicans pushed for a harsher war and a fundamental change in Southern society along the free labor lines of the North, many peace Democrats began to oppose the war itself and sought restoration of the Union through compromise and negotiation. Now, they weren't pro-Confederacy, although the Republicans tried very hard to portray them as being pro-Confederacy, even treasonous in some cases. And some of the more vocal of the peace Democrats did go far enough in their statements and their suggestions to the people of the North to give the Republicans uh, good ammunition to level charges of disloyalty. On key issues such as emancipation, uh, arbitrary arrests, uh, the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus and so forth, both factions of the Democratic Party tended to unite in opposition to the Republicans. None of the Democrats were in favor of emancipation, or virtually none. All of them thought Lincoln acted in a dictatorial fashion when he didn't follow all of the constitutional guarantees that most Americans should be able to avail themselves of. The relative strength of the war and peace factions of the Democratic Party fluctuated according to how well the Union armies were doing in the field. Union defeats gave the peace Democrats a lot of uh, emphasis, and Union success in the field helped the war Democrat part of the party. The peace Democrats eventually became known as Copperheads. There are various explanations for where that name came from. I think it probably came from Ohio newspapers' comparisons of anti-war Democrats to the poisonous snake. And there are cartoons from the war of vipers surrounding either Lincoln or some representation of the Union, copperhead vipers trying to strike at the Republic. The copperheads were strongest in the southern Midwest and among Catholic immigrants in large cities. Copperheads shared an aversion to black people, to abolitionists, and to temperance reformers. They hated the fact that the New England wing of the Republican Party seemed to be so powerful and that that wing of the party was trying to have emancipation pushed forward as a major goal of the Union war effort. They said again and again that they would fight for the Union. They would not fight for emancipation. They wanted the Union as it was, not some new version of the Union. They opposed Democrat, excuse me, economic legislation such as higher tariffs, income tax, a national bank, and other wartime financial measures pushed by the Republicans. The Copperheads hated what they saw as the reforming tendencies, especially of New Englanders and abolitionist radical Republicans. They thought that that was a very obnoxious characteristic of their opponents. They blamed those people. They said the reason the South left the United States is because of abolitionists and because of people like the radical Republicans. You drove them out in your incessant drumbeat against slavery, they said. You really sundered the Union, not the South. You caused the war, not the South. That's a common copperhead refrain. There were proposals to form a Midwestern Confederacy that would secede from the Union and join the South in a new Union with New England left out. Now, these didn't get very far, uh, but there was talk of this sort that gives you some insight into what kinds of attitudes these copperheads had. The Confederacy read the newspapers, read about these statements the Copperheads were making, and sent a number of agents into the North to try to 
fan these anti-Lincoln administration flames. Uh, there were a number of secret societies among Copperheads. Knights of the Golden Circle was one of them, and there were others. They said they hoped to achieve a Northwestern conspiracy. Confederates tried to help them achieve that. But what these hard-bitten Confederate agents would usually find out is that the Copperheads, uh, Knights of the Golden Circle, and so forth, talked a much better line than they were willing to back up uh, with action. They did exist, however, these societies. One of the leading Copperheads was a congressman from Ohio named Clement L. Vallandingham. He was descended from a Virginia family. He was married to a Maryland planter's daughter, and his goal was simple. This is how he explained it. It's the desire of my heart to restore the Union, the Federal Union, as it was 40 years ago. If the radical Republicans had their way, said Vallandingham, I see nothing before us but universal political and social revolution, anarchy and bloodshed, compared with which the reign of terror in France was a merciful visitation. Some nice uh, apocalyptic rhetoric there. Landingham is a major copperhead figure in the North. Now, Republican policies and military events affected tremendously the fortunes of that majority party in the North. The Republican Party's popularity and success would ebb and flow depending on what was going on on the military front and what policies they were pressing. The elections of 1862, the off-year elections, that is, gave Lincoln and the Republicans a major scare. Five states that had supported Lincoln in 1860 sent Democratic delegations to Congress, and these were very important states, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, and Lincoln's own state of Illinois. Five crucial states that the Republicans had worried about very much in 1860. Those are among the most populous northern states. Now, the Republicans did retain control of the House of Representatives, but only by a margin of 18 votes. It's very close. And the edge actually came from border states, where federal troops helped bring in Republican votes. The way they had helped bring in pro-union votes in Maryland back in the crucial gubernatorial election that we talked about in the early months of the war. Several state legislatures also went Democratic, so it's a bad round of elections for the Republicans. How do we explain this? Part of it was that there was widespread unhappiness with the Emancipation Proclamation across the North. Lots of Northerners didn't think the war should be about emancipation. They believed it should be a war about union. Also, a great deal of unhappiness with such war measures as arbitrary arrests and the harsh Second Confiscation Act that Congress had passed back in July of 62. There was also a lack of unity among Republicans themselves. We've talked about that, the debates going on within the Republican Party about how hard to push on emancipation, what kinds of wartime legislation would best suit the Republic. The fact that the Republicans did not present a really united front to the Democrats hurt the Republicans in those fall elections. But I think the most important factor was Union failures on the battlefield, perceived failures on the battlefield. Northerners saw, from their point of view, smaller Confederate armies time and again defeating a larger Union army or at least not being defeated by the Union army. And people tended to blame the administration and the Republicans in Congress for failing to press on to victory. Now, this phenomenon is very much indicative of the eastern focus of people in the North 
uh, we've talked about before. The only way you could conclude that the northern military was not being successful was to look at Virginia, because if you looked anywhere else, you'd see enormous success on the part of northern armies, but you don't see it in Virginia, and that hurt the Republicans, I think, in the off-year elections in 62. Within his own party, radicals accused Lincoln of being too easy on the rebels. They wanted all-out war that would quickly bring ruin to the South. A coterie of senatorial radicals attempted to force Lincoln to remake his cabinet, in fact, in a way that Secretary of the Treasury Salmon P. Chase would find himself standing as perhaps the most important figure in the cabinet, the most powerful figure. Lincoln outmaneuvered the radicals. It's interesting, the radicals often were trying to outmaneuver Lincoln uh, concerning his cabinet, but really, as good a politician as many of them were, Lincoln was better. He managed to fend them off time and again. The Landingham and the Copperheads seemed to be gaining momentum in the spring of 1863. Burnside's defeat at Fredericksburg was a terrible blow to the Lincoln administration. In the aftermath of that defeat, uh, there had been an ignominious failed campaign called the Mud March in Virginia, where Burnside tried to get around Lee's flank but bogged down in horrible weather and mismanagement of the army. That was in January. These things really seemed to give impetus to the peace Democrats, to the Copperheads. Some of that impetus was blunted, however, by events involving Vallandigham himself. He was running for the governorship of Ohio, and he was looking for an issue. Ambrose Burnside, exiled to the Department of Ohio, of Ohio after he lost the Battle of Fredericksburg, supplied Vallandigham with his issue. Burnside was headquartered at Cincinnati, right in the middle of Copperhead country, and he issued an order in April 1863 saying that treason would no longer be tolerated in his department. Vallandigham then made several speeches calling the war a wicked failure and urging the repeal of the Emancipation Proclamation and encouraging northern voters to unseat Lincoln, declare an armistice, and invite the white South to negotiate a restoration of the Union along the pre-war lines of the old Union. Leaving New England out, said Vallandigham, if everyone agrees. Now, these were standard Copperhead themes. They were repeated endlessly by uh, a variety of Copperhead politicians and others, but under Burnside's order, they constituted treason. And on May 5th, uh, the same day that Joseph Hooker and the Army of the Potomac would begin to withdraw from the Chancellorsville battlefield, soldiers broke into the Landingham's home and arrested him. The question is, why make a martyr of the Landingham with this harsh arrest? I think the temper of the times explains it. The Landingham's following, though probably not overwhelmingly large, did constitute a threat to northern morale in the trying days of the early spring of 1863. Many Democrats in the Midwest and in New York State were increasingly come to, coming to believe that a negotiated settlement with the South was imperative. Uh, they were not happy with emancipation, with conscription, with the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus and other such Republican measures, and they believed that a change was necessary. The Democratic gains in the 1862 elections also demonstrated that Northerners were willing to vote against the Republicans when their feelings were aroused, and Vallandigham did all he could to arouse them, as did other Copperhead speakers. The spring elections in New Hampshire and Connecticut, two New England states, 
showed great democratic strength. There were also rumors of liaisons between Copperheads and Confederate agents in the North, and Copperhead newspapers openly called for Northern soldiers to desert. Men from the Copperhead regions, in fact, did seem to be deserting in high numbers. For example, all but 35 men of the 128th Illinois Infantry deserted in early 1863. In short, many people perceived that there was a crisis in the North, a crisis of morale, a political crisis that might endanger the Union, and Vallandigham might make that crisis worse. A military commission tried Vallandigham and sentenced him to imprisonment for the duration of the war. A federal judge refused to issue a writ to release Vallandigham into the custody of a civil court. And Democrats and even some Republicans denounced these proceedings. They said it was a grotesque violation of Vallandigham's civil rights. It establishes military despotism, said Democratic Governor Horatio Seymour of New York. If it is upheld, our liberties are overthrown. Lincoln was embarrassed by Burnside's order, I think, probably very disappointed in Burnside's lack of of political acumen in deciding to do this, very embarrassed, but he came up with a typically clever solution, did Lincoln. He commuted the sentence from a term in prison to banishment to the Confederacy. If Philandingham likes the Confederacy so much, said Lincoln in effect, let's send him to the Confederacy. Vallandigham was escorted to Braxton Bragg's lines in Tennessee and handed over to the Confederates, who really didn't know what to do with him. Uh, Vallandigham was no prize for them. Eventually, the Ohioan went to Canada uh, while his friends pursued his case, his legal case, to the Supreme Court. The court later upheld the legality of the proceedings against Vallandigham. Let's move to the presidential election of 1864. Uh, which marked the final political crisis for the Lincoln administration. War weariness had set in by midsummer 1864. As we've seen, the northern public was reeling uh, from news of casualties in the Overland campaign, disappointed in the fact that there weren't clear Union victories at Richmond and in Atlanta. Both Grant and Sherman seemed to be stalled, and more than that, a Confederate army under Jubilee early had gotten all the way to the suburbs of Washington uh, during the second week of July, 1864. We'll talk more about that campaign in a later lecture. Lincoln himself had gone out to observe this rebel army, gone to Fort Stevens. He'd looked out. He'd come under fire briefly, the only time during the war when that happened uh, to Lincoln. Everywhere the northern people looked, they saw either stalemate or failure. And there was, again, everywhere they looked militarily, that is, There was, again, considerable support for some kind of peace negotiations. Lincoln made it known that he would entertain negotiations for any peace that embraced restoration of the Union and emancipation. These terms were unacceptable, of course, to the South. Now, the Democrats in the North claimed that only Republican insistence on abolition prevented serious negotiations from going forward. Uh, But in fact, Jefferson Davis had made it amply clear that peace would come only with Southern independence from the Confederate point of view. It's a question of Davis and Lincoln having no common ground uh, to launch discussions from because one insisted on reunion and one insisted on Southern independence. It looked grim for Lincoln and the Republicans. One Republican chieftain observed in August, quote, Lincoln's reelection is an impossibility. Many shared this view, including Lincoln, who wrote on August 23rd, 
This morning, for some days past, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be reelected. There was talk of holding a convention of Republican dissidents, those who thought Lincoln was too soft on the South in terms of Reconstruction and other issues, and those who thought he had no chance for victory and should give way to a man who could win. Salmon P. Chase's name came up. John C. Fremont's name came up, as well as others. <clears throat> in late August, the Democrats met in Chicago and nominated George B. McClellan. McClellan's views hadn't changed since we last talked about him in 1862. He was still against emancipation, but he supported restoration of the Union based on a military victory. He wanted reunion. That would be his minimum uh, position from which to start talks. This upset the Peace Democrats, who wanted a plank calling for an armistice first. First, let's stop fighting, they said. Then we'll begin to negotiate. McClellan said, no, we need union first, and then we can talk. The states have to come back into the union. Well, the Peace Democrats fell in line behind McClellan, but they had their way with the party platform in 1864. It denounced arbitrary military arrests. It denounced interference with slavery by the federal government. And it insisted, quote, that immediate efforts be made for a cessation of hostilities with an eye toward a later convention or other means to bring peace on the basis of the federal union. They're calling for the old union as it was again, but they want an armistice first in the platform. This wording put peace before union in the platform. McClellan had put union before peace. The question was, would McClellan accept the platform? Would he run? on this platform, and in the end, he did. He waffled for a while, but in his acceptance letter, he decided uh, that he would have to put Union first and peace second. Some of the peace Democrats grumbled. Uh, they said that McClellan had outmaneuvered them on this, but most of them fell in line behind McClellan in the 1864 election. It's a difficult uh, game of cat and mouse, in a sense, between McClellan and the peace Democrats over the platform, and McClellan's statement of acceptance. The Republicans had already met by that time. By the time the Democrats met in August, they had met in June in Baltimore, and they had renominated Lincoln. The Republicans didn't campaign as Republicans, however. They called themselves the Union Party in 1864, trying to appeal as broadly as possible to Northern voters. Seeing that their adversaries were squarely against abolition, they decided to get behind Lincoln, did the Republicans, to present a united front. Even the radical Republicans, even those who'd been unhappy with Lincoln, decided that he was much the better uh, option of these two, and so they presented uh, quite a solid front. Victories were still needed, however, military victories, if the Republicans were o to overcome the Democratic propaganda that labeled the war a costly failure with no end in sight. The Democrats would say, listen, we've fought for more than three years, we still aren't in Richmond. We still haven't defeated the Confederate armies. We've seen our liberties trampled upon. How long are we going to put up with this? We need to get out of this losing, immensely costly war. Lincoln and the Republicans needed something to trump that argument on the part of the Democrats. And beginning in late August, they got the cards they needed. The first came at Mobile Bay. Uh, the major remaining open Confederate port on the Gulf of Mexico. We've already seen how Farragut captured it in August 1864. 
Now, that's important, but certainly wouldn't have been enough. The key victory came from Georgia, when on September 1st and 2nd, the Confederate Army evacuated Atlanta. The northern people went wild uh, with delight at news of Atlanta. Atlanta had become a great symbol of the frustration of northern armies throughout 1864, and probably only the capture of Richmond would have touched off more significant rejoicing than did the capture of Atlanta. The third blow to the South and the third great assist for the Lincoln administration came in the Shenandoah Valley when Philip H. Sheridan conducted a very successful campaign against a small Confederate army under Jubal Early, winning three victories in a row in one month between September 19 and October 19 in the Battle of Third Winchester, uh, followed up by Battle of Fisher's Hill and finally the Battle of Cedar Creek. Three victories for Sheridan, uh, which together with Atlanta and Mobile propelled Lincoln and the Republicans toward victory in those elections in 1864. The victories gave the Republicans tremendous confidence, and they went after the Copperheads with a vengeance. Uh, there were rumors of plots between Copperheads and Southern agents to free Southern prisoners of war in the Great Lakes region, to burn major northern cities, to stir up draft resistance, and to foment an open rebellion to form a Northwest Confederacy. Volandingham returned to Ohio from Canada. Uh, rather than make him a martyr, Lincoln allowed him to stay as long as he stayed out of politics. Now, there wasn't much substance to any of these rumors, but there was enough to give the Republicans wonderful ammunition. A group of Confederate agents came out of Canada uh, to the town of St. Albans, Vermont, and on October 19, 1864, uh, they robbed some banks and they mortally wounded one civilian. Uh, late in November 1864, another group of Confederate agents set a number of fires in New York City, uh, more than 15 fires, uh, hoping to burn down a number of key places. They mainly set fire to hotels and to Barnum's Museum. So there are things going on that give some substance to these rumors about what the Copperheads and their likely Confederate allies are trying to do. The, the Republicans used these kinds of things very uh, deftly uh, through the rest of 64 and into 65 to bring great discredit to the Copperheads, the Peace Democrats. Let's look at the impact of the election of 1864. I think the best way to look at it is as a referendum on the war and emancipation. In many presidential elections, it seems that there isn't that clear a choice between the two parties. They often have a great gray middle ground, and they might have a few areas where they disagree. Not in 1864. What would follow a Democratic victory? Well, it wasn't clear. It might be peace. It might be an independent confederacy, a reunited country with slavery. If the Republicans won, the issues were clear. You'd have union, and you wouldn't have slavery, period. Those are the things that Lincoln and the Republicans hammered on. Knowing this, the voters re-elected Lincoln by an electoral majority of 212 to 21, a landslide. George B. McClellan carried only New Jersey, Kentucky, and Delaware. Lincoln received 55% of the popular vote. Uh, he'd only received, <coughs> excuse me, 48% of that same part of the popular vote, in 1860. The Republicans gained control of all the state legislatures that they had lost in 1862, and they won 145 of 185 seats in the House of Representatives, an overwhelming majority in the House. In the Senate, their margin was 42 to 10. 
overwhelming victory for the Republicans. And within that Republican cushion of victory, the radical Republicans gained strength as a faction in the party. So the next Congress will be not only far more Republican, but will also have a stronger radical Republican flavor than the Congress that would be sitting for the rest of 64 and into 65. The election of 1864 was the first time in history that people went to the polls in the midst of a major war to elect a national leader. It was a remarkable testimony to the vitality of American democracy. Equally remarkable was the fact that soldiers were allowed to vote in the field. The northern soldiers, hundreds of thousands of them, were allowed to vote in the field. Uh, Their votes might decide whether or not they had to keep fighting. How would a soldier vote? If he voted for the Democrats, maybe peace would come. Maybe the war wouldn't drag on. Maybe he'd have a better chance of living to a ripe old age. It seemed to be a great risk that the United States took here, that the Republicans took in letting the soldiers vote. But nearly 80% of the soldiers who voted voted Republican, voted to continue the war and push it on to victory. The soldier vote proved crucial in many congressional districts. In the border states, federal troops helped to see that Republican majorities came in, again, used as they had been used in Maryland earlier and on other occasions. But most important of all in the election of 64 was the impact of Sherman's victory at Atlanta, Sheridan's victories in the Shenandoah Valley, and to a lesser extent, Farragut's victory at Mobile. Without them, Lincoln almost certainly would have lost. I think the message of the election was clear to all that the war would now be pressed forward to a finish. The Confederates realized this as much as the Federals. Confederate diaries and letters and newspapers from 1864, from the spring and summer and into the early fall, are filled with observations about the northern elections. The Confederates were very much attuned to how important this presidential election would be, and they hoped that they could avoid defeats. They didn't have to win victories, they knew, just avoid defeats until those November polling dates for the North. They hadn't been able to do that, and now many Confederates understood that the re-election of Lincoln was a terrible blow to their chances for independence. Didn't mean that they all decided the war was lost. They didn't, but some of them did, and all the rest knew that it would be much harder now. The war would drag on for several more months, of course, after the election of 64, but that election represented a major step toward Union victory. Next time, we'll continue our look at the northern home front. Uh, We'll examine the economy and the Republican non-military legislative agenda. Lecture 41, The Northern Home Front, Part 2. We continue our look at the Northern Home Front with this lecture, and we'll focus on two principal topics. The first was the performance of the Northern economy during the war, its ability to produce both military and non-military materials, and the Republican legislative agenda, that helped shape the direction the United States would take politically and economically through the remaining decades of the 19th century. We'll start with the economy. And here the picture couldn't be more different 
than the picture we painted uh, earlier in the course of the Confederate economy during the war. The North, unlike the Confederacy, proved able to outfit and provision its armies while at the same time producing ample consumer goods. And in this sense, the Northern economy during the war anticipated what the American economy would do in future wars, as in World War I and World War II when the United States proved able to give civilians everything they needed with only minimal rationing and other interference from the federal government, as well as putting enormous armies into the field and equipping them. The North, like the United States in the future, was able to do that. The North did not suffer the problem that so many other nations have suffered in history of really finding it difficult to take care of armies at the same time they were trying to take care of a civilian population that demanded at least a minimum level of consumer goods. Oftentimes, societies at war find themselves so strapped behind uh, the military lines uh, that they are in a very problematical position in terms of keeping morale high. That is not going to be the case in the North. As one New York newspaper commented with great satisfaction on this topic fairly late in the war, quote, it was a favorite theory of the rebel leaders at the beginning of the rebellion that the withdrawal of southern trade from the North would make grass grow in the streets of New York City. But the vast increase of northern military trade has more than made up for the loss of southern business. There never was a time in our history, remarked this article, when New York business was more prosperous and prosperity was more general than within the last two or three years. And that really is a very accurate, I think, summary of much of the experience of the North economically during the war. We look at several sectors of the economy, beginning with agriculture. Agriculture, uh, the single most important part of the northern economy, did extremely well during the conflict. The north grew more wheat, for example, in 1862 and again in 1863 than the entire nation had produced in the previous record year of 1859. And there were major wheat-growing sectors in the south. The Shenandoah Valley produced an enormous amount of wheat in the antebellum years, as did parts of Tennessee, but despite those contributions to national production in the late antebellum years, the North exceeded that during the war. Corn production also shot up, and exports of pork, beef, corn, and wheat doubled during the war, doubled over the national averages from before the war. These exports included a vast amount of trade with Great Britain. Uh, Great Britain was suffering Uh, from its inability to get as much cotton from the South as it had gotten before the war, but it became more reliant on grain exports from the United States. Great Britain, by the end of the Civil War, was importing an enormous amount of grain from the United States and heavily dependent upon it. Uh, Yet another factor in that group of factors that made it unlikely that Great Britain would step into the war on the side of the Confederacy. Now, this great burst of agricultural production took place when fully a third of the agricultural workforce was off in the army, which makes it all the more remarkable that the North was able to accomplish this. It was made possible largely by the expanded use of labor-saving machinery in the North, especially reapers and mowers and rakers. These are implements that were not uh, generally available in the Confederacy, certainly not to the degree they were in the North. These kinds of machines allowed women and children to do much of the work that men previously had done, men who were now shouldering muskets, uh, women and children doing much of what they had done before. 
An observer in 1862 wrote about this phenomenon. He said, I see a great revolution which machinery is making agriculturally. I saw yesterday a stout matron whose sons are in the army with her team cutting hay. She cut seven acres with ease in a day, riding leisurely on her cutter. Well, that would have been an unusual sight uh, earlier, but it's one of the reasons that kind of an image that someone could see in the North, one of the reasons that the North proved so uh, efficient at food production during the war. There were also advances in packaging goods in a way, food, uh, agricultural products in a way that would allow them to have a longer uh, life. Uh, you could stockpile them and distribute them more at your leisure. Uh, there were canned fruits and canned vegetables produced on a much uh, grander scale during the, during the war, as well as condensed milk. Now, none of these products came as a result of technology developed during the war. The technology was already in place to produce canned goods of these kinds and to produce condensed milk. But the demand generated by massive United States armies gave a tremendous boost to production and made many people wealthy who worked in this sector of the economy. Gail Borden, for example, uh, who was the founder of the Borden Company that we're all familiar with now, was producing 17,000 quarts of condensed milk per month in the summer of 1862, most of that for army contracts. By the next summer, he was producing that much Milk every day, again, mostly for army contracts. So Gail Borden had a very nice war, uh, thank you. He came out in wonderful economic shape. The government became an enormously important contractor, uh, as these things suggest, these examples suggest, an enormously important contractor. Goods poured into warehouses and supply depots as the government amassed and distributed clothing, food, and other things that the soldiers needed, uh, stockpiled them in abundance uh, so that United States soldiers, as we've commented earlier uh, in this course, were taken care of on a scale undreamed of by armies elsewhere in the world and undreamed of, in most instances, south of the Potomac River as well. The United States Army, easily the best supplied in the world, really awash in goods in many instances, only occasional shortages of food and clothing suffered by United States troops during the Civil War. And usually it was due to bad management, such as with the Army of the Potomac after the Battle of Fredericksburg, uh, when Ambrose Burnside proved so inept as an administrator that he was unable to get goods from warehouses that were literally bulging with food and uniforms and other things to the men in the Army of the Potomac who needed them in the lines opposite Lee's Army at Fredericksburg. The transportation system in the North also did very well during the conflict and again provides a tremendous contrast to what was happening with the transportation system in the Confederacy. We've seen how the Confederates put up with enormous disruptions of their transportation network. Not only did Union armies strike and destroy uh, many key sections of railroad and destroy bridges, the Confederates themselves destroyed much of their transportation network to try to slow Union armies down and a good part of the rest simply fell into disuse because the Confederates could not produce the things needed to repair worn-out parts of their track. Uh, that was not the case in the North. Transportation boomed, not only railroads, but also other sectors of the transportation network. Now, the North lost access to the Mississippi River for about two years, as we know. That had been a major artery carrying uh, 
products out of the Midwest and elsewhere in the north, out through New Orleans, but also bringing some things upriver. The north made up for that loss, at least in part, by expanding the east-west Great Lakes and canal trade. They moved a lot of things west to east that previously had been moved north to south along the Mississippi River. Uh, The Erie Canal carried 50% more tonnage during each of the war years than during the peak antebellum years. Increased internal water commerce and the needs of the Union Navy gave northern shipbuilding a tremendous boost. A good period if you were in that business. Railroads grew even more rapidly in the north than did water transport. Several northern railroads, in fact, doubled their traffic, uh, their volume of traffic during the conflict. And only one, the Baltimore and Ohio, was vulnerable to Confederate destruction. All the Confederate railroads, of course, were subject to disruption. Only the B&O was for the North. We've seen why in the formation of West Virginia, those last two counties were added to the roster to bring the total up to 50. That was so the B&O would always be in United States territory where it dipped into those counties below the Potomac. The B&O, even though it ended up in West Virginia, still uh, was subject to some threat from the Confederacy. Lee's army during the Antietam campaign in 1862 struck at different parts of the B&O after withdrawing back into Virginia and maintaining a position along the Potomac. And Jubal Early's little army of the valley in 1864 also tried to interrupt the B&O, tried to tear up small parts of it and interdict some of the goods that moved along it. But for the most part, the B&O made it through the war relatively unscathed, and the rest of the railroads in the north did uh, entirely. The improvements were significant in railroad transport in the north. Gauges were standardized. This had been a problem uh, before the war. Uh, There was not a standard gauge for railroads either in the north or the south, and you often had the phenomenon of a railroad coming in from one direction to a city with one gauge. Uh, The goods need to go out a different direction on a different gauge, and you would have to unload everything, uh, put it in drays, Uh, reloaded on the other side of town, it was a problem. Uh, The North did a good deal to help rectify this problem during the course of the war. Much work in standardizing gauges. North built many new bridges, improved old bridges, laid new track, produced cars that were both larger and uh, better rolling stock than their uh, earlier versions had been, and also made a number of improvements in locomotives. The government intervened occasionally to see that the railroads met the needs of the military, but not very often. The North fought the war with minimal government intrusion in the economy, another uh, quite remarkable element of this this whole economic performance. But occasionally, the northern government did intervene, as it did uh, when the great movement of troops from the Army of the Potomac West to reinforce the Union forces at Chattanooga took place, Uh, the old 11th and 12th Corps from the Army of the Potomac, moving to the Tennessee Theater uh, in the autumn of 1863. There was a a really impressive degree of cooperation between the United States military and the owners and managers of the railroads that made that transfer of 20,000 troops or so a model of what this kind of cooperation would bring. Again, a great contrast between how the North shifted all those troops from Virginia to the West and how the Confederacy did it when it shifted James Longstreet's two divisions to reinforce Braxton Bragg. They're essentially doing the same thing, but the 
the much better quality of the northern railroads, the tremendous cooperation between the military and the government made the northern movement a model uh, that put the Confederate movement to shame, really. In occupied areas of the South, the United States Army took over the railroads and created what was called the USMRR, the United States Military Railroad. The United States Military Railroad, by the end of the war, operated more than 2,000 miles of track in the South, had more than 400 locomotives, more than 6,000 cars, and stood as the largest railroad in the world, and also one of the more efficient ones. There was an absolutely splendid group of engineers who worked with the United States Military Railroad, engineers, not uh, locomotive engineers, but engineers uh, trained uh, to build things. Uh, they became absolutely proficient at repairing bridges, building new bridges, improving sections of track. Uh, the U.S. Military Railroad was a very impressive operation as we go toward the end of the war. If we scan the rest of the northern economy just to see how selected other sectors of it performed during the war, uh, we can see that some did very well and others less so. Uh, understandably, one of the hardest hit elements of the northern economy was textile manufacturing dependent on southern cotton. It was a very rough time for much of the conflict for this part of the northern economy. It suffered tremendously because of the loss of southern cotton. We've seen the ways in which the United States government tried to bring cotton to the north. We've seen Abraham Lincoln's concern about sources of cotton in Texas when he wanted to move to the Trans-Mississippi after the Vicksburg campaign, for example. Nathaniel P. Banks, uh, as the commander in the Trans-Mississippi aiming toward Texas, he was from Massachusetts, as we've said, he was also very interested in getting control of sources of cotton in Louisiana and Texas so that that cotton could end up in the mills uh, in New England. Uh, we've seen that some Southerners were willing to sell cotton to the North, quoted from some of them, uh, to make money during the war. Southern profiteers, Confederate profiteers, uh, that cotton also ended up in New England, most of it. But all of these sources together did not begin to make up for the fact that the, the, the huge amount of Southern cotton that had gone into these northern mills was cut off during the war. So the textile, cotton textile industry hurt. The woolen industry, in contrast, doubled during the war. Two million men are serving in the United States Army, and they're wearing woolen pants, jackets, coats, overcoats, a tremendous source uh, of business for people in the woolen industry. The Army, again, a magnificent uh, source of sales for people who produce woolen goods. All of this increased production of wool didn't make up for the loss in cotton production, but it certainly did help the wool manufacturers. Now, the second largest pre-war industry in the North was shoe production. Shoe production initially took a dip when war broke out because Southerners had purchased a, an enormous number of shoes from the North before the war. They'd bought shoes from the North and from abroad. It took the North a while to recover from this once again, the principal factor that allowed shoe manufacturing to thrive later in the war, government contracts. Those two million men also needed shoes, and they were marching around a lot and wearing shoes out. That was even better for shoe manufacturers. Huge army contracts provided a great deal of profit for the shoe manufacturers. Other industries, iron and coal, for example, experienced early war slumps. But eventually they exceeded their pre-war outputs. And military-related industries, as you might expect, 
absolutely uh, boomed. Some of them went off the chart in terms of how well they did during the war. Firearms, uh, the Springfield uh, Company, Colt, and many smaller companies did extremely well. Uh, Gunpowder, the DuPont uh, family, added uh, tremendously to their already substantial wealth during the war. Uh, The leather industry produced goods that all those horses and mules uh, that pulled wagons and cannons and carried cavalrymen around for the United States Army. The leather companies sold an enormous amount to those sources in the military as well as the the leather hardware that the soldiers carried. Copper-producing industry sold percussion caps by the hundreds of millions to the north, wagon building, any industry that produced something that the army needed in significant quantity tended to thrive during the war in the north. Now, mechanization and factories also spread during the war. Firearms and ready-made clothing were two notable examples. Again, the technology is not really new during the war, but it's applied much more widely during the war. The sewing machine, for example, was developed in the 1850s, but during the war it was put into general use and made massive production of ready-made clothing possible. The concept of standard sizes for clothing and shoes that differentiated between right and left feet came into wide use in the war because of, once again, the need to clothe and provide shoes for two million men in the United States Army. Before the war, if you bought a pair of shoes or boots, they would be made specifically for you, either by, and the same with clothing. Either a tailor would make the clothing or a bootmaker would make your boots or, or you would do it uh, at home. That You would have a relative who made the clothing, whatever. You didn't go buy something off the shelf. The Civil War marks the beginning of the time in United States history where this ready-made clothing, pre-sized clothing, was widely available and widely produced. Labor had a mixed experience during the Civil War. Uh, quite mixed, in fact. Wages didn't keep up with inflation during the course of the war. The war saw many strikes, uh, several of which uh, had at least a small component of violence. Sometimes these strikes resulted in higher wages for the workers. Uh, often they did not. It depended on the industry. There were labor shortages in some heavy industrial sectors of the economy because so many men had gone into the army. And the shortages in those specialties uh, tended uh, to yield better results for labor that was seeking uh, better conditions than in parts of the uh, industrial setup of the North where there was at least an adequate labor force. There was tremendous antagonism between deep coal miners in Pennsylvania and the owners of those mines. And the the miners said that the owners had worked out a deal with the United States government where the government would work to hold the laboring part of this industry down, would always come in on the side of the mine owners, and would do so in the name of national security. How can these miners uh, threaten to slow down production? How can these miners go against uh, the production quotas that the mine owners have set? By doing that, uh, they might hurt Union military forces in the field. That's what labor said government did, and there was a good deal uh, of truth in their complaints. Quite a bit of friction in that industry and friction in others as well. Overall, wages do not keep up with inflation. Some parts of the economy, labor does better than in others. Historians have argued a great deal about whether the Civil War 
spurred really was the takeoff point for the great economic development in the latter decades of the 19th century, or whether it actually retarded development that was already in place, just about to take off in the 1850s, and then here comes the war and completely discombobulates the economy by forcing production into areas that would not have been emphasized without the war. People are still arguing about this. Historians are still arguing about it, but I think it's safe to say a couple of things. One is that all of the technological breakthroughs uh, that helped to fuel this late 19th century explosion of the American economy uh, were in place before the Civil War. The war, the demands of the war did not yield a number of breakthroughs that would then be turned to peacetime uses after the war. Uh, That simply didn't happen. The technology was in place. The other thing that can be said about the war as a Uh, if you're looking at it in the broader pattern of 19th century economic development, is that it marked an absolute watershed in terms of a redistribution of wealth in the United States, skewed dramatically toward the North, dramatically toward the North. For while the South largely lay in ruins in 1865, uh, Northern production was not only healthy, but growing. And that disparity would continue for many decades. In fact, the gap would widen for many decades. It wouldn't be until well into the 20th century uh, with the rise of the Sun Belt that the South came to rival the North and West in terms of economic strength and diversity. Uh, The story of the economy in the North during the war is really a quite spectacular one. Let's move on to non-military legislation uh, pushed by the Republican Party during the war. The Republicans weren't just fighting a war, of course. They had had an ideology before the war. They had an economic program that they wanted to push, very similar to much of the old Whig economic program, and before the Whigs, the Federalist economic program, Hamiltonian ideas about the economy, vigorous uh, involvement of the federal government in the economic sector, a national bank uh, pushing internal improvements, canals and river and harbor improvements and so forth tariffs to protect fledgling industries, the Republicans were able during the war to push their agenda because the Democrats from the South, who had opposed much of this legislation in the past, were gone. It gave the Republicans a much freer hand to be successful with this kind of legislation. Legislation that gave impetus to the free labor and capitalist development that Republicans envisioned for the United States. This movement toward a powerful, modern economic colossus that the Republicans had in mind for the United States. Let's look at just four pieces of this legislation quickly. We'll start with the national banking system. The Republicans wanted to get away from the chaos of the state-chartered banks that had issued that welter of currencies. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the course. All of those currencies, some of which good in the, were only good in a very narrow area, others that might be accepted a bit farther away, But the picture was not one conducive to sustain national growth in the view of the Republicans. They wanted a more uh, uniform national currency watched over by a central banking structure. In February 1863, Congress passed the National Bank Act. It was almost a strictly party-line vote. Nearly 80% of the Republicans voted for it. More than 90% of the Democrats voted against it. Uh, those Democrats in the old tradition of, of Andrew Jackson and other antebellum Democrats who had hated the idea of a national bank, had favored a more local control, had favored state and local banks. 
This legislation said that a bank could obtain a federal charter and issue national bank notes up to 90% of the value of national bonds it held. This spurred sale of bonds uh, to help the war effort as well. In March 1865, a 10% tax was placed on all state bank notes, and those were soon driven out of circulation. State banks were forced to apply for federal charters. By the end of 1865, state banks held just one-sixth of the nation's assets. Another five years, they had virtually disappeared. The Legal Tender Act, which we also discussed earlier, uh, with its greenbacks, uh, also contributed to a more stable currency in the North. So that's one area in which the Republicans had their way. The Homestead Act was another. In May 1862, Congress passed the Homestead Act, which had long been sought by them and by some of their Whig predecessors, but opposed by the Democrats. This carried through on the old free soil idea of making western lands available to to free white farmers. It offered 160 acres of government land, to anyone who had lived on it for five years and made improvements. Eventually, 80 million acres were given out under the Homestead Act, three million of which were given out during the war. The Land-Grant College Act of 1862, or the Morale Act, named after Senator Justin Morale of Vermont, who sponsored it, is another major piece of Republican legislation. It gave each state 30,000 acres for each representative and senator that that state had, with the stipulation that the sale of that land would be used to establish at least one college within the state. And the college had a specific goal. That goal was to teach a new curriculum, to teach a curriculum not made up of Latin and Greek and the subjects that had dominated the sort of classic curriculum in colleges and universities in the United States, but to teach agricultural and mechanical arts. This would make education more relevant to the economic pursuits of the majority of Americans, argued the Republicans. We're going to train people who wouldn't have gone to college before, and we're going to train them in a way that will work to the benefit of our economy as we move toward the end of the century. Southerners and Democrats, had Southern Democrats as well as Northern Democrat allies, had previously blocked this legislation. I think it's really the most important piece, single piece, of federal educational legislation in U.S. history because so many of the great universities in the United States were founded under this legislation. Uh, Many of those that have state uh, in their title, uh, Michigan State, Kansas State, uh, Texas A&M, Penn State University, many great universities uh, that have made enormous contributions uh, in many areas came out of this Republican legislation. The last piece of legislation we'll look at is the Pacific Railroad Bill of July 1st, 1862. Now, Transcontinental Railroad had had support both north and south before the war. Both sides wanted a Transcontinental Railroad. Both sections did. But the question was, where would the eastern terminus be? Southerners hoped it would be somewhere in the south. Uh, Northerners thought that it would be a good idea uh, to have it farther north. Well, with the southern representatives and senators gone from the United States Congress, a bill passed making Omaha, Nebraska the eastern terminus and San Francisco the western terminus. Grants were provided for each mile of railroad built. The original grant, 6,400 acres of federal land and $16,000 in federal loans for every mile of the railroad that would be built. Those figures were both raised later. Out of this act drew the Union Pacific and Central Pacific and later the Southern Pacific Railroads. 
And out of 1864 legislation, the Northern Pacific Railroad grew. Subsequent grants totaled 120 million acres of federal land. This is an enormous uh, involvement of the United States government in what would have been called an internal improvement. Overall, these laws and other Republican legislation furthered the growth of modern capitalism, a national banking system with a more stable national currency, federal aid for railroads that would further development in the West, land-grant colleges that would train young people to be better farmers and engineers and mechanics, and free land for farmers that provided them with the capital asset most needed to begin a career in agriculture. In the absence of opposition from Southerners in Congress, the North was moving rapidly toward a new order that would dominate the nation for many decades to come. The ability of the North to fight a major war and pursue economic development engendered a feeling of great optimism across the northern states. William Tecumseh Sherman's brother, who was a senator from Ohio, John Sherman, commented shortly after Appomattox on this phenomenon. He said, the truth is, the close of the war with our resources unimpaired gives an elevation to the ideas of leading capitalists far higher than anything undertaken in this country before. They talk of millions now as confidently as they talked formerly of thousands. I think this attitude, again, in the North provided a stark contrast to that in a South racked by years of wearing combat and with an economy that was in terrible shape in April of 1865. We'll leave the North now with its economy uh, doing so well, uh, a largely upbeat topic, really. And we'll move to a much darker aspect of the Civil War with our next lecture. We'll look next time at prisons and prisoners of war. Lecture 42, Prisoners of War. In this lecture, we're going to look at prisoners and prisoners of war in both the Union and the Confederacy during the conflict. There are very few aspects of the war that were as emotionally charged as the question of care for prisoners uh, taken by both sides. Uh, each side charged the other with atrocities. Uh, each charged the other with failure to provide minimal care in terms of clothing and food and medical attention uh, for their prisoners. And one of the prisoner of war camps at Andersonville in southern Georgia uh, has come to symbolize the horrors uh, faced by all the men captured in battle or captured somehow by the other side during the conflict. Before moving on to various questions relating to prisoners and prisoners of war, I'll issue a warning, and that concerns the literature on this aspect of the Civil War. I don't think there's another part of the literature that is as unreliable, uh, as prone to be sensational, as prone to make things up as the literature on prisoners and prisoners, uh, prisoner of war camps. The literature on Anderson prison is especially unreliable. The diaries or purported diaries and memoirs written by Union soldiers who spent time at Andersonville or who allegedly spent time at Andersonville, as a group, 
have almost no value as historical documents because so much of these accounts were simply made up out of whole cloth. They were written for a specific audience. That audience uh, was an audience looking for very gory details about the war, evidence of how vile the Confederates were, a proof uh, Jefferson Davis and some of his chief subordinates had known that Union prisoners of war were being badly treated and either turned uh, the other way or actively encouraged some of their subordinates uh, to make sure that the Union prisoner of war experience was a terrible one. There's a Confederate side to this literature as well. Uh, former Confederate prisoners of war, and again, some who weren't really prisoners of war, writing accounts of their time in northern prisons. They were writing with, agenda, with an agenda as well. They wanted to counter uh, what they considered propaganda put out uh, by the North about how awful the South had treated prisoners. These southern accounts said, in effect, well, they were just as bad as we were. No, they were worse because the North had all the things they needed to feed and clothe and house our prisoners. They chose not to do a better job. We weren't able to do a better job, said many of these Southern accounts, because like the men in our armies, uh, we simply weren't able to provide enough things to these Northern prisoners. Our own soldiers were hungry. Our own soldiers weren't well shod. Our own soldiers didn't have all the clothing they needed. How could we be expected to provide those things for Union prisoners? So they're really worse than we are, or than we were, said these lost cause writers when they talked about how the North had done in this regard during the war. So just, I would say again, be very careful about approaching literature that deals with prisons and prisoners of war. There's been a relatively small scholarly literature on the subject, only a handful of books that meet the highest standards of scholarship, I think. Uh, the most obvious example probably being William Marvel's book on Andersonville called Andersonville, The Last Depot. It's good to have that kind of book on Andersonville because Andersonville has inspired the most uh, outrageous literature through the years. Well, all right, with that uh, little warning out of the way, let's move toward a consideration of prisoners and prisoners and the sites where they were held. Let's start with the size of the overall problem. It was enormous. Not counting those men uh, who were captured in the field and paroled, so they didn't go uh, to a camp. I'll talk about the parole system in just a minute. But not counting those men, the North took 215,000 Confederates and the Confederates about 195,000 Federals. The parole system, just very briefly, uh, which was in place for the early part of the war and sporadically later in the war, worked this way. It worked in conjunction with the exchange system, the idea being that if the Confederates captured 100 prisoners and the Federals captured 100 prisoners, they would simply exchange them. Those men would go back to their units. Neither side would hold prisoners. But if one side captured more, if the Federals captured 100 and the Confederates only captured 90, uh, that would leave that difference of 10. Uh, those men, the 90 would be exchanged on each side. The 10 would sign a parole, which was a promise uh, not to go back into the service until the other side had captured enough to exchange them. Paroled prisoners uh, would follow different courses. Some were simply allowed to go home on their honor, so to speak. Others were taken to places where they'd be held. Uh, sometimes paroled prisoners were taken to their own sides, camps, 
prisoner of war camps and held there. Uh, that happened to a number of the Union prisoners who were taken at Harper's Ferry by Stonewall Jackson in September of 1862. A number of them ended up uh, in northern prisoner of war camps built to house Confederate prisoners. Uh, these Union soldiers weren't at all happy about that, as you might expect. And uh, might expect they rioted. Uh, some of them did. They tried to burn down their barracks, and they otherwise made it clear that they didn't think that's how they should be treated. They'd been soldiers, they'd been paroled, and now here we are in these terrible circumstances. But the exchange and parole system was designed to limit the number of prisoners held on each side. This isn't something fabricated during the Civil War. There's a long history uh, of treating prisoners of war this way. This isn't something that, that is unique to the Civil War. But the men who did end up uh, being captured and sent to camps were taken to various places, north and south. The most famous northern prison camps were Camp Douglas near Chicago on Lake Michigan, uh, Johnson's Island, Camp Douglas was named after Stephen A. Douglas, Johnson's Island in Lake Erie, Point Lookout, Maryland, uh, Fort Delaware on Peapatch Island, and Elmira in New York. I'll talk more about Elmira later. It's the most infamous of the northern camps. The most famous southern camps, uh, far and away the most famous, was Andersonville in Georgia, uh, Libby Prison in Richmond, another very famous Confederate camp. Uh, Belle Isle, which was a little island in the James River uh, near Richmond, was another one. And Salisbury Prison in North Carolina was a fourth. Those are probably the best known of the camps. But there were many, many, literally dozens of places uh, where prisoners were held on both sides. Some held just a few. Some penitentiaries even were used. The Ohio State Penitentiary was used to hold a number of Confederate prisoners, including General John Hunt Morgan, who was captured in 1863 and escaped uh, from the Ohio State Penitentiary. The prisons on each side can be grouped into broad categories, different kinds of places uh, where prisoners would be sent. And let me just run down five different types of prisons. One consisted of previously constructed fortifications uh, that were converted to use as prisons. Fort Warren, uh, built as part of the maritime defenses in Boston Harbor, would be an example of this kind, as would Castle Pinckney, an old fortification in Charleston Harbor. Uh, both of those converted to hold prisoners of war. There were also old buildings that had had various uses before the war, which were converted into prisons. Libby Prison in Richmond is an example of that. It was a former warehouse uh, down near Rockets Landing on the James River in Richmond, a huge uh, cavernous old warehouse building that during the war was filled with Union prisoners. There were also comparable places uh, in the north. A third type of prison camp consisted of tents, uh, just tents spread out over an area heavily guarded by soldiers uh, from the army uh, that was that had done the capturing. Point Lookout is an example of this type of camp, which is a huge camp located in Maryland uh, where the Potomac River joins Chesapeake Bay. Belle Isle on the Confederate side is one of these tent camps. As I said, it's on a small island in the James River opposite Richmond. Uh, several thousand Union soldiers were crowded onto Belle Isle uh, with tents as their only shelter. A fourth type of prison could be called stockades. Uh, they look sort of like the Hollywood movie uh, vision of what a western fort looked like. That is a palisaded 
or stockaded fort. Of course, there wasn't that kind of wood to build forts like that in the real uh, west of the United States. They tended to be adobe or stone. But in Hollywood, that's what they're made out of, and that's what these stockades looked like uh, in the Civil War. Andersonville in Georgia was the most famous of them. Uh, Salisbury in North Carolina was another. Palisaded enclosures where the prisoners would be pretty much left to their own devices to construct their shelters. Uh, whatever they could find, uh, they could use to try to create a shelter. And finally, uh, a fifth type of prison was an enclosed barracks. Uh, sets of barracks built and then put inside a wall or some other barrier. Elmira in New York was an example of that kind of prisoner of war camp. So those are the different kinds of sites prisoners might find themselves sent to. Many of the sites uh, did not have nice weather, it's worth adding. Uh, many in the north uh, were next to water uh, in places where it got very cold in the winter, so there was dampness that caused tremendous discomfort to the men who were held in those places. Uh, many of those in the south were in low ground uh, where fetid conditions and extremely hot weather in the summer took a tremendous toll on the Union soldiers who were sent to them. With the exception of Andersonville, which really stands by itself in terms of scale and the number of dead and so forth, conditions were roughly the same for many of the Confederate and Federal prisoners. Now, some places had much lower rates of death than others, but it is possible to generalize about conditions in most of these prisons. Most had very poor sanitary arrangements, bad water, uh, rampant disease, and it was common on both sides to have second or third echelon soldiers far from the best uh, human material on each side who behaved quite brutally toward the prisoners in many cases. Food, shelter, and clothing were typically somewhat better in the north. Not markedly better, but somewhat better. Medical care was about the same north and south except that because of the blockade, the South often ran short of medical supplies, as it did in, his armies, uh, in its armies as well. The death rate overall for northern prisoners held by the Confederacy was about 15.5%. 30,000 prisoners, plus or minus a few, died in Confederate captivity. 13,000 of them died at Andersonville. 26,000 Confederate prisoners died in northern captivity just a shade more than 12%. So there's a bit higher death rate among Union prisoners than among Confederate prisoners. The lack of sufficient medicine and food in the South probably accounted for much of the difference in mortality rates. Now, the North, the Lost Cause writers actually had a point of sorts in saying that the North certainly could have fed and clothed Confederate prisoners uh, much more humanely. I don't think anyone really would dispute that. Uh, the fact that the North didn't, in some instances, uh, stemmed from either policy, official policy. Secretary of War Stanton, for example, on more than one occasion, uh, decreed that rations be cut uh, for southern soldiers held in northern prisons. And at other times, he uh, vetoed suggestions to build better shelter uh, for Confederate prisoners. But either local circumstances, that is the nature of the local uh, officers in charge, or directives from further up the chain of command, in some instances, uh, led to poorer treatment for Confederate prisoners. Now, in the defense of Stanton and others, uh, it's important for us to understand that they often acted on the basis of what they had heard the Confederacy was doing to northern prisoners. They believed that calculated cruelty 
was taking place uh, vis-a-vis the northern prisoners in the south. They really did believe that. They weren't uh, acting uh, capriciously in in a mean-spirited way. They believed that northern soldiers were suffering terribly, and they believed uh, that it was just that Confederate prisoners should suffer at least to a significant degree in the north. The prisoner of war problem didn't really reach a crisis stage until 1864. And the reason that it did not was because the prisoner exchange system worked very well in the earlier stages of the war. In July 1862, the governments agreed to a program of exchanging equal numbers of prisoners with the surplus on one side to be paroled until officially exchanged, as I mentioned earlier. There was a scale, a a, a table, if you like, of how this would work. A general would be worth so many privates and a colonel worth so many and on down the line, a one-for-one exchange for privates. But if you happen to have a couple of generals, uh, you could redeem a lot of your uh, infantrymen, for example. By the end of 1862, there were very few prisoners being held on either side. The agreement broke down in 1863 primarily for two reasons. The first was the Emancipation Proclamation and the appearance in Union armies of significant numbers of black soldiers. There's a great scene in the movie Glory where the black soldiers are drawn up. I think it's at night and probably in the rain. And Robert Gould Shaw, their colonel, comes out and reads uh, from a, a paper that has Jefferson Davis's pronouncement on how black soldiers and their white officers will be treated if captured. And the gist of it is that the officers will be subject to execution and the black soldiers will not be treated as prisoners of war but will be treated as runaway slaves and returned to the states to be dealt with accordingly. Union Secretary of War Stanton immediately ordered that exchanges cease. For Confederate officers. He said, we'll hold them as hostages. If the Confederacy executes any of our white officers commanding black units, we will retaliate. We'll execute in reaction to that. So this is a major problem with the exchange system, the appearance of black men in Union uniforms and the Confederacy's absolute refusal to treat them as regular prisoners of war. They and their officers both uh, potentially subject to these harsh punishments from the Confederates. The second factor in 1863 was that after the fall of Vicksburg and Port Hudson in July of that year, U.S. Grant and the other federal commanders had on their hands more than 35,000 Union prisoners, excuse me, Confederate prisoners of war. They were paroled, all of them. But the Confederacy put many of those men back in uniform before they had been exchanged. And when the North found out about that, they were rightly outraged that the paroles had been violated and exchanges by the end of 1863 had virtually come to a halt. December of 1863, 26,000 Confederates and 13,000 Federals were being held as prisoners of war. The Confederacy refused to change its policy regarding black soldiers. The North refused to compromise on the issue, and so they were at an impasse. That's the situation No exchange in place, and then you come to the campaigns of the spring of 1864 and the enormous losses of the Overland campaign particularly. The prisoners captured on each side in the campaigning in 64 filled the prisons on each side to overflowing. The Confederacy suggested another exchange, but still refused to treat black soldiers as prisoners of war. By that time, Ulysses S. Grant, who's general-in-chief, 
had decided that the exchange system on the whole worked to the advantage of the Confederacy. The Confederacy had fewer men, and therefore if they could exchange, it would help them. The North could make up its losses more easily than could the Confederacy. This is what Grant wrote about the subject. It's hard on our men, he said, held in southern prisons, not to exchange them, but it is humanity to those left in the ranks to fight our battles. Maybe we'll end the war sooner. Maybe we'll have fewer casualties if we don't exchange these prisoners and give the Confederacy those men back. Now, many Confederates blamed the policy of no exchanges on Grant. They said, we would have exchanged troops all of the horrors of Andersonville, the horrors of Elmira. Camps north and south would not have taken place except for Ulysses S. Grant. They said, he's the one who stopped the exchanges. We could have avoided so much misery if it hadn't been for Grant. But of course, uh, that's really not the truth because the exchange system had broken down before Grant to a large extent. And one of the huge problems was that the Confederacy wouldn't treat black troops as prisoners of war. Grant, in October of 1864, exchanged messages with Lee on the subject of exchanges. And Grant said that he would be willing to resume exchanges on the condition that black soldiers be included. Uh, Lee, uh, acting uh, as his government wanted him to act, said no. They're outside. We'd like to exchange white soldiers. And so the negotiations stalled. Now, there began to be a turn in this impasse in late 1864 when some sailors were exchanged without regard to color. Uh, there's a little bit of a history here. Black and white men served together on Union vessels, uh, United States naval vessels. They had in the antebellum years. They did during the Civil War. It was much more difficult to segregate sailors on a vessel than it was to segregate regiments of white and black troops. Uh, so sailors, there was a history of integrated crews on vessels. And in the fall of 1864, uh, some sailors were exchanged without regard to color. Then in the winter of 64-65, each side agreed to exchange thousands of wounded and sick prisoners, again, regardless of color. Finally, in January of 1865, the Confederate government agreed to exchange all prisoners and the number of prisoners released on each side soon reached about 1,000 per day. Following the Confederate surrenders in April and May of 1865, all the remaining prisoners were exchanged, many of them in very feeble condition, but at least they were allowed to go home. Now let's finish by looking at Andersonville Prison and Elmira Prison in New York as examples of uh, Civil War camps at their worst. Andersonville wins that dubious honor, I think, uh, taking into account all factors. It deserves special mention, not only because of its infamous reputation, but because of the scale of death and the scale of misery at Andersonville. It was built in early 1864. The idea was to accommodate 15,000 prisoners at Andersonville. All it was was a rectangular stockade, 16 and a half acres, absolutely open, no shelter of any kind, for the prisoners at Andersonville. The first captives arrived in February of 1864. The 15,000-man capacity was reached by May 1864, and 33,000 men were packed into Andersonville by August of 1864, the middle of the broiling Georgia sun. 
uh, the broiling Georgia summer, I should say, 33,000 federal prisoners packed into this camp. Andersonville, in many ways, represented a city. It literally had different neighborhoods. It had wealthier neighborhoods. It had poorer neighborhoods. Uh, there was choice ground and less advantageous uh, sections of the camp to live in. It had been expanded beyond the 16 and a half acres, so some of the ground was low-lying and, and more dangerous in terms of health. There was higher ground, and the soldiers who had a few more things, however they would manage to hold on to them in the camp, would be in the better neighborhoods. Others would be in the poorer neighborhoods. Uh, there was even a black section of Andersonville. About 110 black soldiers and one black officer were at Andersonville. The overwhelming number of men at Andersonville were enlisted men, a handful of officers, many of whom had removed their insignia and, and had gone in as enlisted men to be with their soldiers. But this handful of black soldiers, some from the 54th Massachusetts, uh, these men had been captured at Alusty at Florida in February of 1864, some of them veterans of the attack against Battery Wagner, the famous attack of the 54th. Twelve of these 110 black soldiers died, a much lower mortality rate uh, than that experienced by the more than 41,000 white prisoners who would go through Andersonville. The prison doctors refused to treat the black prisoners at Andersonville, who kept to themselves and were shunned by most of the white prisoners as well as by their Confederate guards. Apart from this shunning, however, it appears that they were treated generally about the same as the Union uh, white prisoners at Andersonville. There was crime within the encampment at Andersonville, prisoner-on-prisoner crime. Uh, there was an especially violent uh, group of inmates or prisoners uh, who came to be called the Raiders by their comrades uh, in, uh, in captivity. These people preyed on new men as they came in. They stole whatever the new men had. They often beat them savagely. They sometimes killed them. The problem got so serious uh, that some of the general prison population went to Henry Wirtz, who was the Confederate commandant uh, at Andersonville, asked if they caught them and put some of them on trial if the Confederates would back up the sentences. Uh, Wirt said yes, and you had this quite uh, amazing spectacle of prisoners putting some of their fellows on trial, sentencing some of them to hang, and then watching them hang in Andersonville prison. So it's a city really with many of the problems that any city would have, only it's an incredibly closely packed city where there's a general degree of misery, but gradations within that general degree of misery. Conditions overall quite shocking uh, at Andersonville. Virtually no shelter. Uh, population went up and down. In November 1864, the camp was virtually empty because Confederates had emptied it out in anticipation of William Tecumseh Sherman's army coming by and perhaps liberating uh, the prisoners. Only about 200 left at that stage of the war, uh, including several of the black men. More prisoners came back early in 1865 and more than 12,000 came back once Sherman's army swept through and the threat seemed passed. Another 12,000 or so Federals would come into and then pass out of Andersonville. Of the more than 41,000 who found themselves at Andersonville, many died from a combination of exposure, hunger, and disease caused by filth and an almost absolute lack of sanitary planning. There was one little stream that ran through the compound, and the men uh, used it for drinking water, the men used it to wash their clothes, and they used it for a great open urinal as well. It was just a tremendously uh, rich environment 
uh, for illness on the part of the soldiers. At its worst, 100 men a day died at Andersonville, and the death toll, as I said earlier, reached 13,000 men. Overall, about a 29% rate of mortality for the Union soldiers at Andersonville. Now, the commandant, a man named Henry Wirtz, was executed in 1865, the only Confederate executed for war crimes. I think it's understandable uh, that he would be the one to pay that price because Andersonville was a very emotional topic in the North. There were pictures of released prisoners who look like Auschwitz uh, victims, really. They're absolutely living skeletons. These were very, very emotionally charged pictures in the North, and the Northern public became very exercised uh, about this. The war probably needed at least one scapegoat, and Henry Wirtz fit the bill. I think that a more likely one would have been General John H. Winder, who was the overall uh, director of Confederate prisoner of war camps, in a sense. He was at least as culpable as Wirtz, uh, but he was not foreign-born as Wirtz was. I think Wirtz was an easier target, and his hanging seemed to satisfy uh, the demand in the North to have at least one sort of symbolic uh, execution of a former Confederate. So Andersonville is the worst. But let's, for comparative purposes, look at Elmira in New York, which is in some ways the northern analog of Andersonville. Elmira began as a rendezvous camp for Union volunteers in 1861, but due to the increased number of Confederate prisoners, uh, the barracks there uh, were ordered to be converted into a site for a prison in May of 1864. The early estimates were that there might be as many as 10,000 Confederates who would be held at Elmira. It was a 30-acre site altogether. June 30, 1864, it was ready to receive its first prisoners. It had 35 two-story barracks, uh, each 100 feet by 20 feet, very shoddy construction, uh, green lumber. Uh, the, the roofs weren't sealed properly. Uh, the wind could blow in and out of these barracks. It was really a case of slapping something together without much regard for the condition of the people who would be in them. Other bad features of the place were a terrible climate, and a one-acre lagoon within the stockade. It was really a backwash from a nearby river, was stagnant, and would breed disease. It served as a latrine and a garbage dump. July 6th, the first several hundred prisoners arrived. By the end of July, more than 4,000. By mid-August, nearly 10,000. Some were in the barracks, some housed in overflow tents, some sleeping in the open. Conditions were wretched. At Elmira, soldiers suffered from cold later in the year, many from exposure and from various diseases. The rations also left a good deal uh, to be desired. Medical care, minimal at best. The death rate at Elmira of 12,123 soldiers imprisoned there, 2,963 died. Uh, just about a 25% mortality rate. Not quite as high as Andersonville nor as high as Salisbury Prison in North Carolina, which had the highest rate of any of the camps, but held uh, far fewer prisoners uh, than did Andersonville, for example. There's not much positive to find in the treatment of prisoners on either side during the war, although some camps did have much lower rates of mortality uh, than others. Uh, among those with very low rates was Johnson's Island near Sandusky, Ohio, uh, fewer than 300 prisoners uh, died there in the course of the war. It didn't hold as many as some of the huge camps, but they seemed to do a much better job there than they did at other places. Camp Douglas, uh, Illinois, 
Outside Chicago, more nearly 4,500 Confederate prisoners died there. Salisbury Prison, nearly 4,000 Union prisoners died there. Uh, so there's a big difference from camp to camp. But overall, a miserable experience for soldiers on either side who happened to find themselves in a prisoner of war camp. Uh, really not much to be proud of on this question. Uh, on either side, and that may have been one reason why each side was so quick to accuse the other of horrific actions uh, after the war. I think each knew that they hadn't done a good job and tried to push the spotlight onto the other side and show how awful the enemy had been, uh, in a sense, uh, to make sure that they didn't look quite as bad. Well, next time we'll return to the military front. Uh, to a topic that will be bloody, but in some ways uh, not as depressing as prisoner of war camps. We'll look at Union triumphs at Mobile Bay in Atlanta in August and September 1864, successes that came during a time of very low morale in the North, and successes that helped turn the Union toward final victory. Lecture 43, Mobile Bay and Atlanta. With this lecture, we return to the military front. Uh, after having taken a look at prisoners and prisoners of war last time, uh, we're coming into the summer and autumn of 1864. We'll begin with an overview of the strategic situation at that stage of the conflict, reiterating some themes that we've raised before about how critical a time this was for the Union. Then we will look again at David Glasgow Farragut's capture of Mobile Bay in early August, this time with our emphasis on the political implications of that success. And we'll close with the Siege of Atlanta and the immense importance of Sherman's eventual victory there over John Bell Hood and the Army <clears throat> of Tennessee. Let's start with a look at what was at stake in the summer of 64. The two sides braced in July and moving into August for what would prove to be some of the most critical military operations of the conflict. The North had to have victories. Lincoln understood that. As I've said before, uh, Northern public morale, civilian morale, bottomed out in the summer of 1864 in July and August. Lincoln knew that without victories, the Republican Party almost certainly would not be successful in the elections that coming November. The northern people had been severely tested. They'd been tested by the casualties from the Overland campaign, and they had been tested because their high hopes from March and April of 1864 uh, had been dashed by Grant's failure to defeat Lee decisively or capture Richmond, by Sherman's failure to capture Atlanta, and by the really wretched performances of Benjamin Butler below Richmond, of Nathaniel P. Banks out west, and of Union forces in the Shenandoah Valley. All of that bad news that we've talked about. And they also read in their newspapers that Mobile Bay remained in Confederate hands and blockade runners moved in and out of it. It seemed to be one place that the United States military had not been able to seal off. Grant had wanted to, as we've seen before, uh, way back in the aftermath of Vicksburg, but it hadn't happened yet. 
What Grant hoped to do in Virginia was keep Lee pinned down while Sherman captured Atlanta and then marched into the Confederate interior and began to apply the strategy of exhaustion. Uh, in the meantime, Grant started another force into the Shenandoah Valley. We mentioned this briefly before uh, under General David Hunter. Grant wanted Hunter to begin to lay waste to sections of the Shenandoah Valley. Hoped that Hunter would also cut the rail lines that connected Lee's army in eastern Virginia uh, with the logistical heartland of the Shenandoah Valley. On the Confederate side, it was apparent that the November elections might have enormous impact in terms of how the rest of the war played out. The Confederates knew their backs were against the wall. They knew that both Richmond and Atlanta uh, were in extreme danger. But they also knew, and they said this repeatedly in newspapers and in their diaries and letters, if we can just hold on in Richmond and Atlanta, if we can avoid defeats, that will be terrible for the Republicans. We don't have to win victories at these cities. What we need to do is hold the Yankees off in these two key arenas, and the Democratic Party might turn that into political success in November. And if the Democrats win, believe many Confederates, there might be a chance for a negotiated peace. Nobody knows, nobody knew for certain what would happen, but that's what they believed. That is what they were hanging their hopes on as they moved through the summer and into the fall. Most Confederates had a solid belief in Lee's ability to hold Grant at bay. They didn't really worry about that. What they did worry about was Atlanta. As one young officer in Lee's army put it, Lee certainly will hold firm, but Atlanta has become the vital point. The vital point, he said, that was the place that could undo the Confederates if something bad happened at Atlanta. Well, let's start with the first good news that the northern people received in this awful summer of 1864. That good news came from the Gulf, and it came from David Glasgow Farragut. We've touched on this before, but I think it's important to mention it here. This had been a prize long sought. There had been a number of reasons why the Union had not been able to capture Mobile Bay, and it had become one of the obvious uh, points in the Confederacy that the northern people wanted to check off their list of things that they'd accomplished. Most of the other ports were gone. They wanted Mobile Bay. The problem was that the inner bay was defended by a powerful group of forts. The most important of those was Fort Morgan, which was on the east side of the entrance to the bay. Fort Morgan was so strong that it had kept the blockading vessels away uh, from the entrance to the bay, and it had also covered blockade runners moving in and out of the bay. West of Fort Morgan was Fort Gaines, across the main channel uh, that led into Mobile Bay, and farther west yet was Fort Powell, which covered another channel that led into the bay. These forts, uh, formidable. There also were torpedoes or mines that the Confederates had placed in the channel, and also a little gunboat fleet, and one powerful ironclad on the Confederate side inside the bay, and that was the Tennessee, the powerful ironclad Tennessee. So Mobile Bay was a very imposing target. In early August, Farragut put together a fleet, 14 wooden ships, four monitors, ironclad monitors, and on August 5th, he attacked. I mentioned before that the Union vessels moved single file uh, to run past Fort Morgan. The leading northern ironclad, which was the Tecumseh, was sunk by the heavy fire 
uh, from the fort, but more specifically by a mine that it hit. It was taking heavy fire from the fort. It hit a mine and it went down. The whole line stopped. The whole line of Union vessels stopped. Farragut was furious. He wanted to know what was going on. Word came back that there were mines ahead, that the mines and the guns from the fort seemed uh, capable of frustrating uh, the Union effort. Farragut pulled his flagship out of line, which was a wooden vessel. The Hartford pulled it to the front of the line, and off they went. I gave you his famous quotation before. Uh, when someone said there, that they had better look out for mines, he said, or torpedoes, they would have said, he said, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, and off the Hartford went. The other vessels followed, and they got past the forts and into the bay. Once they got into the bay, the Tennessee came out to attack them. It ended up being the Tennessee against 17 Union vessels. All the Union vessels got in, except the Tecumseh, of course, which had been sunk, and they just sort of made a ring around the Tennessee and pounded it into submission. They rammed it a number of times. They raked it with broadsides, inflicted a number of casualties, including Admiral Franklin Buchanan, uh, who was its skipper, and the Tennessee had to capitulate. The other little gunboats were no match at all for the Union power. By that evening on August 5th, the Federals controlled the bay. Now, it would take 18 more days before they subdued the forts. It would be August 23rd before the forts had capitulated, but by that time in August, Mobile Bay was completely gone to the Confederates. The city didn't fall. It wouldn't fall until very late in the war, but it didn't matter. It was no longer of any use to the Confederacy as a port. Now, this was an a major psychological boost to the northern people to close Mobile Bay. But it was not nearly enough. This victory was not the kind of victory necessary to turn the tide as far as northern morale was concerned. In fact, long after Farragut's success on August 5th, the day, in fact, that all the forts fell, August 23rd, is the time that Abraham Lincoln wrote the famous blind memorandum that I mentioned before. I'll quote uh, the whole thing here, he wrote, did Lincoln this morning, as for some days past, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be reelected. Then it will be my duty to so cooperate with the president-elect as to save the union between the election and the inauguration, as he will have secured his election on such grounds that he cannot possibly save it afterwards. So Lincoln is in a very gloomy mood in late August, despite the capture of Mobile Bay at the beginning of the month. What is going to turn that around is events at Atlanta. And let's move to Atlanta right now. When John Bell Hood took over command of the Army of Tennessee, he understood what Jefferson Davis and the Confederate people expected from him. They expected offensive action that would somehow reverse the trend of the campaign from Chattanooga to Atlanta. It had always been... Sherman moving closer, 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 until finally the Confederates were behind the Chattahoochee River and essentially in Atlanta. The Confederate people and the Confederate government wanted that reversed. Davis was tired of Johnson's retreating without a fight. He wanted to see a real battle to save the city. It's important to remember this in judging what Hood did next. Uh, in retrospect, Hood was chastised again and again and again, both by contemporaries and by generations of historians, for taking the offensive uh, at Atlanta, as we'll see, and for losing so many soldiers 
That's what he was expected to do. We have to give him that much credit. It's much like Ambrose Burnside when he took command of the Army of the Potomac in November of 1862. He went on and fought uh, the aggressive Battle of Fredericksburg, not very imaginative, was heavily criticized later. But he also knew that he was under the gun to make something happen in Virginia. I think it's important for us to understand the context within which some of these failed operations took place. Hood is supposed to change things at Atlanta. He's supposed to make things happen. And in one sense, he was just the man to do that. He'd be born in Kentucky, graduated near the bottom of his West Point class, served six years in Texas before the war, and in effect became an adopted son of Texas. He led the famous Texas Brigade in Lee's army at Gaines's Mill. It was called Hood's Texas Brigade, really, for the rest of its history. And he subsequently achieved a reputation as a fierce fighter at Second Manassas and at Sharpsburg and elsewhere. Uh, he went up through the ranks, became a division commander uh, quite soon. Wherever he led troops, it seemed there would be successful attacks and very high casualties. Lee once said of Hood, he was all lion and none of the fox. He was known as a man who would gamble at long odds. One federal gem general remembered that in a pre-war uh, poker game, Hood bet a great deal of money without having even a pair in his hand. Now that's perhaps an apocryphal story, but it sheds light, I think, on Hood's reputation as a man who was willing to risk a very great deal, even in difficult circumstances. He was a tall, large man for his time, six feet, two inches tall, uh, blonde, only 33 years old at this point in the war. The war, however, had taken a cruel toll on what had once been uh, a robust and impressive figure. Uh, he'd lost the use of one arm from a wound at Gettysburg on July 2nd. He'd never regained the use of that arm. And he lost a leg at the hip at Chickamauga, the kind of wound that most people did not live through during the Civil War. To be to have a, a, a leg amputated at the hip usually meant that you weren't going to survive. Hood did survive. By the time of Atlanta, he had to be strapped into his saddle. Uh, after the war, he would move to New Orleans where he and his wife and one of their children died in a yellow fever epidemic in 1879, uh, leaving 10 orphans. But now Hood is in command in Atlanta, and very quickly, a series of battles that have come to be known the battles uh, as the battles for Atlanta, three major ones took place in rapid succession. Let's set the stage. After withdrawing from the Chattahoochee River line on July 8th and 9th, Joseph Johnston had taken up a position on the south side of Peachtree Creek. That placed the defending Confederates only about three miles north of Atlanta. And it was in that position that Hood found himself when he took command. Once across the Chattahoochee, Sherman advanced against Atlanta in three separate columns. Remember, he commands what we would call an army group. He has three armies. And he uses George H. Thomas's Army of the Cumberland to advance against Atlanta from the north. He uses Schofield's Army of the Ohio to come from the northeast. And he sent James B. McPherson's Army of the Tennessee on another of the wide turning movements uh, that he had employed, Sherman had employed, as he moved south from Chattanooga toward Atlanta. He hoped that McPherson could swing out to the east and come in against Atlanta from that direction and perhaps sever Atlanta's uh, rail communications to North Carolina and South Carolina in the process. 
Just before he was removed by Jefferson Davis, Joseph Johnston had put together a plan to strike Thomas's army just as or after it crossed Peachtree Creek. That's what Johnston finally told Davis he wanted to do. Uh, Davis doubted that Johnston would actually mount much of an offensive, and Davis may well have been right about that, and of course it put Hood in charge, as we know. Uh, Remove Johnston, put Hood in charge. What Hood essentially did was take Johnston's plan to strike along Peachtree Creek and build on that for his own uh, offensive blueprint. And the result was what came to be called the Battle of Peachtree Creek, which occurred on July 20th, 1864. Hood launched attacks on that day, along Peachtree Creek, and this is how he set it up. He kept part of his force, one corps, and some Georgia militia units to hold the defenses of Atlanta, and then he used his two other corps to deliver a series of powerful blows against Thomas's approaching Army of the Cumberland. More than once, uh, these Confederate assaults threatened to break Thomas's lines, but several factors in the end undid Hood's efforts on July 20th in the Battle of Peachtree Creek. First was stalwart fighting by the Federals. Uh, The Army of the Cumberland, which had done very good fighting before on many fields and had great confidence in George Thomas, put in another good day on July 20th. There was also poor coordination among the Confederate commanders and the units. Hood didn't really get the maximum pressure applied at any one point during the fighting at Peachtree Creek. And finally, Hood withdrew Patrick R. Claiborne's excellent division from the attacks. He believed that it was necessary to hold Atlanta. He thought there was a significant threat uh, building toward Atlanta. He pulled Claiborne out of the line to help bolster uh, those forces who were guarding against McPherson's flanking movement. So in the end, hard Confederate attacks, but no victory at Peachtree Creek. Casualties? About 2,000 Union and nearly 5,000 Confederate. There were about 20,000 men involved on each side. So that is the Battle of Peachtree Creek. After the fighting at Peachtree Creek, which had occurred on the Union right flank, that's Sherman's right as he's approaching the city, the Confederate left. After that fighting, Hood sought to emulate his idol, Robert E. Lee, by mounting a flanking movement against the other end of the Union line against McPherson's Army of the Tennessee, which was approaching from the east. Hood hoped to use one of his infantry corps, was commanded by an officer named Alexander P. Stewart, to hold Sherman's attention north and northeast of Atlanta. The other two corps, under William J. Hardy and Benjamin Franklin Cheatham, would strike McPherson, and he hoped to use Cheatham to go against the front of McPherson's approaching force, while Hardy made a long flanking movement, would take about 15 miles of marching, actually, to bring it in against the extreme left flank of McPherson's approaching troops, or even in on his left rear. So Cheatham will block the front, Hardy will get around McPherson's flank. The Confederate movements began on July 21st, the movements to get the troops in position to make this strike. On the morning of the next day, the 22nd, McPherson's soldiers were marching toward Atlanta along the road from Decatur. About two and a half miles east of the city, two of Hardy's divisions struck McPherson's column, opening the engagement that came to be called the Battle of Atlanta, July 22nd. But Hardy's soldiers had not moved far enough east to reach McPherson's rear, 
and stubborn Union fighting repulsed the first Confederate attacks. In the course of this fighting, General McPherson uh, was mortally wounded, which was a serious blow uh, to Sherman and to the Northern War effort, really. He was such a promising young officer. Uh, everyone saw this uh, as a tragedy. But the fighting went on very efficiently for the Federals. They held Hardy back. Hardy renewed his assaults after the first round. He still could not carry the day. He gained some ground, but achieved no decisive results. Hood was late in committing Cheatham's Corps. He eventually did commit Cheatham's Corps to the battle, along with about 5,000 Georgia militiamen, a very unusual instance in which militia troops actually were involved in a major battle, a battle between veterans uh, on both sides. The Confederates, however, never again, just as at Peachtree Creek, achieved real coordination uh, between the components of the army that were on the field, Hardy and Cheatham, and the attacks finally failed. It had been a very expensive day of fighting for John Bell Hood and his army. 8,000 Confederate casualties in the Battle of Atlanta, nearly 4,000 Federal casualties, and the second of Hood's efforts to reverse the tide had failed. The battles of Peachtree Creek in Atlanta had stopped Sherman's progress to the north and east of the city. If nothing else, they had done that, though they'd left the Federals in excellent positions both north and east from which to mount further uh, efforts against the city. Sherman next decided to try a western approach to Atlanta, and on July 25th through the 27th, he shifted the Army of Tennessee from his left flank, from the eastern end of the line, to his right flank, to the western end of the line. The army was now commanded since McPherson's death by Major General Oliver Otis Howard. Uh, Howard had fought up to this time in the east. He'd commanded the 11th Corps at the Battle of Chancellorsville, where it had been routed by Stonewall Jackson. Commanded the 11th Corps again on the first day at Gettysburg, where it had been driven back into town uh, by <clears throat> Richard S. Ewell's Confederate Corps. Uh, he was an extremely devout officer when he had been at West Point as an instructor. He had led prayer groups for the cadets, uh, which had made him popular among the devout cadets and had made him the butt of many jokes from the cadets who, weren't, uh, who were not so devout. He'd lost an arm at the Battle of Fair Oaks in 1862. He was a Republican and an abolitionist and therefore uh, atypical in terms of his politics. Howard University would be named after O.O. Howard uh, after the war. But here's Howard in command of the Army of, T of the Tennessee now, and he is shifting to the west. Hood saw what Sherman was attempting to do and decided to try to exploit the situation by catching the Army of the Tennessee in motion and striking it while it was vulnerable. He planned to have part of two of his infantry corps hit Howard southwest of Atlanta before the Federals had gotten into position. On the afternoon of July 28, the Confederates attacked Howard's army near Ezra Church. In the battle of that name, the Southern Infantry ran up against a portion of Howard's army that had been placed in anticipation of just the type of move that Hood was making. It was a nice piece of work on the Union side, and this infantry that blocked the Confederate uh, assaults carried out its duty very well. The southern troops charged with their usual enthusiasm, but they could not dislodge the defenders. Hood lost another 5,000 men. The Federals 
about 600. It was a clear setback for the Army of Tennessee and John Bell Hood. Now, the only bright spot for Hood was that this series of attacks prevented Sherman from cutting a major supply line into Atlanta. But the Battle of Ezra Church, coming on the heels of Peachtree Creek and the Battle of Atlanta, destroyed the offensive power of the Army of Tennessee. In a bit more than a week, Hood had bled nearly 20,000 casualties from his army. His men suffered a drop in morale. A few of his soldiers, in fact, had broken and run at different occasions in this fighting. Uh, there's a story, again, perhaps apocryphal, about one Confederate who sprinted away from one of the battlefields Atlanta, uh, at Atlanta. One of his comrades shouted out to him, you know, why are you running? And the guy without breaking stride, turned around and answered, because I can't fly, and continued on uh, to a place of safety. Sherman was delighted with what was going on. He wrote to his wife, I'm glad when the enemy attacks, for the advantage is then with us. Jefferson Davis changed his mind about tactics after this enormous bloodletting in late July. He told Hood to stop attacking, conserve his strength. Please don't risk any more assaults, said Davis. Hood had no option but to pull into the city's elaborate defenses and prepare for a siege. Sherman's army tightened its grip on Atlanta, bombarded the city, the southern positions, and the city constantly, and continually reached out to try to cut the remaining rail links that tied Atlanta uh, to the outside world. In late August, Sherman swung quickly to the southwest and then back again to the east to get at these last vital lifelines. He knew that Atlanta's fortifications were too strong to be taken via frontal assault, and he also had failed uh, in several efforts by his cavalry to cut these last supply lines, so he decided to do it with infantry with a good piece of his army. Now, his movement out to the southwest at first fooled Sherman, excuse me, first fooled Hood into thinking that Sherman was retreating. And Hood, in fact, sent a message to Richmond saying that there's good news at Atlanta. Uh, the Yankees have withdrawn from my front, in effect. Trains carried some Georgians back into the city. Uh, but as uh, a celebration was brewing in Atlanta, Sherman's men reached the railroads about 20 miles south and began to tear them up. Desperate to reopen the lines, once he found out about this, Hood sent two corps to try to retrieve the situation. They attacked Sherman's troops in the Battle of Jonesboro on August 31st, but the Union forces held. The last line had been cut. Hood had no option but to give up the city or be completely surrounded. On the night of September 1st, 2nd, the Army of Tennessee evacuated Atlanta, burning everything of military value before they left. Those fires in the scene in Gone with the Wind uh, represent the Confederates burning what might be of use to the Federals as they left Atlanta. On September 2nd, Sherman marched into the city. News of the fall of Atlanta hit like a thunderbolt in the north. The only slightly uh, negative part of this picture was that Hood's army had escaped. And Sherman actually probably could have done more damage to Hood's army, but that was lost in the euphoria experienced by most Northerners when they read that Atlanta finally was in United States hands. Lincoln and Grant and Halleck and most other Northerners heaped praise on Sherman. Lincoln wrote, The marches, battles, sieges, and other military operations that have signalized this campaign must 
render it famous in the annals of war, and have entitled those who have participated therein to the applause and thanks of the nation. A little stilted for Lincoln, uh, but the message is clear. We're happy uh, with what you've done. Uh, you Western soldiers, you have taken a very important place. Atlanta had become such a symbol that its fall alone probably would have secured Lincoln's reelection. The South recognized this and was as depressed as the North uh, was happy. The fall of Atlanta, announced one unhappy Richmond newspaper, came in the very nick of time to save the party of Lincoln from irretrievable ruin. It will obscure the prospect of peace of late so bright. It will also diffuse gloom over the South. Uh, The South had been, although it's hard for many people to understand this now because so many of us are are transfixed with uh, Gettysburg and Vicksburg and, and thinking that the summer of 63 was really the key point of the war. In fact, Southern morale had been quite high in the summer of 1864, a tremendous contrast to what was going on in the North. It's another reason that Atlanta is such an important campaign because it not only reversed in the North that downward spiral of morale, but in the South it began uh, a very uh, problematical period in terms of how the Confederate people were conceiving of their chances to win the war. It was a very bad piece of news. This Richmond newspaper was right on target. Uh, The immense political and psychological importance of Sherman's victory, as I said early, Uh, earlier, more than overrode the fact that Hood's army had escaped. The fact that Hood's army did escape gave the Confederacy something to pull away from Atlanta, some tiny bit of of, uh, good news to pull away from Atlanta. Jefferson Davis was happy that he escaped. A number of people who commented on Atlanta in their diaries and in their letters said words to the effect that it's terrible that Atlanta has fallen. This will probably have uh, repercussions in the northern political arena that will hurt us, but... At least Hood got his army out. At least this isn't Vicksburg, where we not only lost the place, but we lost an entire army as well. Well, here is Sherman with Atlanta in his possession, and now he's in a position to prepare uh, for the type of great raid of destruction across central Georgia that he and Grant had been thinking about, had been talking about uh, for a good long while, uh, all the way back to the little dress rehearsal in the Meridian campaign. This finally has brought us to the point where Grant's strategy of exhaustion is going to be applied by Grant's great lieutenant, Sherman. And we'll leave Sherman now, triumphant in Atlanta, and sitting back to contemplate what direction he's going to go and just exactly how he will proceed. Next time, we'll pick up the narrative of the war in Virginia where two armies open an important second front in the Shenandoah Valley while Lee and Grant continue their grinding stalemate uh, in the siege lines at Petersburg. Lecture 44, Petersburg, the Crater, and the Valley. (laughs) 
In our last lecture, we saw David Glasgow Farragut and William Tecumseh Sherman win stirring victories at Mobile Bay and Atlanta. This lecture continues our treatment of military campaigns in the summer and autumn of 1864. Now our focus will be on Virginia, where we'll begin by looking at Grant and Lee in the siege lines at Petersburg. We'll highlight the singular Union fiasco at the Battle of the Crater in late July 1864, then move on to Jubal Early's Shenandoah Valley campaign, the first phase of which yielded a good deal of Confederate success, and the second phase of which witnessed Philip H. Sheridan's decisive defeat of Early's army in a trio of battles that helped seal the Republican political victory in November 1864. Let's start with Lee and Grant. While Sherman and Hood faced each other around Atlanta, Lee and Grant did the same at Petersburg and up toward Richmond. Before long, a miles of elaborate trenches scarred the countryside around Petersburg. Grant tried, through a series of cavalry raids, to threaten Lee's communications and supply routes as the armies were digging in. And some of these did cause interruptions of varying lengths of time. They were an annoyance to Lee, uh, but they did not uh, mount a major threat against Lee's army. Lee managed to keep his troops fairly well supplied and to present a strong front against Grant. Grant's movement was consistently to the south and west as the siege of Petersburg would drag on. He was trying to make Lee match his extension of the Union lines with an extension of the Confederate lines, knowing that at some point Lee would not be able to go as far as the Federals could go. The smaller Confederate army in the long run could not keep this up. Grant early on thought that he might be able to get a quick verdict at Petersburg before the two armies really settled in to a siege. He thought he could do so perhaps by what he called a bold and decisive stroke to break Lee's lines. In other words, overpower Lee, force him out of the trenches. Or he could issue the whole army of the Potomac 10 days rations, he said, have them cut loose, try to swing clear around Lee's right flank in a giant turning movement and come in against Petersburg from the northwest. George Gordon Meade didn't like this second idea. He said Grant's army would be away from its supply lines. Lee's army would be tied closely to its supply lines. And if anything went wrong with this big movement, said Meade, the Army of the Potomac might find itself in a position of having to fight its way out uh, of a bad spot and might, in fact, lose a battle that could really help Lee. Well, Grant listened to this. And in the end, he accepted Meade's counsel and looked around for an opportunity for a decisive stroke. That opportunity came in the form of one of the most unusual operations of the entire war, the Battle of the Crater. A regiment of Pennsylvanians in Ambrose E. Burnside's Ninth Corps, they were the 48th Pennsylvania, was made up largely of coal miners. Uh, these Pennsylvanians were in position opposite a Confederate fort, an artillery position on the Confederate lines. And they looked across the ground, and as they didn't have a whole lot to do every day, they talked and they wondered and they speculated. And they decided, some of these coal miners, that it would be possible to dig a shaft from their position all the way under the Confederate position, which was nearly 600 feet away about 200 yards. Well, the lieutenant colonel in command of the 48th, 
A man named Pleasance, Henry Pleasance, overheard his men talking, and he began to think about it. He was an engineer. He had a great deal of experience with these kinds of things, and he decided that it probably would be possible to dig a shaft from under the uh, Union lines all the way under the Confederate lines. He'd heard one of his men, Pleasance had, uh, mutter one day, we could blow that damn fort out of existence if we could run a mine shaft under it. Pleasance took the idea up the chain of command to General Burnside. Burnside liked the idea. It appealed to him. Blow a hole in the Confederate line. Exploit the break once you've blown the hole. On up the chain of command it went to Meade's headquarters. Well, Meade's staff officers and engineers thought it was a silly idea, probably in part because it wasn't their idea and because they also didn't have the experience these Pennsylvanians did. They described it as claptrap and nonsense, a waste of everyone's time even to think about it, got to Grant. Grant also had his doubts about it, didn't seem to be feasible. The shaft, after all, as Meade's engineers pointed out, would have to be between five and 600 feet long, and the key obstacle would be finding a way to ventilate a shaft this long without having the Confederates see what you were doing. Grant agreed that it probably wouldn't work, but he gave his consent to let the Pennsylvanians try. The miners began work on June 25th, and within about four weeks, they had dug a shaft 575 feet long, all the way under the intervening ground between the two sets of lines into a point where they were pretty much directly beneath the Confederate position. The key was the ventilation system, which was devised by Pleasance, which enabled uh, the miners to pull the stale air out of this long shaft and replace it with fresh air. It was an amazing uh, engineering feat, uh, very impressive, and the Confederates did not know what was going on because of the appearance of any kind of uh, ventilating device. That isn't what gave the Federals away. The Confederates did, however, hear digging. They knew something was up, and in fact, they began a number of countershafts of their own, hoping to intersect uh, the one that the Federals were digging. They never did, but there are still remnants, in fact, if you go to Petersburg, of some of these countershafts that the Confederates began to dig. The last digging took place, last Federal digging, on July 23rd. Four more days passed by as the Federals carried 320 kegs of powder all the way down to the end of that long shaft and then spread them out in a T shaft that had been dug across the end of the long shaft, about 75 feet wide. So you had the long shaft, 575 feet long, and then a 75-foot T shaft at the end of it. That's where they placed the 320 kegs of powder. 8,000 pounds of powder, four tons. They'd wanted a lot more than that and initially had been promised more than that, but in the end, the amount was cut back to 8,000 pounds. Once the powder was set, they hooked a fuse, ran the fuse back, and then sealed the last several dozen feet of the shaft so that the force of the explosion would go up uh, rather than coming back out the shaft, out the gallery. The shaft was about 20 feet deep. It was an amazing, an amazing engineering uh, piece of work for these Union soldiers. Now, the original time set for detonation was 3.30 a.m. on July 30th. 
But the explosion didn't come until 4.45 a.m. on the 30th because when they lit the fuse and waited, nothing happened. And they waited and waited and nothing happened, so they called for a couple of volunteers who must have been very stout Union patriots indeed because these two guys crawled all the way into this shaft, not certain what was going on in there, found out that one of the splices had failed, re-spliced it, uh, lit the fuse again, came out, and at 4.45 a.m., the explosion came. It was an amazing event. It seemed to occur in slow motion, according to many of the people who watched it. No one has described it uh, better than the historian Bruce Catton, uh, who is a, a brilliant narrative historian. This is how Catton described it. He said, first, a long, deep rumble like summer thunder, then a swaying and swelling of the ground up ahead with the solid earth rising to form a rounded hill. Then the rounded hill broke apart and a prodigious spout of flame and black smoke went upward toward the sky and the air was full of enormous clods of earth as big as houses, of brass cannon and detached artillery wheels, of wrecked caissons and fluttering tents and weirdly tumbling human bodies. A Confederate witness marveled that, quote, quote, a fort and several hundred yards of earthwork with men and cannon was literally hurled a hundred feet in the air. The result was a crater 170 feet long, 60 to 80 feet wide, and 30 feet deep. About 300 Confederates from South Carolina units were killed instantly uh, when the explosion occurred. And for 200 yards in either direction of the point of detonation, Confederates abandoned their lines. There was thus a quarter-mile-long gap in the Army of Northern Virginia's lines. The mine... And the explosion had done exactly what the Pennsylvanians had hoped it would do. It's an amazing success. Now, the plan had been for Burnside to have a fresh division of United States colored troops spearhead the attack. These men had trained specifically to do this. They'd been trained to, to get the uh, obstructions out of the way, the Confederates' obstructions that would be in front of their lines, and to avoid going into the hole. Don't go down into the hole Go around the hole, they were told, establish your line beyond it. Seal the break, and then we'll push in reinforcements and try to extend our advantage to either direction. The last minute, however, there was a change of heart at the Union High Command. Grant and Meade decided the black troops should be used only in a supporting role, and that the three white divisions that originally had been slated to be in a supporting role would have to step up to the front. Now, the three division leaders uh, came in as a group and literally drew straws to see which division would be the first one in after the explosion. An officer named James H. Ledley drew the short straw. His division would lead. Edward Ferraro's black division would now be in support. Well, unfortunately for the Federals, Ledley was drunk back in his bomb-proof at the time the assault began took no role in the attack, provided no direction for his division, and these white troops uh, who had been fighting ever since the wilderness, the black troops would have been fresh. These troops have been fighting since the wilderness. They're not well led. Uh, they're exhausted in many instances. They went forward, and they did just exactly what they weren't supposed to do. Uh, the black troops had been put in the rear really for two reasons. I think partly because Grant and Meade weren't sure that they could trust them, but also I think it was important to both men 
that it not be perceived, if something did go wrong, that they had fed black men into a situation where they would be slaughtered. Uh, They were more comfortable sending white troops in to be slaughtered. They didn't fear the political consequences uh, quite so much. At any rate, the white troops went in, and they went in sluggishly. And they went right into the crater and just sort of gawked around at it. It must have been an incredible sight, a hole 30 feet deep and that big. More and more Union troops slid down into the crater with virtually no organization and certainly no impetus that was going to take them beyond the Confederate lines. As more and more supports came up, more and more men jammed into the crater, and soon the crater was essentially filled, packed with northern soldiers. Well, the Confederates reacted fairly quickly. They were led uh, in the main by an officer named William Mahone, who would be a very prominent politician after the war in Virginia. By 8 a.m., Mahone and other Confederate commanders had sealed the break. And then they brought up reinforcements and began to pour fire into the crater, slaughter the milling Federals. By the time the black troops came up, the battle was lost, and they too became part of the mob in the crater. They were funneled into the crater. They didn't really have any way to get beyond it. Confederate soldiers turned their fury on the black soldiers, shot many of them who tried to surrender. Confederates later remembered that the word went up and down the southern lines that there were black soldiers fighting at this area, and soldiers ran from other units to try to have a chance to kill uh, one of the black soldiers. In the end, and it was over by 1 p.m., in the end, the attack had proved to be a complete fiasco. Complete fiasco. Golden opportunity lost. More than 4,000 federal soldiers were shot down. About 1,500 Confederates. Grant called it the saddest affair I have witnessed in the war. After the Battle of the Crater, there was really no... Remarkable action on the Petersburg front through the summer and fall of 1864. There was a good deal of fighting and many thousands of casualties, but no dramatic moment such as this. Grant continued to press against the Confederate rail and road links that carried supplies to Lee. He extended his lines to the south and east, and there were sharp actions at the Weldon Railroad. On August 18th to the 21st, some Union gains in that battle. In the Battle of Peebles Farm on September 30th, uh, the Federals tried to get control of an important road called the Boyden Plank Road. At Burgess's Mill on October 27th, Winfield Scott Hancock failed to cut the Boyden Plank Road and the Weldon Railroad, fighting at those places and elsewhere as you move through the summer and into the fall. Confederate cavalry leader Wade Hampton, who succeeded Jeb Stewart, as the most prominent uh, cavalry commander in Lee's army, also carried out a successful raid in mid-September 1864. He rode out and managed to round up 3,000 head of cattle and bring them back into the Army of Northern Virginia. Famous cattle raid, beefsteak raid, as it was called by many of the Confederates. Overall, however, there was a sense of stalemate at Petersburg and Richmond, And that stalemate provided a stark contrast to events that unfolded at about the same time in the Shenandoah Valley. Let's move to the valley now and see what's going on there. There was almost continuous military activity of some kind in the Shenandoah Valley throughout the war. There was guerrilla action. 
Uh, major armies would march up and down the valley. We've seen that on the way to Gettysburg after Antietam. There's always some kind of activity there, a lot of raiding and so forth. But only two major campaigns, two really major campaigns. We've seen uh, Hunter's movement into the valley. We talked about that before that. We saw Siegel in the valley. But the two most famous campaigns in the valley were Stonewall Jackson's in 1862 and Jubal Early's in 1864, and we will look at Early's now. Its origin lay in information coming to Lee's headquarters that David Hunter was marching up the valley toward Lynchburg, Lee feared. Lee could not afford to lose Lynchburg. Lynchburg was an important rail uh, center, enormous Confederate hospitals there. It was a vital city in that part of Virginia, and Lee was not willing to to let it go. He called Jubal Early, who had replaced Richard Ewell as commander of the 2nd Corps in the Army of Northern Virginia, Stonewall Jackson's old corps, called him to Army headquarters and told him that he wanted Early to go to stop this federal threat against Lynchburg. And as they talked, Lee made it clear that he had a hierarchy of goals for Early in this operation. Number one, save Lynchburg. Push Hunter away from Lynchburg. If you accomplish that, march down the Shenandoah Valley, toward the Potomac River, clear the valley of Federals. If you manage to do that, cross the Potomac and menace Washington. If you manage to do that, it might force Grant to pull strength away from the Richmond-Petersburg lines to deal with you early, up near Washington. That might open the way for Lee to accomplish something opposite the Army of the Potomac. So he's putting a lot on Early's table here. In a sense, it's similar to what the Confederates had hoped Jackson would accomplish in his valley campaign, open a true second front in the state that would tie down a lot of federal strength and perhaps create opportunities for the Confederates at Richmond. Well, Jubal Early was a very colorful character. He was a Virginian, a West Pointer, hadn't stayed in the Army long, uh, had become a lawyer right after he quit the Army, then came back in briefly for service in the Mexican War, then was a lawyer for the rest of the antebellum period. He was about six feet tall, but so plagued by arthritis that he was stooped. He looked shorter than he was. He looked a lot older uh, than he was as well. He was a bachelor, although he fathered a number of children uh, in his lifetime. He was called Old Jube by most of his men. At least some of the others called him Old Lopier for some reason. He was a very sarcastic man. Uh, had a a vitriolic pen and tongue. He really was adept at eviscerating people and took great uh, pleasure in doing it. He especially made fun of people he thought were either happily married or foolishly in love. Uh, he didn't like officers to have their wives near camp uh, in the winter, for example. He made it very hard on them. He was one of the most profane men in the Confederate Army, by all accounts, everyone said that. I wish they would have written down exactly some of the things he said uh, so we'd know just what kinds of cursing he did. He was an old Whig. He'd voted against secession as a member of the Virginia Secession Convention in 1861. But once Virginia went with the Confederacy, he became the most diehard of Confederates. And after the war, he was one of the most unreconstructed of rebels and one of the most important and influential writers in the Lost Cause movement after the war. Uh, we'll talk about him in later lectures. He lived a comfortable life after the war 
as one of the front men for the Louisiana Lottery, along with PGT Beauregard. They were paid a good deal of money just to draw numbers out of a cylinder for the Louisiana Lottery. And he spent a good deal of time attacking James Longstreet's character after the war. As a soldier, he had compiled a very strong record. He'd fought from First Manassas through all of the battles of the Army down to this stage of the war. Lee liked him. Very different personalities. It's an interesting case of very different kinds of men getting along. Lee gave early one of the two affectionate nicknames that he bestowed on lieutenants. He called Longstreet my old war horse. He called Jubal Early my bad old man. Now, Early was younger than Lee, but he was bad in many ways, and I think Lee was sort of amused by Early. He also trusted him as a soldier, gave him difficult jobs on many fields. For example, Early is the soldier that Lee had left back at Fredericksburg during the Chancellorsville campaign to hold that end of the line while Jackson and Lee went to deal with Joseph Hooker. Well, here, Lee is giving Early a very important mission. He's sending him off toward Lynchburg. Early headed for the valley on June 12th, and his campaign went very well. He stopped Hunter at Lynchburg and sent Hunter who didn't have much of a stomach for fighting. At first contact, Hunter decided he didn't want to fight and retreated westward all the way to West Virginia. Early followed for a ways, followed Hunter for a ways, then turned north and marched his 14,000 men rapidly down the Shenandoah Valley all the way to the Potomac River. He crossed into Maryland. He looped up, crossed the uh, Catoctin Mountains, and came southward into Frederick, Maryland. A scratch federal force met him uh, just south of Frederick in what became known as the Battle of the Monocacy. That force was commanded by Lew Wallace, uh, who was not much of a soldier uh, and not much of a novelist. He later wrote Ben-Hur, uh, which I guess is the thing he's most famous for. That's sort of sad to think that novel would be the thing you're most famous for. But at any rate, Lew Wallace met Jubal Early in the Battle of the Monocacy, a defeat for the Federals, but a battle that slowed Early up for one day. Uh, the battle took place in July, July 9th, 1864, after which Early pressed on southward toward Washington. And by July 11th, his troops were opposite the fortifications at the northern arc of the city. Reinforcements from the Army at the Potomac reached Washington at about the same time. A piece of Horatio G. Wright's 6th Corps filed into the works in Washington to supplement the sort of 2nd and 3rd line troops who had been present as early first approached, and a combination of the well-constructed defenses and Union veterans inside them uh, made it clear to early fairly soon that he did not have any opportunity to punch in to the city of Washington. Washington had enormously powerful works surrounding it by this time in the war. A series of forts, plenty of heavy artillery, and now uh, there were Union troops in them. Nonetheless, there was skirmishing on the 12th, July the 12th. Abraham Lincoln rode out to Fort Stevens, which was at the center of this fighting, and for the only time during the war, came under fire. Bullets clipped around Lincoln as he stood up and looked out toward the Confederates to his front. A junior officer uh, named Oliver Wendell Holmes, who would, of course, become one of the greatest jurists in United States history, looked over and saw this civilian standing up. He didn't know it was Lincoln. He just saw what he considered an idiot uh, standing up and making himself a target. He said, get down, you damn fool, before you get shot. 
Lincoln looked over. Lincoln heard him say this, was amused, and got down. Holmes learned later that he'd told the president to get down and called him a damn fool and was a bit chagrined. Lincoln, I think, took it as he would always take things like that. He found humor in it, but he did get down, and nothing came of this fighting in the way of a major threat to the city of Washington. Early did not have enough strength to punch in, and he withdrew shortly thereafter into the lower Shenandoah Valley. He'd accomplished everything that Lee had asked of him. Uh, He'd driven back Hunter. He'd cleared the valley of major federal forces. He had threatened Washington. And Grant had even sent troops to deal with Early, part of one of the veteran corps in the Army of the Potomac. It certainly rivaled Jackson's Valley campaign uh, two and a half years before in its impact and effectiveness. Lincoln at first was extremely worried about what Early was doing, and in fact, he sort of panicked. He sent a message to Grant suggesting that Grant pull most of the Army of the Potomac back to Washington to deal with Jubal Early. Grant, as always, kept his head and said, in essence, I really don't think that would send the right message to the American people that we're going to pull away from a siege at Richmond to defend our capital. That will send the wrong message. It'll look like we're panicking. I'll send some troops. Don't worry about it is in essence what Grant said, and Lincoln calmed down. But I think Lincoln's first reaction indicates how important he thought the political and psychological ramifications of Early's appearance might be. Remember when this is, it's in July. The northern people are very discouraged already. They're discouraged enough that Richmond hasn't fallen and that Atlanta hasn't fallen, but now to have a rebel army closer to their capital than any other rebel army had been in the entire war sent a terrible message to the northern home front, and that message is, the war is not going well. Lincoln and Grant, both disgusted by this turn of events, decided that something needed to be done, and Grant especially did. He decided to deal with Jubal Early's threat in a definitive fashion, and he selected Philip H. Sheridan to build up a major army centered at Harper's Ferry, which would move against early, crush him, and then move on to lay waste to the Shenandoah Valley. This would be part of the strategy of exhaustion. Sheridan was a cocky, short, about 5'5", stocky Irishman with an enormous head uh, and an ego to match. He'd been a West Pointer, had been held back a year in West Point for fighting. A very good hater. He loved to hate people and things. He thrived on controversy. Uh, Two of his better-known quotations, and they're both uh, very close, if not literally accurate, are, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, and if I owned hell in Texas, I'd rent out Texas and live in hell. Those are two of his famous quotations. Some people who aren't fond of Sheridan have suggested that his body should be disinterred from Arlington National Cemetery and buried somewhere in Texas so he could be in hell in Texas at the same time. At any rate, he was a veteran of several battles in the West and, of course, had come east with Grant and commanded the Union Cavalry in the Army of the Potomac. He's an aggressive, confident soldier and one who would be a great Union hero at the end of the war. Now he has an army, and Grant's orders were, quote, give the enemy no rest, do all the damage to railroads and crops you can, carry off stock of all descriptions and Negroes so as to prevent further planning. If the war is to last another year, said Grant, we want the Shenandoah Valley to remain a barren waste. 
Here was the strategy of exhaustion in its purest form, and Sheridan implemented it with a vengeance. He avoided contact with Early in August under orders from Stanton. The North couldn't sustain another reverse, and so they told him to be careful. But once he got going, once his army was ready to go, he went brilliantly. He built an army of nearly 50,000 men, and he advanced against Early's 14,000 in third week of September and trounced Early in the Battle of Third Winchester on September 19th. Three days later, he routed Early again at Fisher's Hill. Early retreated far up the valley, while Sheridan put barns and crops and other non-residential buildings in a part of the Shenandoah Valley uh, as far up as Harrisonburg and in the Luray Valley as well, put those things to the torch. Slaughtered livestock and made the valley such a wasteland that, as he bragged, a crow will have to carry its own rations to cross the area. A final overwhelming Union victory on October 19th at Cedar Creek virtually ended serious military operations in the Shenandoah Valley for the rest of the war. These three battles together, Third Winchester, Fishers Hill, and Cedar Creek, were costly, far costlier than anything that happened during Jackson's Valley Campaign. The fighting dwarfed, the fighting in 64 dwarfed that of 62. There were about 15,000 Union casualties, 10,000 Confederate. The Valley was never again a major granary for the Confederacy. Sheridan had won really decisive victories. He got the thanks, the effusive thanks from Abraham Lincoln, and this campaign was the final element in guaranteeing Republican victory in the November elections. This absolutely sealed uh, those Republican successes. Northern morale lifts even higher. Confederate morale sinks lower. This is a very important operation, ranks with the more important operations of the war. All right, well, let's leave Sheridan now, triumphant in the valley, Grant and Lee still sitting in Petersburg. Next time, we'll continue again with our examination of military events in the last year of the war. We'll return to the Western Theater to discuss John Bell Hood's 1864 Tennessee campaign and William Tecumseh Sherman's march to the sea and advance into the Carolinas. Lecture 45, The Final Campaigns. This lecture will complete our examination of military events involving the armies that began the war in the Kentucky-Tennessee Theater. What we call the Western Theater shifted south and east as the war progressed, and those armies that began in Tennessee and Kentucky found themselves in North Carolina in March and April 1865. We'll look first at John Bell Hood's march into Tennessee in 1864 and his utter defeat there. Then we'll shift our attention to William Tecumseh Sherman's march to the sea and his later campaigning in the Carolinas. After the fall of Atlanta, John Bell Hood proposed to place his army between Sherman's in Atlanta and Chattanooga to get astride Sherman's supply route to Chattanooga. He hoped to draw Sherman back out of central Georgia 
by this turning movement. In other words, swing out uh, to the west, back in behind Sherman, and force Sherman to come north out of Atlanta. Hood thought that that the kind of movement that he envisioned would compel Sherman to react that way. Hood could get his supplies from Alabama while with luck denying Sherman his supplies. Should Sherman ignore Hood, uh, Hood thought that the Georgia militia would slow up the Federals long enough for Hood to catch up with them. Jefferson Davis read the plan, thought about it, and decided that it might work. And Hood put it into effect on October 1st, 1864. Davis, in fact, talked about a campaign that might go up through Tennessee, liberate Nashville, move into Kentucky, perhaps even get all the way to the Ohio River. Hood's plan was not a bad one, and it might even have worked earlier in the war, worked to the degree that it would have forced Sherman to turn around and follow Hood north if Hood was going to threaten his supply line along the railroad to Chattanooga. But by this stage of the conflict, the game had changed. Sherman followed Hood very briefly, but then he realized that he didn't have to worry about Chattanooga. Sherman did. He could stay in, his, he could stay in Atlanta no matter where Hood went because he could strike out into the interior from Atlanta and simply provision his army, the men and animals in his army, off the countryside. Uh, the railroad to Chattanooga became beside the point. He would go off on a giant raid, the kind of raid that he and Grant had talked about uh, for a good long while. That kind of raid would put him in a position where supply lines didn't mean anything. Just as Grant had cut loose from his supply lines during the Vicksburg campaign, just as Sherman had tried this out during his march to Meridian and back, so now he would do it on a much grander scale, moving out of Atlanta. As Sherman put it, where a million people live, my army won't starve. Accordingly, he and Grant decided to send George H. Thomas to Nashville. Took uh, two corps from Sherman's army, but Thomas would gather other troops in Nashville, and that would be the federal force that would protect Tennessee and deal with Hood, whatever Hood might do. When Hood discovered that Sherman was not going to follow him into Tennessee, he nonetheless decided to go ahead with his plan, and that resulted in what is known as Hood's Tennessee Campaign. At about the time that Sherman moved out of Atlanta, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes, at about that time, Hood marched into Tennessee, hoping to take his 40,000 men or so to Nashville. Then, if things went well, onto the Ohio River. He even talked grandly about getting to the banks of the Ohio and then turning east and joining up with Lee. It really was a hallucination on his part, but this is what he talked about. First Nashville, then the Ohio River, then marching to link up with Lee. Well, in his way were George H. Thomas and a force that grew to 50,000 and eventually 60,000 men in the vicinity of Nashville. This force included the Army of the Ohio under John Schofield, and that's the force that was nearest to Hood as Hood marched into Tennessee. Many of Hood's men were very poorly equipped for a winter campaign. They didn't have heavy uniforms. Uh, they didn't have as much food as they needed. Many of them didn't have shoes that were up to an active campaign. Uh, thousands were barefoot within two weeks of the time that Hood turned north. But he pressed forward in November, and by the end of the month, he was less than 50 miles from Nashville. He missed an opportunity 
or he thought he did anyway, to trap Schofield at a place called Spring Hill. A series of circumstances seemed to offer the Confederates a great chance there. Uh, That chance slipped through their fingers, and Hood was quite angry at what he saw as this bungled attempt to strike a blow at Schofield. Uh, He followed Schofield then uh, very rapidly to Franklin, Tennessee, a place where Schofield had most of his 28,000 men behind substantial works. Hood pulled his army up in front, or a part of it up in front of Schofield's. He refused to wait for all of his troops to come up. About a third of his infantry was still behind. His artillery wasn't even up. Hood's wasn't, but he decided that he was going to assault Schofield's Federals. It's late uh, in the afternoon uh, on November 30th, 1864, uh, nearly 18,000 Confederates in Hood's Army of Tennessee attacked over two miles of generally open ground against Federals in very well-prepared positions. One reason he ordered the attack, Hood later admitted, was because he believed his army had grown too dependent upon breastworks. This is a variation on Sherman's thinking before the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain. I have to get my men back in the state of mind where they're willing to attack and not simply defend, thought Hood. The result was the most wasteful and one of the most dramatic assaults of the entire war. Off they went, the Confederates, over this open ground. Uh, More than 6,000 of them were shot down on that late afternoon day, including the astonishing total of 12 generals lost on the Confederate side, six killed, five wounded, killed or mortally wounded, five wounded and one captured. Twelve generals including Patrick Claiborne, uh, the best division commander in the army. Fifty-four regimental commanders shot down in the Battle of Franklin. Schofield suffered about 2,300 casualties and simply withdrew to Nashville the next day. A very little damage to the Army of the Ohio, significant damage to Hood's Army of Tennessee. Franklin had been a bloody and unnecessary Confederate offensive battle. Well, his army was severely crippled, but Hood, nonetheless, marched on toward Nashville. He took up positions around the city. He couldn't lay siege to the city. He didn't have enough troops to surround the city, but he took up a position near Nashville. Too weak to mount a siege, he simply waited for something to happen. Thomas was in no hurry. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant began to lose patience with Thomas. He wanted Thomas to do something on December 6th. Grant sent a message to Thomas, ordering him, quote, to attack Hood at once. Thomas ignored that message for nine days. Grant was on the verge of removing Thomas from command when Thomas finally had everything just the way he wanted it and launched assaults against Hood on December 15, 1864. Two black brigades mounted a diversion against Hood's right flank. Thomas sent about 40,000 men against the Confederate left and drove them back. He didn't break them, however. Hood's troops managed to hang on. They were in place the next day, and Thomas renewed his attacks. Same tactics as the day before. This time, a large number of Federal cavalry, armed with repeating weapons, got behind the Confederate infantry, and Hood's army broke. And a good part of it fled from the field on the second day of the Battle of Nashville. It was a freezing rain, It was dark as the retreat headed south. It was an absolutely miserable end to Hood's campaign in Tennessee. Nashville was among the more decisive battles of the war in a tactical sense. Although Thomas did the attacking, 
His troops lost only about 3,000 men, Hood's army twice that many, many of them captured, of course. The Confederate retreat would take them all the way into Mississippi before it stopped. Of the more than 60,000 infantry Hood had taken command of outside Atlanta back in mid-July, only about 15,000 remained under arms after the Battle of Nashville. And Hood, the headlong fighter, had fought his army to pieces. Uh, its rugged survivors would travel east and fight again in North Carolina, as we'll see. But this was effectively the end of the Army of Tennessee. And Nashville, the battle there, effectively ended the war in Tennessee, even as it killed uh, the career of John Bell Hood. This was it for Hood as a player on the Confederate military scene. He asked to be relieved after Nashville, and his request was granted. Some of his men kept their sense of humor even after Nashville. They composed a bitter new lyric uh, to the tune of the Yellow Rose of Texas, and some of them sang it as they retreated through the winter weather southward. Uh, they sang, So now I'm marching southward. My heart is full of woe. I'm going back to Georgia to see my Uncle Joe. You may talk about your Beauregard and sing of General Lee, but the gallant hood of Texas played hell in Tennessee. A hood is gone and so is much of the army he took command of back in July. All right, let's see what's been going on with Sherman now while Hood is playing out this drama in Tennessee. Let's look at Sherman's march to the sea. After his detachment of Thomas's troops, Sherman was left with 62,000 very tough veterans for the march he would undertake to the Atlantic. This is one of the more veteran armies of the entire war. Sherman kept his best troops. These are units that had been bloodied on field after field. The men who were going to get sick early on, they were gone. The men who were going to give up, most of them were gone. This was a very unusual army in terms of its esprit and in terms of its physical ruggedness. It's an army that is absolutely perfectly adapted for the kind of campaign that Sherman was going to undertake. He was going to march nearly 300 miles from Atlanta to Savannah, uh, between him and the ocean was nothing but a few thousand cavalry and a few Georgia militia. Grant's orders to Sherman were much like those he had given Sheridan in the Shenandoah Valley. Here's what Grant told his friend. You will clean the country of railroad tracks and supplies. I would also move every wagon, horse, mule, hoof of stock, as well as the Negroes. In other words, Sherman is to leave nothing that can support the Confederate war effort as he strikes off into the interior of Georgia. Sherman was also to arm as many black men as possible and organize them for duty. That he did not do. As we've seen, he didn't believe that black men should be carrying muskets and fighting in the United States Army. Uh, he would use African Americans as laborers with his army. He always resisted using them as soldiers. And in fact, when the Grand Review in Washington, D.C. came after the war, when thousands and thousands of Union veterans marched in front of huge crowds in Sherman's part of the march, he would not allow any United States colored troops to march carrying weapons. He would only allow black men carrying shovels and other implements uh, of labor. Sherman said, as he prepared to go into the interior of Georgia, he said he intended to, quote, move through Georgia, smashing things to the sea. I can make the march and make Georgia howl. The march would show the South, he said, how vulnerable they were and would hasten the end of the war 
from a morale as well as a logistical point of view. He added this psychological dimension to Grant's strategy of exhaustion. Show the Confederate people that Jefferson Davis and his government were absolutely powerless to stop Sherman from going wherever he wanted to go. To show the Confederate people that the United States military power was such that it could come into any part of the Confederacy. No one's neighborhood would be safe if the United States government decided to send an army there. Sherman believed that if he could demonstrate that to people, that their morale would crumble. And he was correct to a point, uh, but what he didn't really understand is that sometimes this kind of operation has the opposite effect. Sometimes it bolsters the resolve among people who've suffered a lot. Uh, And If you look in the Virginia theater, I think you have an example of how it worked the other way. The harsher the Federals were in Virginia, it seemed the more resolute uh, the people in Virginia became. And I think it had a lot to do with whether the population being terrorized, so to speak, had a major military force nearby, one of their major military forces nearby. If they didn't, then I think Sherman's tactics worked very well. But in Virginia, with the Army of Northern Virginia nearby, I don't think it worked very well. I think it would work in Georgia, as we'll see. So Sherman has this twist on Grant's uh, approach with his strategy of exhaustion, Sherman adding this psychological element. On November 16th, Sherman's army left Atlanta. He'd ordered all the civilians out before he went, and he'd burned the place. Hood protested. Sherman answered, quote, if the people raise a howl against my barbarity and cruelty, I will answer that war is war and not popularity seeking. If they want peace, they and their relatives must stop the war. Sherman's always good for a quotation. He had a way with words. His letters and pronouncements, I think, are the most uh, interesting uh, by any officer on either side. So now off he goes, the smoldering remnant of Atlanta behind him. His men were happy to be on their way. They were very confident, jaunty. Uh, There was almost a joking, bantering air about this army, this veteran army. It moved in four parallel columns, covering a front of between 50 and 60 miles. So it's a 50 to 60 mile swath that Sherman is going to be cutting across Georgia. His cavalry roamed back and forth in front and among the various columns. Most of the fighting was done by the cavalry. As I said earlier, there is no major Confederate army to get in Sherman's way. It's an unusual campaign in that regard, in that you have one of the biggest armies of the war going almost unopposed through an important part of the enemy's country. Sherman's orders were to forage for food, but to spare civilian property. These orders were not followed closely. I hasten to add, only occasionally did enough Georgia militia get in front of the columns even to attack a Confederate brigade or two, and the result was almost always a quick repulse for the militia, and on surged Sherman's army. It averaged 10 miles a day. On December 21st, the Federals entered Savannah, and Sherman wired Lincoln, quote, I beg to present you as a Christmas gift, the city of Savannah with 150 heavy guns and plenty of ammunition, and also about 25,000 bales of cotton. The damage left behind was immense, if not quite as catastrophic as legend would have it. It seems 
when you read some things or even listen to some people talk about Sherman, that he burned every house, destroyed everything everywhere in Georgia and in a couple of neighboring states besides. That wasn't the case. Sherman himself, however, estimated that he did $100 million worth of property uh, damage. He said a fifth of it was of use to the Union. The other four-fifths, as he put it, sheer waste. And far more than public and war-related property was stolen or wrecked. There were men called bummers with Sherman's army, foragers not under control of their officers who did much of the worst looting. Uh, Confederate deserters and guerrillas also did a fair amount of looting in the course of Sherman's march to the sea. It was a very chaotic period for this part of Georgia when there wasn't really any authority and men from both sides took advantage of that. The Federals on the march knew there'd be little resistance. And as they went along, their mood became more and more carefree. They didn't really have to worry about battles. It was a very strange kind of campaign. One of them wrote, quote, this is a Union soldier, we had a gay old campaign, destroyed all we could not eat, stole their Negroes, burned their cotton and gin, spilled their sorghum, burned and twisted their railroads, and raised hell generally. A Southern officer who moved in the track of the armies described a very different scene or described the same scene in a very different way, I should say, said the track of the army was littered with the putrefying carcasses of cattle, hogs, mules, horses, and other animals, creating a terrible stench that attracted innumerable buzzards that feasted on the rotting flesh. There's the other view. There's the Confederate view of what is going on here. The march did hit Southern morale in this area quite heavily, just as Sherman hoped it would. One Confederate soldier summed up the feelings of many others when he said he'd given up hope of defeating Sherman's legions. I won't try to imitate his dialect, but he said, quote, we've been getting nothing but hell and lots of it ever since we saw them damn Yankees, and I'm tired of it. They're thicker than lice on a hen and a damn sight ornerier. That's in a letter that he wrote at the time. Tremendous celebrations took place across the North, of course, and more was expected from Sherman. The march had been devastating to Southern logistics, to railroads, to any war-related industries uh, that Sherman's men could reach, to food production, and it had been devastating, as I said, to the morale of many of the Confederates in his way. It had been an almost unqualified success, and it had shown that the strategy of exhaustion could be applied quite effectively to the Confederacy. Now, Sheridan had already demonstrated that in the Shenandoah Valley. This isn't the first time that this strategy has been applied. Sherman's campaign is often seen as a breakthrough moment in the Civil War when the war became uglier and rougher, when civilians began to suffer. As we've seen in this course, the war had turned in that direction far before uh, Sherman's march. But more specifically, in 1864, that had begun with Sheridan's campaign. Uh, in the last lecture, I read Grant's instructions to Sheridan. They were virtually identical to Grant's instructions to Sherman uh, that I read uh, just before this march. So Sherman is in Savannah. He's gone to the sea, conducted one of the most famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, campaigns of the war. What does he do next? Well, he will march up through the Carolinas, and let's turn to that phase of his campaigning, his march through South Carolina and then on into North Carolina. 
He rested in Savannah for a while. It was winter, after all. He'd gotten to Savannah just before Christmas. It's winter. He's going to build his army to an even larger size. It will eventually have 100,000 men, and he needs some supplies for an army that large. So he stockpiles supplies, uh, refits his army, and prepares to march north. His plan is to go to cut a swath through South Carolina, much as he did through Georgia, and then move into North Carolina. And as he approached Virginia from that direction, there might even be an opportunity for cooperation with Ulysses S. Grant, depending on what transpired between Grant and Lee on the Virginia front. The immediate target, South Carolina, the cradle of secession, and a target of very special attention for virtually all the Union soldiers that would be involved in it. Grant wanted Sherman to tear up the railroads in North and South Carolina, upon which Lee depended for supplies. He then wanted him, if possible, to join the Army of the Potomac to squeeze Lee. But Sherman's soldiers weren't thinking that far down the road. They were thinking about South Carolina and making South Carolina feel their wrath. Before Sherman started, Fort Fisher, guarding Wilmington, North Carolina, fell. That was on January 15, 1865, to a joint land and sea expedition. This closed the last Confederate port. Other raids were also put in motion. 40,000 Union infantry struck from Mobile into the interior of Alabama. Here's the long-delayed element of Grant's strategy of exhaustion in the Western Theater. He'd been hoping to do this for a long time. That finally gets going here toward the end of the war. And also two strong cavalry forces moved from Tennessee into Alabama and South Carolina, again with the idea of destroying whatever they found that might be of value to the Confederate war effort. Sherman and his army headed toward South Carolina, third week of January, 1865. 100,000 strong. In front of them were only about 20 to 25,000 Confederates. The remnant of the Army of Tennessee, between 10 and 11,000, very hardy veterans had come east. They'd been nearly destroyed under Hood, of course, the previous December, but here they are, ready to fight in the Carolinas. They, together with some troops that were in place, brought the total to 20 to 25,000 opposing Sherman. The weather was terrible. It rained for 28 out of 45 days as the Union Army marched north, but it didn't seem to make any difference. Sherman's army averaged 10 miles a day, just as it had during the campaigning in Georgia. The troops cut down, it seemed, whole forests to corduroy roads so they'd be passable. That is, cut down the trees and lay them on stringers through the mud so that wagons and, other, and artillery and so forth could move in bad weather. They built bridges across rivers and swamps. They seemed unstoppable. Robert E. Lee had been made general-in-chief of the Confederate armies, at the very end of January, in the midst of Sherman's campaign, just as Sherman got going, and he brought Joseph E. Johnston back into command and placed him in charge in the Carolinas, Lee did. So it's Sherman against Joe Johnston again, just as it, it had been in the opening phase of the Atlanta campaign. And Johnston was absolutely stunned at the rate at which Sherman's men moved. Upon hearing that the Federals had crossed a virtually impassable swamp without even slowing down on one occasion. Johnston said, There has been no army in existence such as this since the days of Julius Caesar. Charleston surrendered on February 18. 
A black regiment was the first Union unit into the city. Some of the men in that regiment had been slaves in Charleston not that long before. The fall of Charleston was deeply symbolic. This was the cradle of the Confederacy, the nest of secession. And it was a wonderful day for most Northerners when they could look to Charleston and know that it was in Union hands. It wasn't burned, but South Carolina as a whole suffered far more damage than Georgia had suffered. The men had a vendetta against the state that they thought had caused the war. Many more houses were burned. Far more non-military related items were stolen from civilians or smashed. A northern private justified this behavior very succinctly. He said, here is where treason began, and by God, here is where it shall end. The greatest crime committed by Sherman, said many Southerners, was the burning of Columbia, South Carolina, the state capital. A controversy raged then, and there's still a debate even down to today about what exactly happened at Columbia, South Carolina. The best evidence seems to suggest that retreating Confederates lit some fires, Federals moving into the city lit other ones, and a good part of the city burned down. Some of the Union soldiers tried to help put out the fires. Uh, others tried to light other fires. But it was a combination of Confederate, I think, and Union activities that resulted in the burning of Columbia. Heavy winds uh, made it very hard to put the fires out, and it did. Th this, this conflagration did gut a good part of the capital of South Carolina. Sherman moved out of North Carolina, excuse me, out of South Carolina on into North Carolina, where he fought a battle at Bentonville near Raleigh against about 20,000 Confederates under Johnston's command. This was the last big battle uh, between the armies that had begun the war way out in Tennessee and Kentucky. There was quite a cast of Confederate generals at the Battle of Bentonville. In addition to Joseph Johnston, Braxton Bragg was there. Uh, commanding troops in the field again. Wade Hampton was there, Daniel Harvey Hill, William J. Hardy, all, plenty of generals, not enough troops on the Confederate side. That was the problem at Bentonville. Confederate army too small to have much of a chance against Sherman's powerful host. The, per the first part of the battle took place on March 19th. It was really a meeting engagement between uh, Union infantry and Confederate cavalry. Johnston mounted some unsuccessful assaults later that day on the 19th, after which he pulled back into a defensive position. Wasn't much fighting on the 20th. Federals were maneuvering into position to strike Johnston's force, and on the 21st, Johnston held off a number of Union attacks before realizing that there was really nothing he could accomplish against Sherman's army, and he withdrew. Casualties at Bentonville, about 1,600 for the Federals and 2,600 for Johnston. This action marked the end a significant fighting in North Carolina. Johnston would surrender to Sherman about a month later. We'll talk more about that in our next lecture. But here we have the Union armies, as I said a minute ago, the Union armies that had begun the war along the Mississippi River and the Ohio River, in Kentucky and Tennessee, in 1862. They had fought and marched their way across huge stretches of the Confederate hinterlands and then up through the Carolinas to end their war near Raleigh. It had been an epical accomplishment. Uh, the last part of this grand range of campaigning was Sherman in central Georgia and then in the Carolinas had inflicted enormous damage on the Confederacy, logistical as well as psychological. It was a major blow 
to the southern populace. It was a grand finale, really, uh, to this almost, not quite, but almost unbroken string of successes that these western armies uh, had managed to carve uh, onto the roster of Civil War events. Uh, They'd had a setback at Chickamauga. There had been other places where they'd been temporarily uh, stopped from accomplishing goals, but for the most part, it's an almost complete success story uh, from Halleck and Grant uh, beginning way back in 62 to the point where we have William Tecumseh Sherman at Raleigh, North Carolina, here in March of 1865. Next time, we'll move back to Virginia to follow the final phase of the war in that pivotal state. Grant and Lee, as they concluded the siege of Petersburg and moved westward to Appomattox. We'll also examine the other major surrenders of Confederate armies, which by the end of May 1865 had brought significant fighting during the Civil War to a close. Lecture 46, Petersburg to Appomattox. With this lecture, we will complete our coverage of the military side of the conflict. We'll look at the last stage of the Petersburg campaign, move then to Lee's retreat from Richmond toward Appomattox and his surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia to Ulysses S. Grant, and the Army of the Potomac at that southwestern Virginia village in early April 1865. We'll close with a brief look at other major Confederate surrenders, the surrenders that put most of uh, the Confederate field forces uh, out of commission. But let's start uh, in Virginia. As Grant tightened his grip on Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia during the winter and spring of 1865, 65. We've seen that by the end of that winter, William Tecumseh Sherman's army had made its way into North Carolina and had brought the Confederacy's western military forces, including the remnant of the Army of Tennessee, to a point of near impotence. Philip Sheridan's smashing success in the Shenandoah Valley the preceding autumn had ended major Confederate military presence there as well. But there remained in the field one important stumbling block to Northern victory, and that was Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. There were also smaller forces at various other points in the Confederacy, but the key was Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. A number of areas in the South had also been spared the direct presence of Union armies. For the United States to complete its work of suppressing the rebellion, uh, two things remained to be done. First, this is from Grant's point of view, first, this harsh war of exhaustion would have to be carried to the previously spared areas, and second, Lee's army would have to be broken. And in order to do that, Grant was going to have to find a way to root it out of the defensive lines on the Petersburg-Richmond front, get it out into the open somehow, and there pursue Lee's army to a final confrontation where the North's massive advantages of men and materiel could be brought fully to bear. Lee and Grant 
throughout the winter of 64-65 and into the spring remained essentially immobile along the Petersburg and Richmond lines. Grant constantly seeking to lengthen his lines. We've talked about this before, pushing them ever westward, southward and westward, and Lee trying to match him. Grant was trying to get control of and sever the major roads and major railroads along which supplies moved to keep Lee's army in the field. Grant wanted to make sure that Lee could not break out of Petersburg and march southward to link up with Joseph Johnston. He didn't want Lee and Johnston as a combined force to be able to face Sherman and then come back and face him. Keep these two armies apart. There was an important action on February 5th through the 7th at Hatcher's Run, where Federals challenged Lee's right flank. The Federals failed to achieve a decisive advantage here, but Grant immediately lengthened his lines in the wake of the fight at Hatcher's Run and forced Lee to extend his as well. Lee's army after that occupied a front 35 miles long. 35 miles long. Lee is being pushed to the absolute breaking point. Now, Lee knew what Grant was up to. He knew Grant was trying to stretch him out. He knew Grant didn't want him to find a way to link up with Joe Johnston. Lee hoped to find a way to do just that, but he was also facing a major problem with desertions. Desertions in the Army Northern Virginia began to rise markedly during the winter of 64-65. They reached 100 men a day in some parts of that period, and Lee knew that his strength was ebbing and that his only hope lay in extricating himself somehow from the siege lines, taking to the field, and trying to make something happen there. On March 25, 1865, Lee took one last gamble, the last great offensive spasm of the Army of Northern Virginia, if you like. Lee hoped to break through the encircling federal lines, establish enough of a corridor to allow his army to march out and then see what would happen in the field. Young Major General John B. Gordon helped plan uh, this action. Its target would be a Union fort called Fort Stedman along the lines. The idea being to capture Fort Stedman, widen the break to each side, maintain that position, and get the army out. Before dawn on March 25th, the Confederate attack began, and at first it was very successful. The Confederates captured Fort Stedman, and they took control of a long stretch of the Union works nearly a mile of them, but Grant rushed heavy reinforcements to the scene and the Federals sealed the break. They drove the Confederates back out of Fort Stedman, drove them out of the trenches to either side of Fort Stedman, and then beyond that took control of some of Lee's positions in the vicinity. So what began on, a, on an upbeat note early that morning with Confederate success had turned into a complete defeat for the Army of Northern Virginia by the end of March 25th and it had cost Lee nearly 5,000 men. Grant immediately moved to exploit this southern failure. After preliminary, preliminary fighting on March 31st along the White Oak Road and near Dinwiddie Courthouse, Grant orchestrated a major attack against Lee's extreme right flank on April 1st. The Union officer in charge was Philip Henry Sheridan. Philip Sheridan is going to be right at the center of everything that happens in the final phase of the war in Virginia. He's going to be pushing hard, is going to be the really the key Union actor from this point 
to Appomattox. On April 1st, a powerful column under Sheridan struck Lee's extreme right flank and routed it at a place called Five Forks, inflicted another 5,000 casualties on the Confederates. Only about 1,000 Federals fell. Now, there was later a rumor that the Confederate commander at Five Forks, who was George E. Pickett of Pickett's Charge fame, that Pickett had been away from the front, hadn't been with his troops at the critical moment, that he, together with other generals, Lee's nephew being one of them, Fitzhugh Lee, and another cavalryman named Thomas L. Rosser, they'd been behind the lines uh, frying some fish, actually baking some shad, uh, not paying attention to what was going on, and that when the critical moment came, there was no leadership on the Confederate side. That was the end of Pickett's stint with the army. Lee had had it with him and eased him out of the way, uh, but it was not a pretty picture on the Confederate side. There was also an ugly confrontation on the Union side during the Battle of Five Forks. The principal Union infantry commander on the scene was Governor K. Warren, commander of the Fifth Corps. His Fifth Corps helped carry the day at Five Forks, but Sheridan wasn't happy with Warren's performance. I'm sure Sheridan also knew that Grant and Meade were not that happy with how Warren had performed for a long time. Sheridan removed him on the spot while the battle was still going on, or at least the very last phases of it, an absolutely humiliating episode for Governor Warren. Uh, Warren was deeply affronted. He spent literally the rest of his life trying to vindicate himself. Sheridan just moved on. Uh, it was a great success for the Federals at Five Forks. One of the Corps commanders, however, is pushed aside uh, very rudely. The day after the Battle of Five Forks, on April 2nd, Grant attacked along the entire line, hoping to trap Lee in Petersburg, but the Confederates managed to fight off the Federals well enough for Lee to pull the army out and to escape to the West. There were a couple of desperate examples of Confederate defenders, one at a place called Fort Gregg, where about 300 Confederates held off thousands of attacking Federals long enough for a number of units uh, to pull themselves out. Overall, another 5,000 Confederate casualties in these final assaults. That's 15,000 casualties since the attacks at Fort Stedman to this point. Lee is gone from Petersburg, and the loss of Petersburg meant that Richmond would have to be evacuated. The Confederate government left the city on April 2nd, setting fire to all military materials before they left. Huge fires raged along the James Riverfront. Hundreds of buildings were destroyed in these fires as the Confederates pulled out. Abraham Lincoln arrived in Richmond on April 4th uh, to survey the city and to be welcomed by uh, free African Americans and by a handful of white Unionists who were happy to see the United States back in control. The loss of Petersburg and of Richmond really struck an emotional chord with most of the men who had been defending it. This had been the great focal point of the Confederate War in Virginia for four years. Richmond. Richmond must be held. Richmond is our point. And as the army left Richmond, it had a tremendous effect on the soldiers. Let me quote from an artillerist who described his feelings as the army in northern Virginia left the city. He wrote, it was after sunrise of a bright morning when from the high ground west of the city we turned to take our last look at Richmond, for which we had fought so long and so hard. It was a sad, a terrible, and a solemn sight. I don't know that any moment in the whole war 
impressed me more deeply with all its stern realities than this. The whole riverfront seemed to be in flames, amid which occasional heavy explosions were heard, and the black smoke spreading and hanging over the city seemed to be full of dreadful portents. I rode on with a distinctly heavy heart and with a peculiar sort of feeling of orphanage. Well, Lee and his army moved westward. Lee had about 35,000 men at this point. He hoped to get rations on the road ahead, and he hoped eventually still to join Joseph Johnston. But the better-fed and clothed Federals easily kept pace with the Confederates. Uh, Philip Sheridan, with infantry and cavalry, paralleled Lee's movements uh, to the south. Sheridan is south of Lee to prevent his turning toward North Carolina, so he's blocking that part of Lee's plan, and the mass of the Army of the Potomac is pushing right against the rear of the retreating Confederates. Hundreds of hungry Confederate soldiers collapsed by the road and were captured. Hundreds more simply threw their weapons away and stumbled on to the west. On the 6th of April, a sharp fight at Sailor's Creek resulted in the capture of 7,000 Southern soldiers, including General Richard Ewell and one of Lee's sons, uh, who was also a general, Custis Lee. They were taken prisoner at Sailor's Creek. Lee watched from a hill overlooking the creek, watched this disaster unfold. He turned to a staff officer and exclaimed, My God, has this army been dissolved? Two days later, on the 8th of April, Sheridan managed to get in front of the remnant of Lee's army and capture rations that were waiting for the Confederate infantry, cavalry, and the horses and mules that were pulling the wagons and guns of the army. There was a pathetic, a final pathetic attempt to break through the Federals that blocked the way west, and on April 9th, Lee realized that further fighting was futile and that he must ask Grant for surrender terms. I would rather die a thousand deaths, he said, but he sent the message to Grant. The two met in the parlor of Wilmer McLean's red brick house in Appomattox Courthouse in southwestern Virginia. McLean had begun the war as a property owner near the battlefield at First Manassas. The presence of the armies had virtually ruined him economically then. He decided that he would move to a place so far removed from the action that he could at least live out the war in peace, and now the war has found him again. He's going to once again see armies come and sit on his property and essentially take everything away from it that they want to take. He is a two-time loser, uh, is Wilmer McLean in the war. Lee showed up for this meeting, immaculately dressed, a dress uniform, uh, he had a saber. He expected to be taken prisoner and wanted to look like a soldier. Grant showed up for the meeting in muddy clothing. Uh, this has often been construed as a deliberate affront on Grant's part, that he wanted to humiliate Lee by showing up dressed shabbily. Uh, that isn't true at all. When Grant learned uh, definitively that there would be a meeting, he wanted to hurry to get to the spot so that Lee didn't have to sit and wait. He believed that would be humiliating for Lee to sit and wait, so Grant hurried to meet Lee. But the two presented quite a contrast, at least in attire. They made some small talk. It must be among the most awkward small talk ever made by anyone anywhere. I uh, talked a little bit about Mexico. Uh, Grant remembered Lee from Mexico. Lee had been a fairly uh, well-known figure then. Lee admitted in his usual forthright way, I guess, that he had tried to remember something about Grant but hadn't been able to remember a single thing uh, about Grant. Uh, they got past that and got down to the terms. Grant allowed very generous terms. He allowed the terms that Abraham Lincoln 
made known that he would want uh, his generals to offer. Lincoln wanted Reconstruction to get moving. We've talked about that before. He didn't want heavy disabilities for everybody in the Confederacy. He wanted some, but not for everyone. And Grant gave generous terms. All the Southerners would be able to keep their horses. He hadn't known, he told Lee, that Confederate cavalrymen had to buy their own horses so the men could keep their horses. He sent 25,000 rations from his army over to the Confederate army. He didn't send forage for the animals in the Confederate army, and there are, are, are heart-rending accounts of Confederate horses literally dying in the traces, uh, Confederate horses that pulled cannons and so forth, lined up to be surrendered, and the horses collapsing and dying uh, of starvation and exhaustion in the road at Appomattox. But generally a very lenient set of terms that Grant offered. None of the Confederates would be taken into custody. They would all simply sign paroles and would be allowed to go home. There was one person who was not at the surrender who should have been there, George Gordon Meade, who had commanded the Army of the Potomac ever since Gettysburg, was not present at the surrender. Many Union generals were. Meade was not. I think that is the affront uh, at Appomattox. Meade certainly should have been there uh, for this final act in the Virginia drama. Lee offered Grant his sword at one point. Grant refused it. The two shook hands. Grant later remembered that he was, as he put it, sad and depressed at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and valiantly and had suffered so much for a cause, though the cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which people ever fought. Lee rode away from the McLean house. Uh, Some of his men crowded around him when he got back to the camps where the Army of Northern Virginia uh, was in place. Uh, Again, one of those several moments during the war when the bond between Lee and his men showed in sharp relief. Still tremendous uh, affection and emotion involved there. The formal surrender took place on a cloudy April 12th. Lee and Grant were both gone by that time. Some of the regiments of the Army Northern Virginia had been reduced about to the size of a company in 1861, uh, but they marched up out of the low ground along uh, one fork of the Appomattox River and marched up a little hill along the old Richmond Stage Road uh, into the streets of the village. Three brigades of federal troops waited for them along the streets in the village. They were under the command of Joseph J. Bartlett, who commanded the 1st Division of the 5th Corps of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, The officer nearest the Confederates, the brigade nearest the Confederates, was that of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who had commanded on Little Round Top and then had been grievously wounded during the Petersburg campaign and would end the war as a brevet uh, major general. Joshua Chamberlain later claimed that he commanded the federal troops who received the surrender. He didn't, uh, but he was the closest to the Confederates as they marched up that road. Some of the Federals said that they had the sensation that there was just a mass of flags coming toward them, uh, red flags coming toward them as the Confederates came up. The units were so small that the flags seemed to be massed together. But as they came up one at a time, the Confederate units would march. They would stop opposite the Federals. They'd step into the middle of the road. They would stack their muskets, their cartridge boxes, lay their banners down, step away, and then march on. When it was over... 28,000 men had been paroled in Appomattox, and the Army in Northern Virginia had ceased to exist. Joe Johnston's army was still in the field, as were miscellaneous other Confederate forces. But when the last musket was set down at Appomattox Courthouse, 
the Confederacy really was dead on that April 12th because of the position that Lee and his army held in the Confederacy and in the view of those in the North and elsewhere. They had been the most important army. They'd been the most important national institution. I've emphasized this through much of this course. And it made sense that their surrender marked the end of the war uh, for most people who were observing, not only for Confederates, but also for Federals. It was the position, the stature of Lee uh, that led to this situation. And let me read just uh, one quotation from late in the war that suggests the position of Lee uh, among Confederates. This is from mid-March 1865. It's the diary of a member of Parliament named Connolly who came into the Confederacy very late and made some astute observations about uh, the war at that phase. He said, this is in his diary, General Robert E. Lee is the idol of his soldiers and the hope of his country. The prestige which surrounds his person and the almost fanatical belief in his judgment and capacity is the one idea of an entire people. And a young woman who reacted to news of Lee's surrender, I think shows how most people received the bad tidings from Appomattox and how they thought that the end of Lee and his army meant the end of the war. This young Georgia woman wrote, Everybody feels ready to give up hope. It's useless to struggle longer, seems to be the common cry, and the poor wounded men go hobbling about the streets with despair on their faces. I think that was the common reaction in the Confederacy. Uh, Even on the federal side, uh, there was a sense of disbelief might be too strong a word, but a difficulty in coming to terms with the fact that the Army of Northern Virginia was no longer a Confederate force to be reckoned with. Uh, They certainly believed that this was a major uh, stage of the war. The war is probably over, but they couldn't quite believe, many of them, that Lee had actually surrendered. I'll quote from a New Englander named Stephen Minot Weld, an officer in the Army of the Potomac who'd fought through much of the war. He wrote to his sister, and explained to her that he wasn't really that excited about Lee's surrender, that some at some point he might be, but he couldn't be yet, and this is how he explained it. He said, to tell the truth, we none of us realize even yet that he has actually surrendered. I had a sort of impression that we should fight him all our lives. He was like a ghost to children, something that haunted us so long that we could not realize that he and his army were really out of existence to us. It will take me some months to be conscious of this fact. So again, uh, both Union and Confederate testimony, I think, makes clear why Appomattox is such a great moment during the Civil War. It's not literally the end of the war, but it's effectively the end of the war because this very important Confederate army uh, has been removed from from the southern order of battle. All right, Lee's finished. His army, gone. Let's see what happened to the rest of the Confederate military forces in the field. The other major surrenders. After Appomattox, several forces are still to be reckoned with. Lee only commanded about 25% of the soldiers under arms at the time of Appomattox. The second surrender came at Durham Station, North Carolina. Uh, There was no Durham, North Carolina at the time, just a station on the railroad, approximately where modern Durham is, near Raleigh. On April 18th, Joseph Johnston and... William Tecumseh Sherman met at Durham Station in a place called the Bennett House, a a very modest little place, and signed a memorandum of agreement that revealed, I think, Sherman's essential sympathy with the White South. He'd been all for making hard war on the White South until they were finally defeated, but once fighting ceased, 
he became very generous, far more generous even than Grant and Lincoln had been. Lee's army's gone. Johnston and Sherman sit down, and these are the terms that Sherman offers. He says, first of all, I'll accept the surrender of all Confederate forces, not just yours, General Johnston, but all of them. So this will serve for everybody. I will recognize the legitimacy of the state governments currently sitting in the South. These are Confederate governments. And Sherman is saying, I'll recognize them as legitimate. Third, he guaranteed the political rights of former Confederates. You'll have political rights, he says. And finally, he offered a general amnesty. Well, Sherman has stepped way beyond his authority in offering these kinds of things to Joseph Johnston. He doesn't have the power to say, I'll accept the surrender of all forces, and he certainly doesn't have the power to make these political decisions about who will suffer disabilities and who will not, whether state governments can sit. Andrew Johnson, Lincoln is dead by this time, of course, Andrew Johnson and Secretary of War Stanton rejected Sherman's terms. And Grant had to tell Sherman, listen, the terms you can offer are essentially the terms I offered to Lee. Those are the terms that we're offering. They have to be pretty much identical to mine. Sherman learned that on April 24th, that his sweeping terms would not be accepted by his government. And he and Johnston met again on April 26th, again at the Bennett House at Durham Station. And that day, Johnston surrendered the remnant of the old Army of Tennessee and the other troops that he had led in the Carolinas, about 30,000 in all, surrendered those to Sherman. Uh, During the surrender proceedings, John C. Breckinridge took part, former vice president under James Buchanan, candidate for presidency in 1860, and he Confederate Secretary of War for a time and a general. According to Johnston's later account, Breckinridge was in a very somber mood. Breckinridge was there because he was considered a top-flight lawyer with great political experience, and he might be useful in discussing these kinds of things. Davis later said, or excuse me, Joe Johnston later said that Breckinridge, in a somber mood, appeared dull and heavy at the outset, he said. Then Sherman asked if anyone would like a drink. Johnston later recalled that Breckinridge tossed away a quid of tobacco he was working on, poured himself a huge glassful of this whiskey, and drank it right down. Johnston said a beatific, and that's his word, not mine, glow immediately spread over Breckinridge's face. He came alive, and in the ensuing discussions, Breckinridge was on the edge of his seat, very much involved in what everyone was saying, full of ideas and observations, eloquent, gentlemanly. Toward the end of the meeting, Sherman again, this is Johnston's account, absentmindedly got up, wandered over to his saddlebags, pulled out the bottle. Johnston said Breckinridge's eyes lit up again, but this time Sherman sort of absentmindedly took a drink, took a swig, and put the bottle back without offering it to anybody, the flask. Johnston said Breckinridge's expression went from expectation to uncertainty to disgust and finally deep depression. He was silent for the rest of the meeting. And after the meeting, when the generals broke up, these terms were the ones that Grant had offered Lee, so they're generous terms. As they were walking out, Johnston asked Breckinridge what he thought of Sherman. Breckinridge said, Sherman's a bright man and a man of great force. But, he said with his voice rising, according to Johnston, General Sherman is a hog. Yes, sir, he is a hog. Did you see him take that drink by himself? No Kentucky gentleman would ever have taken away that bottle. I think maybe Breckinridge's priorities were a little off that day, but the main thing is that at Durham Station, 
Sherman extended the same terms uh, that Grant had extended to Lee, and the second major Confederate army has surrendered. On May 4th, a third capitulation took place when General Richard Taylor surrendered his 10,000 men to ERS Canby uh, at Citronelle, Alabama. It's about 40 miles uh, from Mobile. Same terms as Grant gave Lee. Six days after that, on May 10th, Jefferson Davis was captured near Irwinville, Georgia, together with Mrs. Davis, Postmaster General John H. Reagan, and members of Davis's staff. There were rumors at the time in the North that Davis had been captured in women's clothing, that he'd tried to escape by dressing himself as a woman, and there were some cartoons in Northern publications of Davis with a dress on, running away from the Federals. It was a great image in the North, and one that seemed to show Davis to be anything but the stalwart gentleman that people in the Confederacy claimed that he was. He'd, in fact, uh, had a chill and had a shawl around his shoulders, and I suppose that's what the origin of this was, but the North made much of Jefferson Davis uh, trying to dress as a woman and escape his fate. Two years of prison awaited Davis, but he was never tried for treason, and he was allowed to resume a normal life after his release. One reason he wasn't put on trial, I think, is because he would have welcomed a trial. He would have wanted to argue the legality, the constitutionality of secession. And no one was really certain whether it was constitutional or not. It would depend on how a court decided. I think many in the North didn't want to face that prospect of that kind of a, of a discussion over secession. The war had decided that uh, keep Jefferson Davis in jail a while and then send him home. The last land fight of the war took place near Brownsville, Texas on May 12, 13th at a place called Palmito Ranch. It was a small Confederate victory. And the last major surrender came on May 26th at New Orleans when all forces in the Trans-Mississippi were surrendered. Same terms as Lee had gotten from Grant. The final shots of the war were not fired until June 28, 1865, when the Confederate commerce raider Shenandoah captured 11 United States whaling vessels in the Bering Sea. Uh, they, the crew of the Shenandoah found out from a newspaper on board one of the victims uh, that the war had ended and the Shenandoah uh, would spend the next four months uh, sailing to Liverpool, England, where it finally ended its career on November 4th, 1865. I think the liberality of all the surrender terms was astonishing when we take into account the scale and intensity of the war. Except for Henry Wirtz, the commandant at Andersonville, uh, there are no executions for treason, none. Uh, there are a few people hanged in Kentucky and perhaps elsewhere on charges of murder, sort of related to the war, but no official hangings on the part of the United States except Henry Wirtz. Davis and a few others served some time in prison, uh, but no one more than two years. Lee and the principal military leaders were allowed simply to go home. Uh, it was a very quiet end, I think, to this enormously, enormously costly war. Uh, very unusual. We will leave here with the surrenders completed. Uh, next time, uh, we'll look at the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. We'll look at the cost of the war, and we will speculate a little bit about what factors were most important in bringing Northern victory.
Lecture 47, Closing Scenes and Reckonings. In this lecture, we're going to touch on a disparate range of topics. We'll begin by looking at the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and considering some of the explanations that have been put forward about why Lincoln was killed. We'll then move on to a consideration of the cost of the war, both the human and material cost of the war. And we'll finish by looking at some of the more prominent explanations that have been offered for why the North emerged victorious or why the Confederacy failed uh, to achieve its independence, whichever way you prefer uh, to pose that question. But let's begin with the assassination of Lincoln. Good Friday. It was April 14, 1865. And on that day, Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd Lincoln attended a performance of a time-worn comedy called Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. Lincoln was 56 years old. He was terribly worn by the stress of presiding over the Union war effort. Uh, the, the, the toll that the war took on his face uh, was amazing. If you compare a photograph of him in 1861 uh, with the shots taken shortly before he died, uh, you can read uh, every bit of the toll that the war took on him. He was overjoyed at Union victory, of course, but he was also well aware of the fact that Reconstruction lay ahead and that the next phase of this continuing crisis for the United States was about to begin, how to get the Confederate States, the former Confederate States, back into the Union. But April 14th would be a night to relax, thought Lincoln. He Mrs. Lincoln hoped that Ulysses Grant and Julia Dent Grant would join them at the performance, but the Grants begged off, claiming family obligations. I think it's more likely that Mrs. Grant, uh, who loathed Mary Todd Lincoln, simply told the general that she wouldn't go or really didn't want to go. At any rate, they didn't go. The Lincolns ended up uh, going with a young couple who stood in for the Grants. They left the executive mansion about 8.30, got in after the play had already begun, and settled in to the presidential box and began to watch. About 10 p.m., John Wilkes Booth, a member of the nation's most prominent acting family, Junius Booth uh, and Edwin Booth, both part of his family, John Wilkes Booth slipped into the president's box and shot him in the back of the head with a derringer. Shouting, Six Semper Tyrannus, thus ever to tyrants, the Virginia state motto, Booth leaped out of the box, caught his spur on some bunting that was draped in front of the box, broke his leg when he hit the stage and hobbled off the stage, got onto a horse and made his escape. Booth was a Southern sympathizer who thought he was doing the Confederacy a favor by killing Abraham Lincoln. He'd been involved earlier in a plot designed to kidnap the president and try to extract some kind of concessions from the United States on behalf of the Confederacy. Recent evidence has shown that Booth may have worked on that kidnapping plot with Confederate agents who had been plotting some kind of move against Lincoln late in the war as the Confederacy became more and more desperate uh, to turn the tide. There's even some evidence that these Confederates had considered trying to blow up the executive mansion, as the White House was called at that time. But when that failed, the plot to kidnap Lincoln failed. Booth on his own, this was not in consultation with the Confederate agents, Booth shifted to another plan, and that plan was to murder the president. He pulled together a motley group of 
people to support him in this scheme. On the night of the 14th, others in this small group were assigned the tasks of killing Vice President Andrew Johnson and Secretary of State William Henry Seward. They may also have targeted other federal leaders, but we can't be sure about that. The one assigned to kill Johnson lost his nerve entirely uh, and fled before attempting to kill the new vice president. The one assigned to kill Seward actually forced his way into the Seward home, attacked the secretary, slashed his face very badly. Seward was scarred for the rest of his life and injured Seward's son as well, who tried to defend his father. Uh, He thought he had killed Seward and he left the Seward house. Lincoln, after he was wounded, was carried across the street to the Peterson House. It's still a house that you can visit in Washington, D.C., a very moving place to visit. Placed in a small bedroom, and through the night, people gathered at his side, including Secretary of War Stanton. Lincoln died about 7.30 a.m. on the 15th of April, never having regained consciousness. The North was plunged into mourning, and a groundswell of hatred, renewed hatred, grew up against the South. Jefferson Davis was to blame, said many people in the North. He obviously planned this. The Confederates are trying in this last desperate act uh, to get even with the United States. Well, it hadn't been the act of Jefferson Davis or the Confederates. It had been the act of John Wilkes Booth and his cohorts, but many in the North, of course, didn't believe that. Uh, Many white Southerners rejoiced at news of Lincoln's death. I'll quote from the diary uh, of a young Louisiana woman who wrote in April 1865, we hear that Lincoln is dead. There can be no doubt, I suppose, that he's been killed by J.W. Booth. Six Semper Tyrannus, as his brave destroyer shouted as he sprang on his horse, all honor to J. Wilkes Booth, who has rid the world of a tyrant and made himself famous for generations. A considerable part of the White South clearly reacted to news of Lincoln's death this way. Others were saddened, or at least upset, upset might be a better word to use, because they thought that Lincoln might pursue a more lenient course toward them in peace than the radical Republicans, for example. If they had to choose, they didn't want to go back into the United States, but if they had to choose between Thaddeus Stevens dictating terms and Abraham Lincoln dictating terms, they would choose Lincoln. So a division of sentiment in the cold confederacy about the Lincoln assassination. A massive manhunt was put in motion to find the assassin. On April 26, the cavalry patrol tracked Booth to a farm in Virginia, not far from the Rappahannock River. Booth took shelter in a barn. They called on him to surrender. He refused to surrender. The Union soldiers set fire to the barn, and one of them, peering through cracks in the siding, uh, saw Booth, fired at him, and mortally wounded him. Booth was dragged out of the barn, laid out on the porch of the house, and after an agonizing period, he died there in Virginia. Eight others were subsequently put on trial, four of whom were hanged, including Mrs. Mary Surratt, who had kept the boarding house where Booth and his accomplices met. Four others were sentenced to life at hard labor. Mrs. Surratt's sentence was probably unfair. She probably did not know what was going on in her house. She knew that these people were Southern sympathizers. She was a Southern sympathizer, but she probably didn't know that they were plotting the death of the United States president. It's also possible that Dr. Samuel Mudd, who set Booth's broken leg after Booth fled from Washington, may not have deserved the harsh sentence that he received. That's a little less clear 
from the evidence. But the intense feelings generated across the North by the assassination certainly contributed to these very harsh sentences. I'm going to offer just a few other words about the assassination because Americans have shown again and again a morbid fascination with plots linked to assassinations of public figures. Many simply refuse to accept any sort of official explanation. There must be more to it uh, than the obvious explanation. It must be more complicated. There must be dark forces at work uh, that led to these assassinations. The Kennedy assassination buffs certainly fall into this camp, as do Lincoln assassination buffs. They are quite amazing groups who always assume something is hidden from them in their search for explanations. I think that Oliver Stone's movie JFK is a logical, if weird, expression of the approach to Kennedy's death. Well, there is a literature relating to Lincoln's death that is equally weird, in my opinion. I don't know what happened in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, but I do know what happened at Ford's Theater on the night of April 14, 1865. John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln. It was John Wilkes Booth's idea to do it. Booth put together the group of people who helped him carry this out, and Booth paid for it with his life. But over the years, many people have promoted a theory that there was a vast conspiracy to bring Lincoln down, and they've included a number of very prominent northern leaders in this conspiracy. Edwin M. Stanton orchestrated it because he was afraid that Lincoln was going to be too easy on the Confederacy. So let's kill Lincoln and get him out of the way so that the, those who want a harsher peace will have their way. Others have argued that Lafayette Baker, uh, who was the head of a sort of detective bureau in the United States government, was in the midst of this plot to kill Lincoln. A key figure in putting forward many of these theories was a man named Otto Eisenschimmel, uh, who wrote books in the 1930s and 1940s that spun this great web of conspiracy with Lincoln in the center as the target. One side argument made by some of these people is that the Booth supposedly killed in the Virginia barn wasn't Booth at all, but a stand-in who looked like Booth, who'd been placed there uh, in uh, a, an attempt to shield Booth from justice. Booth himself escaped. Some say he went to Oklahoma. Some say he went to California. Some say he went to Europe. He went somewhere, uh, but he was not killed in that barn. One of the worst movies, at least one of the least historically accurate movies ever made, dealt with the Lincoln murder conspiracies, came out in 1977, as did an equally bad television version of uh, documentary of the events produced in the 1960s. A very careful analysis published in 1983 by a historian named William Hanchett, entitled The Lincoln Murder Conspiracies, proves what serious students of the assassination had known all along, namely that the conspiracy theories of Eisenschimmel and others were completely without foundation in terms of strong, compelling evidence. It was Booth's show all the way. As I said earlier, the Confederate government was thinking about some kind of action against Lincoln in the very late stages of the war, perhaps even trying to blow up the White House, but they were not involved in the events played out at Ford's Theater on April 14, 1865. Booth's assassination scheme was his, not part of some broader effort to get at Lincoln. All right, let's move on and talk a little bit about the cost of the war. It will never be possible to pin, to pin down with precision the entire 
human or material cost of the Civil War. The records simply aren't there for us to reconstruct the precise cost. But some figures will give you a sense of what was lost. Casualties in all the engagements, and if by engagement we mean clashes between a few dozen people on each side up to Gettysburg or Chickamauga or Mammoth battles, there were about 10,000 engagements if you include that entire range of military activity. Uh, Casualties in all those engagements amounted to an enormous number within the context of U.S. losses in other wars. And let me just run through these in a comparative sense very quickly, and we'll start with northern losses during the war. The United States mustered between 2.1 and 2.0 million men during the war, as we've seen. 2.1 to 2.2 million. Of those, and they made up about half the military-age population in 1860, of those, 360,000 died during the war. 110,000 from battle, uh, from being killed in battle. The rest dying from disease or accidents. In other words, about two-thirds didn't die in battle. One-third died in battle. Another 275,000 Union soldiers were wounded in battle. So they had a death rate of about one in six and killed and wounded in battle about 17.5% when you put the the death in battle uh, compared to all of those who served and the killed and wounded in battle uh, compared to those who served. The Confederate figures much higher. Confederacy paid, the Northern price was high, the Confederate price much higher. Confederacy mobilized between 750,000 and 850,000 men. The figures won't even allow us to pin that down with great accuracy. But that was probably 75 to 85 percent of the draft age white men in 1860. Again, only the presence of slave labor behind the lines allowed the Confederacy to put such a high percentage of its men into uniform. Of those 750 to 850,000 men, about 260,000 died during the war. 94,000 on the battlefield, 164,000 or so from disease. Wounded in combat totaled about 200,000 on the Confederate side. Deaths thus ran to about one in three of all men in uniform and killed and wounded in battle to between 37 and 39% on the Confederate side. Total deaths, about 620,000 during the Civil War. Total killed and wounded, about 1.1 million. More men died during the Civil War than in all of our other wars combined, uh, from the colonial wars down through about the midpoint of the war in Vietnam. Add all the deaths in all those other wars, and you come up with a total smaller than that for the Civil War. As a percentage of those who served, the Civil War totals are also strikingly higher than in our other wars. 37 to 39 percent for the Confederates, 17 and a half percent for the Federals. Other wars, the Revolution, between 4.2 and 5.7 percent of the soldiers died. In the War of 1812, 2.4 percent. War with Mexico, 5.1 percent. The War with Spain, less than 1 percent. World War I, 5.4%. World War II, 5.8%. In Korea, about 2.5%. And in Vietnam, a shade more than 7%. So the rates, the northern rates, are far higher than United States percentages in any other war. And the Confederate rate is almost uh, on a different scale than our losses in other wars. It was a hard war on leadership as well. 65 northern and 92 Confederate generals were killed 
during the war. It was more dangerous to be a general then uh, than it is now. So the human cost was enormous. And this doesn't include civilians who died from privations associated with the war. And there certainly were many of those in the Confederacy. There's no way we can get a number on that. No way at all. What about the economic side? The war produced spending on a scale far beyond that of any other event in United States history down to this time. Again, it's impossible to put an exact total together, but some figures are instructive. Federal budget in 1860 was $63 million a year. In 1865, the United States budget was $1.3 billion. $1.3 billion, an increase of about 200-fold, and that doesn't include Confederate expenditures. If you factor in how much money the Confederacy was spending, you would probably have to add enough to get to about a 350-fold increase. An estimate made in 1879 put costs to that date for the North at more than $6 billion, more than $6 billion by 1879. And that did not include an enormous amount of money that would be paid in pensions to veterans and to widows of veterans over many decades. In fact, there are still several women in the United States receiving pensions as a result of their having been married to Civil War veterans. There aren't many left, but there are a few left, even as we approach uh, the millennium. Estimates for Confederate expenditures through 1863 are about $2 billion. After 1863, Confederate records are so fragmentary that we can't really even put a ballpark figure on it. But the bottom line is that the two sections spent on an undreamed-of scale during the war and indebtedness grew to unimaginable size by mid-19th century standards. And, of course, those costs continued to go throughout the century, as I said, and well into the 20th century. What about destruction in the South? Property losses. It was similar to that suffered by nations all over the rest of the world in wars, but unlike the typical American experience. Most of the world has been through this kind of experience, where they have had armies marching back and forth, and there have been enormous property losses. That's not a typically... American experience, at least not for white America, but it was for the Confederacy. Two-thirds of the entire assessed wealth of the Confederate states swept away by the war. Much of that in the form of slave property, of course. All of that slave property gone. A quarter of the white men dead of military age. Another quarter maimed. Two-fifths of all the livestock in the Confederacy, these are estimates, dead. More than half of all farm machinery destroyed. Railroads and industries in a complete shambles. The countryside, much of it, bearing no visual relationship in many instances to its appearance before 1860. And let me just read from a couple of quotations. Witnesses, these are during the war, not retrospective views, that give some sense of how hard the war hit different parts of the Confederacy. I'll start with Arthur James Lyon Fremantle a British officer who visited the Confederacy in 1863 and kept a diary in which he recorded observations about the Confederate countryside. This is from June 1863. He's on the eastern slope of the Blue Ridge Mountains near Sperryville, and he remarked that the area is completely cleaned out. The presence of the armies for more than a year has left many acres almost uncultivated, and no animals are grazing where there used to be hundreds. All fences have been destroyed and numberless farms burnt. The chimneys alone left standing. Fremantle concluded, It's difficult to depict and impossible to exaggerate the sufferings which this part of Virginia 
has undergone. In the fall of 1864, a visitor in the Fredericksburg, Virginia area wrote down this observation. All is as still as death for miles and miles. Under the sweet autumnal sun, the war indeed has blighted this area. That is Fredericksburg. How about Middle Tennessee? Middle Tennessee was one of the show places of the antebellum south, a very rich agricultural area. A northern cavalryman writing in April 1863 anticipated the language Fremantle would use to describe Sperryville two months later. He wrote, It's really sad to see this beautiful country here so ruined. There are no fences left at all. There's no corn and hay for the cattle and horses. But then there are no horses left anyhow, and the planters have no food for themselves. And I'll just give one more of these quotations. This is from the Valley of the Red River in Louisiana, which presented an equally dreary picture in mid-1864. This is a colonel named George W. Guess of the 31st Texas Cavalry, who proclaimed, quote, not only every vestige of food in, the, in this whole country has been destroyed, but nearly every town and every house has been burned. Innumerable bits of testimony uh, such as these, I think, indicate the degree to which the war laid an extremely heavy hand uh, on the Confederate states, that part of the South that joined the Confederacy. Two numbers will give a sense of the economic cost of the war. Between 1860 and 1870, northern wealth increased by 50%. During that same decade, southern wealth decreased by 60%. So just an enormous crossing of those lines and an undoubted, unbelievably high price that the Confederacy paid in a material sense for its experiment in rebellion. All right, what about the question of why the war ended as it did. Let's move uh, to a brief consideration of that. Any number of explanations have been put forward over the years about why the United States was the victor, why the Confederacy failed. Some historians have insisted that the Confederates never really became nationalists. They never had a sense of national striving. They remained too wedded to their notions of state rights and individual freedoms. They wouldn't turn loose of those in an effort to win their independence. And certainly there are some instances of state rights getting in the way, and many uh, white Southerners believed that the war had been destructive to their state rights. They complained about it. Uh, they leveled uh, blasts against the Davis government, as we've seen, including Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy. But I don't think the state rights notion holds up under scrutiny because, in fact, the Confederacy went much farther down the road toward a powerful central government than the United States did during the Civil War. The Confederate people put up with conscription before the North did. They put up with attacks in kind. They put up with impressment. They put up with a range of intrusions from the central government. Absolutely unprecedented in United States history. And in the end, of course, they even debated the question of putting slaves into their military if that were necessary to win the war. In fact, they gave up almost all of their pre-war notions about state and individual rights that had to be protected against the central government in the course of their war to achieve independence. Leaders in the Confederate cause who pushed for this national approach were, of course, Jefferson Davis, who did so relentlessly, and Robert E. Lee, who called for the subordinating of every other interest to the national cause. 
So I don't think state rights is really what caused the Confederacy to fail. Now, other historians have argued quite persuasively that a range of internal divisions within the Confederacy undid society and made the Confederacy reach a point where, although there were still men in the armies, the folks back home had become so disaffected that they weren't willing to support the effort anymore. And they point to yeomen who believed it was a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. Uh, They point to non-slaveholders who said that the slaveholders were simply trying to have their property made safe and there was really nothing in the war for the non-slaveholders. They argue that women lost heart well before the military balance had shifted decisively, that many women believed God had deserted them and the defeats on the battlefield proved that, that other women argued that their patriarchal compact where they agreed to behave a certain way and men had certain obligations, one of which was to protect families and women. Uh, Men had failed in that part of their obligation, and therefore all bets were off, and this struggle for the Confederacy lost meaning for many of these women. There's some truth to all of these. In fact, a good deal of truth to all of these. There's tremendous disaffection in the Confederacy. There's an enormous amount of class tension at one time or another in the Confederacy. But so is their class tension and disaffection in the North. And I submit in every other society in the midst of a crisis like this, if all you do is focus on these tensions, I think it tends to obscure the larger picture. And I think that's the case in regard to the Civil War. By focusing on the admittedly significant internal tensions in the Civil War, I think that historians have lost sight of the fact that the majority of the white South stayed remarkably consistent in supporting the war and in being willing to sacrifice for the war. I think the most persuasive explanation, and this is in some sense one of the oldest ones, is that the North prevailed in the end because the North had enormous advantages of men and material and because the Northern people proved willing to stay at it long enough to allow those advantages to be felt. Those advantages would have meant nothing if the Northern people hadn't also shown tremendous tenacity during the war. Northern manpower and material wealth, we've talked about them in this class. In in many categories, they were simply overwhelming. And on the surface, that would seem to suggest the North would have to win. We've seen, however, that that, those uh, factors in favor of the North won't necessarily yield victory unless the North is willing to stick to the course. And more than once, the North seemed close almost on the verge of deciding the war wasn't worth the tremendous cost, but in the end, they stayed. And the key reasons are effective leadership, I believe, on Abraham Lincoln's part in explaining what the war was about, in bringing the northern people along so that emancipation was added to Union uh, as a war aim, never as important as Union, I don't think, for most white northerners, but added. Lincoln was brilliant at explaining things to the northern people and trying to keep a consensus among people who differed on a number of issues. But that wouldn't have been enough without effective military leadership. The north during the war developed the military leaders who delivered the victories that were vital to keeping the northern people hitched to this effort. Grant and Sherman and Sheridan and Thomas and Farragut and leaders of that kind in the end provided the successes on the battlefield that allowed Lincoln to continue to use his considerable political gifts to rally the northern people. If there hadn't been those victories, if there hadn't been a military leadership willing to do things that would have been considered beyond the pale early in the war, 
the striking at the Confederate civilian front, which Grant and Sherman and Sheridan were willing to do. That was a necessary component in Union victory as well. Other leaders wouldn't have done that. McClellan wouldn't. I don't think George Meade would have. Uh, Don Carlos Buell and those kinds of men almost certainly could not have brought the North to victory. But in the course of the conflict, the North had in Lincoln the great political leader and developed the military leaders that it needed to make sure that its advantages in numbers and materiel prevailed. The victories came at the key times, always seemed to come right at the key times. The spring of 63, a very bad time for the North, then Gettysburg and Vicksburg. The summer of 64, a very bad time, and then the great victories from Sherman and Sheridan. And even earlier, uh, the, the bad period in the late summer of 62 and going into the fall, and then a turnaround at Antietam and with the Kentucky campaign. The military came through when it had to. I think a majority of the Confederates fought hard. They supported the war, but they ultimately proved unable to match northern power and will. Part of the reason was that they had Lee, and Lee went a long way toward demoralizing the North and went a long way toward pushing the Confederacy right to the verge of victory, I think, more than once. But in the end, his victories were not enough. The Confederacy needed another great general somewhere else in the war who could provide some victories, apply some pressure on the North. They never came up with that other leader, and I think that that was a major failing. The overwhelming power of the North... Uh, able Union military leadership and the willingness of the northern people to absorb huge losses and continue to apply that power over the long haul, I believe must be reckoned the major factors in bringing success to the United States. The armies of the United States defeated those of the Confederacy, proved that they could march at will through the Confederacy, and thereby convinced the Confederate people that further resistance was futile. No point in it. They can beat us. They have beaten us. And so the war is over. Well, that leaves us with one more topic that we will deal with, and that is how people who lived through the conflict chose to remember it. And that's what we'll do next time, the various ways that Americans looked back on the war and tried to make sense of it. Lecture 48, Remembering the War. Our final lecture will move from description and analysis of people and events during the war to a consideration of how those who experienced the conflict chose to remember it. We'll begin by examining the ways in which Northerners recalled the conflict in the decades after Appomattox, and then take up the topic of how former Confederates constructed their own memories, private and public, of the founding of the Confederacy and that slaveholding republic's short and turbulent life. The reconciliation movement of the late 19th century will be our third topic, followed by some observations about how modern Americans should try to understand the people and events of 1861-1865. But let's begin with the North. Just talk about some of the ways that the North uh, followed through on the war and remembered the war. Politically, Republicans followed up on wartime emancipation with the three great Civil War 
amendments to the Constitution. The 13th, which passed in December of 1865, as we've seen, which ended the institution of slavery. The 14th Amendment, which sought to guarantee uh, equal protection under the laws uh, to all people in the United States, among other things. And the 15th Amendment, which granted the franchise to black males of voting age. Those three major changes in the Constitution, I think, showed that many people in the North, in fact, probably a majority of people in the North, believe strongly enough uh, that black rights ranked high enough on the scale of things related to the Civil War that they were worth following through with during Reconstruction. Now, I don't think that changes the fact that most people in the North had always considered Union as the most important goal of the war. But they did follow through in these very important ways on issues related to emancipation and the fate of black people after emancipation. In politics, uh, Republicans made great, enormous progress during the war and afterward in terms of establishing themselves as the dominant national party, certainly in presidential politics. Uh, They controlled the White House for the most part uh, after the war through the decades of the 19th century and well into the 20th century. They had run their first candidate in 1856, as we've seen, elected their minority candidate in Lincoln the second time out, but then they were the dominant presidential party for the rest of the century. They had great success in part because they wrapped themselves in the Union flag, the United States flag from the war, and engaged in politics that some people have described as waving the bloody shirt politics. This has its origin in one person who was campaigned who literally waved a tunic, a Union soldier's tunic that had blood on it from the war. But what this meant was that the Republicans would try, and with great success in many instances, to cast the Democrats as the party of treason, the party who'd worked against the Union, the party who had almost brought the great American democratic experience to an end. Let me quote from one piece of bloody shirt campaign rhetoric. This is from the 1876 elections. It's Republican James G. Blaine urging his fellow Republicans to vote as they shot during the war. This is how he put it. Every prison guard who tortured Union prisoners at Andersonville was a Democrat. The man who shot Abraham Lincoln was a Democrat. Every man who tried to tear the old flag from the heaven it enriches was a Democrat. Every man who has tried to destroy the nation was a Democrat. Soldiers, every scar you have on your heroic bodies was given to you by a Democrat. Well, that kind of appeal... I think, resonated powerfully among many Union veterans especially, and it helped the Republicans maintain a powerful national position in the post-war years. They were very successful in electing former generals to the White House. Ulysses S. Grant won in 1868 and again in 1872. Rutherford B. Hayes followed him in 1876, James Garfield in 1880, and Benjamin Harrison in 1888. All of those men had been Union generals. Uh, William McKinley, who was elected in 1896, also was a Union veteran, although not a general, but again, a solid Union veteran, a patriot who had done his duty run by the Republicans. The service of these men certainly was a plus in their efforts to hold national office. Now, the Democrats struggled to retain, excuse me, to regain their position as the major party in the United States. They were unsuccessful at the presidential level. Uh, They elected Grover Cleveland twice in 1884 and then again in 1892. And then they elected 
Woodrow Wilson in 1912, but Wilson's election was really a fluke because the Republican Party was badly divided with Theodore Roosevelt running uh, outside the party and siphoning millions of votes away from the Republican nominee. It was hard for the Democrats to live down the label of treasonous party or of the Copperhead Party or of the party that had worked against Abraham Lincoln and the best, uh, the best parts of the United States. The Democrats had more success in electing members to the House of Representatives, and especially after the southern states were back in the Union, the House actually went Democratic again before the end of the century, and they also had success in the Senate. Democrats also had success running some of their former generals for office. They elected George B. McClellan, governor of New Jersey, for example, and almost won the election of 1880 with Winfield Scott Hancock, uh, one of the great heroes at Gettysburg, as their standard bearer. But overall, the Republicans had the better of this struggle for the best political use of the memory of the war. Their candidates could wrap themselves in the flag, wrap themselves in the cause of union, and that really was an avenue denied most of the Democrats. The Democrats remained a minority party in terms of the White House uh, well through the 19th century. The North also remembered the war by erecting monuments and by writing accounts of the conflict. Many, many monuments went up, and a flood of literature poured out. Much of that literature uh, written by former soldiers. Uh, most of these accounts were unit histories or sets of reminiscences and memoirs. They didn't focus for the most part on the causes of the war, but when they did, they tended to place slavery very near the center, if not at the center of why the war came. The Union accounts did. They also almost always emphasized the Union as the great issue uh, over which the two sides were fighting. Union, the great reason that men went into the service and the great benefit that came out of the war. Emancipation in most of these accounts would be secondary to Union. Now, some of the accounts by non-soldiers absolutely placed slavery and emancipation at the center. Henry Wilson's uh, famous three-volume History of the Rise and Fall of the Slave Power was an example of this kind of book. The monuments, uh, the, the literature, these suggest that people in the North were concerned about the war and how the war would be remembered. But gradually, the white North especially turned away from the conflict and focused on other things. I think this is uh, understandable uh, because they won. I think it makes a great difference whether you win or lose. I think if you win something like this, you tend to celebrate. You tend to believe that God was on your side in a mid-19th century context can sort of pat yourself on the back, uh, write or read books saying how great you are, uh, go to the monu monuments, but then get on with life. You don't have to focus. You don't have to wallow uh, in the past. The North celebrated Memorial Day. Uh, they would go to battlefields to decorate graves, uh, national cemeteries. They would listen to lectures, but they didn't really focus on the past, I think, for very long after the war. One exception to that was the Grand Army of the Republic, the great veteran organization the first huge veteran organization in the United States history. It had hundreds of thousands of members. Uh, Union veterans was the most powerful political lobby in late 19th century United States, pushing for a range of issues, often Republican issues, but not always, but also pushing for uh, benefits for veterans, for pensions, for them and for their widows and so forth. The GAR was immensely important in the late 19th century, and most of these men were very concerned with remembering the war and how it had gone and what it had been fought for. Again, Union 
uh, the main thing that they thought about. What about the white South? The white South, I believe, focused more on the past, as you would infer from what I just said, than the white North. I think they devoted enormous effort to making sense of their profound defeat, partly because it was a defeat. How do we look around, in essence, they said to one another, at this shambles that used to be our society and at this landscape that used to look so much better than it does now and try to make sense of the sacrifice and this complete defeat? How do we find something that will allow us to walk away from this uh, with a sense of having accomplished something? They knew that a higher percentage of their men had been killed. They knew that it was their levees and their railroads, their industry, Uh, that lay in ruins, that their social system had been turned upside down, and that uh, was a source of great bitterness for most white Southerners after the war. They were not happy that slavery had gone. They wish they still had slavery. A number of their uh, comments make that very clear. Let me quote just one. This is from a government bureaucrat named Robert Garlic Hill Kane, who traveled through parts of Virginia right after Appomattox, and he chose to focus on the loss of slavery. He wrote, the abolition of slavery immediately and by a military order is the most marked feature of this conquest of the South. Manumission after this fashion will be regarded hereafter, he predicted, I think with scarcely controlled anger, when it has borne its fruits and the passions of the hour have passed away as the greatest social crime ever committed on earth. The greatest social crime ever committed on earth. I think that many white Southerners believed that. They didn't like the fact that the North had come in and through military power, in their view, ripped the institution of slavery out of their society. They weren't happy as they looked around and saw an occupying force in their midst. Again, they're the only element of white America, certainly since the Revolution anyway, that has had that experience of being occupied by what they viewed as a foreign power in many instances. And these things... These constant physical reminders, the absence of slavery, the presence of Union soldiers, these things kept memories of the war, I think, much fresher in many uh, former Confederates' minds than in the minds of the white North. And the response on the part of at least a portion of the white South was to come up with an explanation for the coming of the war and an explanation for why they did what they did and how they behaved during the war that met some of their needs in terms of walking away with honor. And this came to be called uh, the myth of the lost cause. It's an attempt to find something positive in this failed struggle for independence. Yes, we lost, but that's not the whole story. I think that many of these lost cause writers went at the work of writing down their version of the war with a very clear notion of what they wanted to accomplish. They wanted not only to write for each other, And to reassure each other that they had fought the good fight and fought honorably, they also wanted to instruct their children, and beyond that, they specifically wanted to instruct future generations of historians. Many of them did. They put it just that explicitly. They knew that historians rely on the writings of people involved in a great event to write their own accounts, and so they were bound and determined, were these lost cause writers, to get their version of the war down on paper very quickly. Uh, Robert E. Lee was even active in this. Uh, He never wrote anything about the war, but he planned to write a history of the Army of Northern Virginia. He collected material for it early after the war. And in a letter to Jubal Early, he explained why he was doing this. He wrote, My only object is to transmit, if possible, the truth to posterity 
and do justice to our brave soldiers. In another letter to Early, Lee said, we shall, we shall have to be patient and suffer for a while at least. At present, the public mind is not prepared to receive the truth. Well, what Lee meant by the truth was his version of what the war had been about and what his army had accomplished during the war. The most famous and in some ways the most influential of the Lost Cause writers would be Jubal Early. Uh, he had an enormous influence in what other white Southerners wrote after the war, what got published and what didn't. And this is how Jubal Early explained what he thought uh, these Lost Cause writers were about. He urged Lee to finish his history of the Army in Northern Virginia. He, in effect, said, you have to do it. You're the most important person in our cause. You need to write this. Well, Lee didn't ever write it. But Early said that the written record of the war was crucial. The most that is left to us is the history of our struggle he stated, and I think that ought to be accurately written. We lost nearly everything but honor, and that should be religiously guarded. So that is Lee and Early, I think, laying out quite clearly their intention to influence future generations by getting down the Confederate view of what had happened. The lost cause bloomed, blossomed, if you will, after Lee's death. And there are several, there's not one lost cause uh, body of writings. There's not a group of five or six or seven things that constitute the myth of the lost cause. It's a group of, of general ideas and explanations that most, I think, of the White South subscribe to. And here are some of the key tenets of the lost cause explanation for the war and the lost cause view of their own activity during the war. Lee is crucial to these lost cause writers. He is held up as the perfect product of the antebellum slave-holding society of the South. They, these lost cause writers would say Lee was a humble man, he was deeply Christian, he was, he was admirable in almost every way. And this is what our former civilization could produce, this civilization that the war took away from us. If it could produce Robert E. Lee, how could it be a bad situation? He's our model. He's the person uh, we can hold up and show the rest of the world and not be embarrassed by him. Part of the Lost Cause take on Lee was that he was anti-slavery, which wasn't true. They were smart after the war. They knew that slavery uh, was condemned by most of Western civilization and that if they said, we fought the war for slavery, uh, they would not be very likely to get a receptive audience. So they tried to distance themselves from slavery, and Lee was part of that effort. Lee wasn't really in favor of slavery. Well, Lee really was in favor of slavery, uh, but they said he wasn't. They argued that Lee had never been beaten, that only northern numbers had brought Lee down, northern numbers and lieutenants who had let Lee down, who had failed Lee in key uh, instances, especially James Longstreet in the Battle of Gettysburg. They singled Longstreet out as a special target because he did not fit the model of what most white southerners thought a good former Confederate should be. Longstreet became a Republican. He took offices from Ulysses S. Grant and other Republican powers. He criticized Lee in print. He became a Catholic. He urged reconciliation almost immediately after the war. He committed a range of transgressions that made him a great target in the White South after the war, a convenient target for Jubal Early and other lost cause writers who said, we lost at Gettysburg, not because Lee failed at Gettysburg, but because of Longstreet. If it hadn't been for Longstreet, we would have won. And if we had won that battle, we probably would have won our independence. That's one line of explanation about why the Confederacy lost in the lost cause literature. 
these lieutenants let Lee down. The other explanation is basically that the Confederacy never had a chance to win because the North had so much of everything. We fought long, we fought hard, we pulled together, we lost because they had so much of everything. And we can hold our heads up even though we lost because it was really an impossible task. Weren't we gallant and honorable in trying to win, in fighting for so long and so hard? They could pick from those explanations for Confederate defeat. And again, Early gave one of the best uh, short encapsulations of that notion in a speech he delivered at Washington and Lee University uh, shortly after Lee's death. He put it this way, cast Lee and his gallant soldiers brilliantly against a sort of mechanistic northern juggernaut. General Lee had not been conquered in battle, but surrendered because he no longer had an army with which to give battle, said Early. What he surrendered was the skeleton, the mere ghost of the Army of Northern Virginia, which had been gradually worn down by the combined agencies of numbers, steam power, railroads, mechanism, and all the resources of physical science. Years of federal strategic offensives, fueled by unlimited manpower and material wealth, quote, had finally produced that exhaustion of our army and resources and that accumulation of numbers on the other side, which wrought the final disaster. Honorable striving, giving in to overwhelming northern power. So the white south could say, our honor is intact. They also insisted again and again, as I said earlier, that it was not about slavery. It was over constitutional issues. Secession was the case of the South's taking the high constitutional ground to defend the principles that the founding generation had put in place. It was the North that was striking at those principles, not the Confederacy. Both Alexander Hamilton Stevens and Jefferson Davis wrote thick two-volume sets of memoirs. Uh, Davis is more a memoir. Stevens is more a legal argument, insisting that it hadn't been about slavery. It had not been about slavery. It had been about constitutional issues. Now, if you read what Davis and Stevens said and wrote in 1861, they're very blunt about what it is. It's slavery that we're trying to protect against this threat from the North. But after the war, they knew that was not the road to take to get a receptive hearing, and so they changed course. These books are both almost impossible to read, at least straight through. They're very turgidly written, very legalistic, both of them. But the point is that they both are an attempt to distance the Confederate war from the issue of slavery, the coming of the war and the conduct of the war. It was the Constitution, the high ground. Bitterness toward the North lingered for many years in the White South. I think that there is often a sort of rosy glow over discussions of the post-war years. Yes, Americans killed each other during the war, but really they were so much more alike than different. And once the war was over, they came back together fairly quickly they realized their essential Americanness. And we'll talk in a minute about reconciliation. There was some of that, surely, but there was also a good deal of bitterness uh, in the Confederacy, in the former Confederacy, uh, kept alive uh, toward the North. The post-war South did all kinds of things to remember the war. Uh, Ladies' Association spearheaded efforts to disinter Confederate dead from northern battlefields and battlefields away from home and bring them back to the Confederacy. Uh, They erected monuments on courthouse uh, lawns. They celebrated the birthdays of Davis and Robert E. Lee. Uh, In any number of ways, they recalled the war and reinforced these ideas about how they had been fighting for state rights and constitutional rights and how it wasn't about slavery. And all of these occasions, I think, helped to keep alive a certain bitterness. 
Uh, the lyrics, I think, of the song, Oh, I'm a Good Old Rebel, uh, the sheet music for which uh, sarcastically uh, noted the Honorable Thaddeus Stevens as an inspiration for this song. I think that song gives a very short but accurate glimpse at how many white Southerners felt after the war. And here are part of the lyrics. It shows that the Confederates recognized they'd been whipped by the Federals, that fur further armed resistance was impossible, but also showed a determination to keep alive animosity toward the North. These are the lyrics. 300,000 Yankees is stiff in Southern dust. We got 300,000 before they conquered us. They died of Southern fever and Southern steel and shot. I wish they was 3 million instead of what we got. I can't take up my musket and fight them now no more, but I ain't going to love them. Now that is certain sure. And I don't want no pardon for what I was and am, and I won't be reconstructed. I don't care a damn. I think that is how a lot of the white South felt about the conflict after the war. So a good deal of bitterness. Now, by the last two decades of the century, there was a movement toward reconciliation. I think it was more important in the North and stronger in the North, but it also was present in the South. This reconciliation movement emphasized the degree to which all these men were Americans who fought each other during the war, common heritage, common characteristics. This reconciliationist movement argued that everybody had been gallant. It left slavery out of the picture because slavery muddied the waters. Instead, it just said that both sides fought for what they believed was right. Don't make a moral judgment about what was right. Just say that they both fought bravely for what they believed was right. They were all brave together, all a credit to America. This is what our country produced, these brave men fighting for what they believed was right. John Brown Gordon's reminiscences are a perfect example of this reconciliationist literature. They came out just after the turn of the century. Gordon, a very good soldier in Lee's army, a major general at the end of the war, politician in Georgia after the war. He'd been quite bitter toward the Federals during the war, but in this book, in his book of reminiscences, published just after the turn of the century, everybody is brave. All the Federals are brave. It's, just, it's really just sort of a love fest in this book and in many other books like it, extolling the virtues of American manhood, northern and southern. Many of the reconciliationist writers said the war was a watershed because it confirmed the Union and prepared the nation for international greatness. Former Confederates fought in the war against Spain, Fitzhugh Lee, Joseph Wheeler, Tom Rosser, and others, former Confederate generals. Now, the fact that slavery and emancipation largely disappeared from the white memory of the conflict, I think, really fit in rather nicely with how most of the white North would have explained what the war was about at the time, that it was about Union not so much about emancipation. I don't think it was that hard for most white northerners to push emancipation to the side. But it alienated the black people who knew in their own minds that emancipation had been right at the center of the war. They were furious when they saw emancipation pushed aside and when they saw a reconciliationist movement that seemed to show that the white north and the white south were willing to get together, forget their past animosities, and also forget that emancipation and slavery had been at the very heart of what the conflict was about. Black Americans had their own ways to remember the war. They, they uh, celebrated emancipation days, which fell on different days of the year in different places. Juneteenth in Texas, the 19th of June was the date there, and that was taken up in some other places. There were black GAR posts. There were even some integrated GAR posts in the country. Some of those even had black officers. Black veterans would travel to Gettysburg 
for reunions. Not on the same days the white veterans went, but they would go to remember their war effort, to remember that they had been a part of this great national cataclysm. And many of their leaders lamented the fact that the reconciliationist movement seemed to be forgetting about emancipation. Frederick Douglass was among the most outraged in this sense. As early as 1870, Douglass had complained about northern response to news of Lee's death. He wrote that he didn't like the, quote, bombastic laudation of the rebel chief. We can scarcely take up a newspaper, he said, that is not filled with nauseating flatteries of the late Robert E. Lee. Uh, That became a more pronounced trend later in the century, and it just drove people like Frederick Douglass and other black men and women who remembered the war in their way to distraction. How could this war be rewritten in this sense? Uh, One of the key examples of this reconciliationist attitude came in a famous address at Washington and Lee University given by Charles Francis Adams, Jr. on Lee's, the centennial of Lee's birthday in 1907. Now, he's the descendant of two American presidents of a strongly abolitionist family in Massachusetts, and yet Adams forgave even Lee's devoting his military talents to the cause of disrupting the Union. He told his audience, under similar conditions, I would have myself done exactly what Lee did. In fact, added Adams, I don't see how I, placed as he was placed, could have done otherwise. Uh, That is not the way that many black people wanted the war to be remembered. So the point here is that there's not a memory of the war in the 19th and early 20th centuries, but memory, uh, many memories. White Northern, white Southern, black American, North and South, people remembered it in different ways. And people continue to approach the war in different ways. I think some modern Americans try to find lessons and information in the war that are applicable to our current situation, and their emancipation and slavery are especially important. We still, as a nation, have not come to grips with the issue of race, and we can find many echoes now of the arguments and debates that took place during the Civil War era. The war still seems to speak to our condition as a nation in those ways. I think it's much easier, certainly I know among my students, it's much easier for them to understand why someone would go to war to end slavery, why someone would risk lives and treasure to end slavery, than why they would do so to save the Union. The Union is hard to explain that concept. It's much easier from our late 20th century uh, perspective, I think, to understand emancipation. And some people look back to the war because they're concerned with questions and and problems now that seem to be similar to the ones that were in place then. Debate over the relative powers of the national, state, and local governments also continues. Those during the war and those debates now sometimes sound very similar. Other modern Americans examine the war in an effort to understand what motivated people at the time. Why did people react as they did? What kinds of factors came into play to make Northerners risk so much? Uh, Why did Confederates fight so long and hard, especially the non-slaveholding ones who didn't seem to have so much at stake? Uh, Where did freedom stand in contrast to Union as a a Northern war aim? Depending on which approach you use, I think you'll come up with very different understandings of the war. If you want to understand the second set of questions, why people acted as they did and so forth, you have to go to what people wrote at the time, what they said. That's the only way to do that. We can't try to use all of our assumptions and our prism of analysis from the late 20th century and apply it to those people and understand what they were doing. 
We really need to try to meet them on their own ground, accept them on their own terms. We don't have to like them. It's not a question of whether we like them or not. But if we really want to understand them, we need to go and see what they wrote and what they did. And from those two bodies of evidence, I think we'll come as close as it's possible to come to understanding them. And we should never fool ourselves into thinking that we can understand them completely. Uh, We don't even know why we do a lot of the things we do. Uh, So we shouldn't try to think that we can understand uh, why they did all of the things that they did. But if we're going to try, it's important, I think, to engage them on their own ground. If you do engage them on their own ground, you will find an endless amount of, I think, riveting testimony of people embroiled in enormous issues trying to make sense of some of the most complicated and potentially destructive things that Americans have ever grappled with. I think this brings uh, to, a, to a close our journey across the landscape uh, of the American Civil War. I wish it didn't. Uh, I have had a, a lifelong fascination with this subject. I have found it amazing that it has never grown old to me. There's so much new evidence. There's so many different questions that are raised, such a rich literature and an evolving literature in this field that I found it impossible to be bored by it or impossible uh, to be drawn in other areas. Now, maybe it's just because I'm a boring person. I'm stuck in a very deep rut and sort of happy in my rut, but I don't think so. I think that the war offers unlimited avenues of exploration that yield fascinating insights into the events of the period, the people who participated in them, and the ways in which the great issues of that time continue to resonate now. I hope this course has managed to impart to you at least some of my enthusiasm and that you will leave it uh, eager to explore more on your own. We genuinely hope you've enjoyed these lectures from our Great Courses series. Our courses are available to order online. Visit our website at www.teach12.com or call our customer care representatives at 1-800-TEACH-12. That's 1-800-TEACH-12. Thank you very much. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.